I am Todd Dandruff with Telus. This is Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We broadcast every week, usually on Friday. This week it's on Saturday. In fact, this week it was supposed to be on Friday, moved to Sunday, and then returned one day earlier to Saturday because it turns out I can make Saturday when I did not previously think I could make Saturday. So here we are on Saturday night here on Poker Fraud Alert Radio. The time right now, 9.31 p.m. And guess what? We have a free roll that started just one short minute ago. One short minute ago, it started, and it is on the No Fraud Online Poker Room, which you can find near the top of the screen. And you need a validated account and a separate account on there. It's not the same as your form account. You need to make a new account on the No Fraud Online Poker Room. It needs to be validated. PM Belly Space Buster on the forum. And if for some reason he's not responsive, you can get a hold of me. 775-372-8355 is my text number, and I will validate you for the free roll. Make sure to understand the rules for the free roll in order to qualify for the free money. That is PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll, exactly as it sounds, all lowercase, PokerFraudAlert.com slash free roll. Very simple rules, but rules we stick to, and those govern whether or not you qualify for the free money that we give away each week, which this week is $52. The free roll began two minutes ago, but you still have 25 more minutes to get in from when it began, which is 23 more minutes from now till 9.55 Pacific time. There's always 25 minutes of late registration. This week, the money was donated. Uh, $27 came from Matt the Rat, and $25 came from a combination of I Am Greek and Flipper Fair. They donated it together. So uh, a joint donation of $25 plus a single donation from Matt the Rat of $27, making the total of $52 in the prize pool this week. Three spots are getting paid in the tournament. First place will be $26, second place $16, and third place 10 26, 16, and 10 are the prizes this week, and you have till 9.55 to get in late in this contest. Should be a small field this week because we're on an off day. We're not starting on on Friday. We're on Saturday here. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about, but unfortunately, I can't talk about as much as I'd like to. You guys know that I like to be very detailed and forthright about everything, even things involving me. But in this case, I can't be, but I will tell you some things on the show, including something I have not uh, made public yet that's going to be revealed publicly for the first time tonight. We're going to try to find Trader Ruski to co-host with me. Vintage One, I know, is around somewhere. I'm not sure if he's still awake, but uh, let's try Trader Ruski first. Let's see if we can get Vintage One. Maybe Brandon will come on at some point. You never know. What's happening, Jeff? Trader Ruski, hello. How you doing? Well, uh, it's, it's been uh, kind of a frustrating week in, in one way, which we'll get to as our lead topic. But uh, I know you are aware of what this is. In fact, uh, most people listening are. But if you're not, you'll have to stay in suspense because I'll reveal it when we get to that topic. Uh, is, do you know if Vintage One is available tonight? I know he was texting with us earlier. I, yeah, I think he is. I think he was going to do it. Okay. Um, I can text him now. Yeah, text him now and see yeah, if we can get I him on. Yeah, let me text him to give him a chance to run Yeah, there. I'd like to have him on here. And uh, Brandon, if he's around, uh, I'd like to have him. He, he may pop up later. Sometimes he's uh, sleeping weird hours and then wakes up at 3 a.m. and he can jump on. So anyway, 
Uh, I, I told you guys about the free roll already. If you want to call the show, 775-FRAUD-55, 775-372-8355 is the number. You can always call the Mount Charleston line. The Mount Charleston line is an old 70s rotary phone which sits in a cabin on top of Mount Charleston and forwards to me wherever I go. That phone number is 702-430-1808. 702-430-1808 is the Mount Charleston line. If you want to text me, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, 775-372-8355. The main number is also my text number. You can text me any time of the day or night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I will probably respond to you. It does not have to be during the show, though it can be. However, I might read your texts on air, especially if it's during the show. So watch out. Always state at the beginning you don't want to read on air if you think it might be confusing, especially if you're sending a text during the show. If you want to listen to the show and you do not have an easy way to do so, maybe you're driving, maybe you're hiking, if you want to listen live, there is a way to do so with a cell phone that can dial, or any phone, doesn't have to be a cell phone, any phone that can dial in the world. That's the call to listen line. Over a million minutes have been listened to on the call to listen line, and you can keep adding to that number. The phone number of the call to listen line is 605-313-0736, 605-313-0736. Then there's the alternate call to listen line, which works the exact same way, 641-741-1095. What is a call to listen line? That's just something you call up and listen to the show. It does not require a smartphone, does not require an app does not require a data plan. It does not use any of your data if you have data. It does not require a computer or the Internet, just any old-school phone or newer phone that can dial a phone number, the two I just gave out. You can just listen to the show, and guess what? It never freezes and never buffers. It just plays right through. It's a streamer's dream. The one thing that sucks about streaming content is it freezes up and buffers, and I hate it. So I made sure this does not do that. If you forgot those phone numbers, go to the radio tab on PokerFraudAlert.com. They're listed right there for you, as are the other numbers I gave out. I make it so easy for you. If you want to listen to the show in the archives, after we're done, you can go listen to any show we've ever done, dating back to early 2012. You can listen on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, which is an app, TuneIn, another app, Bullhorn, another app. Then there's apps for Spotify and iHeartMedia. I'm sure you know those two, and we are on those as well. You can also download or play the MP3 file of the show directly from PokerFraudAlert.com. Just go to the Radio Archives forum or just click on the MP3 button near the bottom of the screen of the Radio tab. Either way, you get to the Radio Archives forum, and then you just click on the show you want to listen to, and there's an MP3 file. You can just click on it, and just about any device will just play it. You don't need a player. It's just very simple. You just click on it and it plays. Or you can download it. It's up to you. So a lot of ways I provide to listen to the show. If you would like another way to listen that I don't give you, please let me know. And I'll see if I can add it, as long as it's not too much trouble and as long as it does not cost me a lot of money. By the way, speaking of costing a lot of money, I have had a complaint from someone who asked, uh, why do you always make fun of Jews and talk about how Jews are cheap and... Things like that. Well, first of all, for the few of you who don't know, I am a Jew. I am a full-blooded Jew. In fact, my dad was actually born in Israel. I was going to go to Israel this year, but the coronavirus stopped that. So it's obviously nothing derogatory towards Jews. And uh, I always found that insult to be funny because how is it an insult? It means you're good with money. It means that you are responsible with money, which actually can't be said for most Americans. So I, I take it as a compliment that uh, that I'm shrewd with money 
and that I don't waste it and that I utilize my financial resources well, if that's the stereotype, I'll take it. So believe me, it's nothing derogatory for those of you that are wondering who may not be familiar with me or the show. And I, I wouldn't use those jokes if I were not Jewish myself. But since I'm Jewish myself, I can, I can do it because uh, that's, that's a right I have, being part of the group. Okay, the chat room's a mess. It'll be replaced at the end of the year. But for now, you need a flash-enabled device to get in, meaning iPhones and iPads can't get in there. Don't bother trying to get in if it's not the live show because, well, there will be nobody in to chat with you if we're not live. But if you would like to go in and chat with a few people who can still get into it, go to the Flying Stupidity Forum and read the instructions on how to get into the chat room. First thing you just try to click the chat button and see if you get in. And if you don't, if there's an error of some sort and it does not open, uh, it, it doesn't even work for me without me following the instructions there. For some people it does, but for me it doesn't even work. So I have to follow the instructions myself. So on the Flying Stupidity Forum, there's a thread near the top of the forum called uh, instructions on making chat room work. Follow those exact instructions for the browser you're using, and you will be able to get in, provided you have a Flash-enabled device. And uh, it may require logging off and logging back into the Poker Fraud Alert forum. Not ideal. It's got some issues, I will admit that, but uh, that's what we have at the moment. And uh, then we will replace this within a few months reason in a few months is because I'm waiting for a certain uh, chat room that is made for this type of forum software to be developed, and that one would not require Flash. So that'll be another improvement. I'm waiting for that one to come out, and I, I may even spend money on it. I may actually throw down some dollars to get that chat room. I, I so badly want a good chat room because uh, this chat room's kind of crap, but it, it's hard to get a chat room that works well with the software we are running and chat rooms are kind of falling out of style anyway. Like people just don't go into chat rooms much anymore. So it's, that's another problem. So anyway, it's there. It's there for your use if you're listening live. And uh, I think that's about it. Remember, we did fix the radio player. So if you've had trouble playing the radio off the radio page, uh, check it out if you haven't in the last few weeks because we did update the radio player twice, actually. So the one we've updated recently is the one that's going to stick there for a while. And uh, that works with most devices, including mobile devices. I paid out a lot of people who won the free roll recently. There's a big backlog, which is my fault. I just didn't do it. The free roll, I very, very much appreciate the money it's donated. But the one downside of the free roll, which I love having, and we're the only poker show that has a weekly free roll attached to it. But the one downside to that is that it's a burden for me to have to pay out like all these people. That every week, it's not a lot of people every week, but it builds up. It's kind of a pain in the ass, to be honest. But I do it. I'm not complaining. I'm voluntarily doing this, and I'm very grateful that people donate to it. And if I didn't want to have it, I'd get rid of it. But it's something I like having. I just don't love doing the payouts because it's a pain in the ass. But uh, the way I have coped with that is I just wait a while until a number of payouts build up, and then I do them all at once. And I did that today. If you've been waiting for a while, I apologize. If you have not been paid and you have request pay, requested payment, uh, please request again if you did not get it today. And you may want to go check the list. We do have a list on the top of the Flying Stupidity form of who is owed money. So this way it's all transparent and you can see who got paid and who didn't. So there's no accusations of impropriety of me uh, pocketing some of the money that doesn't get claimed. Any money that doesn't get claimed after six or more months, we may take and put back in the pool. It all eventually gets either put back in the pool or paid out so I don't uh, keep any of it 
and I'm transparent about that uh, in that thread, as you guys can see. So check that out if you're owed, owed money, and I did make a bunch of payouts today, and uh, if you didn't make that cut, it may be a little while to get paid again. Just don't count on the money. You know, like, if you really need this money, uh, you might as well just pretend it's not coming. It will come, but, like, don't, don't count on it. Don't get mad because I haven't paid you quickly enough. Because this is a thing we're just this the site doesn't run for a profit. This this is something we just do for the live users to have some fun. And I'm glad you guys enjoy it. I'm glad you guys win some money. And I'm very happy that we have generous people to donate to it. I just uh, want to advise you that this is money you can't count on immediately. You can count on eventually, but not immediately. Remember also no PayPal. <laughs> PayPal is gone. PayPal banned me, so I cannot pay you by PayPal. But there's many other options, including Bitcoin. Okay, uh, here is the agenda for the week. We've talked a lot about Mike Postle and Stones on the show, but something has happened that is going to reduce my ability to talk about that subject, and that is our lead story. It's a pretty big story. I can't talk that much about it, and I will tell you all the details when we do our lead story, which is that. There's also... Something involving Veronica Brill having to do with that story, which will be our second story. After that, we're going to talk about the Gigi Poker and Fedora Cruz controversy that continues. And Gigi Poker, I've never played on there because I have not uh, left the country since that has uh, become a prominent site. So I cannot play on there as somebody who uh, spends all my time in the United States. But I really don't like it. I really don't like it. I've seen too many things from it that I find very objectionable. I don't think it's a scam, but I think they are very player hostile. And I don't like them and I don't trust them. And there's another indication this week that they're very player hostile. And we'll talk about that in our segment about GG Poker and the Fedor Cruz real-time assistance scandal that we talked about last week. Then we're going to go back three years. What happened three years ago? Hmm... Early October, very early October in 2017, what happened in Las Vegas? Oh, yes. A big tragedy. A mass shooting by one Stephen Paddock from the Mandalay Bay who brought up high-powered weaponry and kicked out the window of the Mandalay Bay suite he was staying in. This was all planned in advance. And he shot down at thousands of concert goers at a country music festival below and uh he killed uh, i believe uh, 57 people he tried to kill a lot more uh they the police came to storm his room and he killed himself before he could do more than uh, he was hoping to do but he still killed 57 people and injured hundreds of others a very awful event very tragic event some people uh, are starting to forget about it. Not forget it ever happened, but you don't think about it too much, especially because we've had a lot on our minds this year with uh, the coronavirus and other big stories that have happened in 2020. Seems Things like Stephen Paddock uh, in 2017 are starting to seem like ancient history. But we're going to revisit it because I never got, in my mind, a proper resolution to this. I never found out what I thought we should find out. So I'm going to tell you what is known and what is not known and why I think the things that aren't known have not been made known to the public. I think that the Las Vegas media has crapped the bed on this one, that they should have been more aggressive. 
and that's bothersome. I'm going to tell you my criticism about uh, the handling of the Stephen Paddock case and how the public really is pretty much in the dark three years later, and that's a tragedy. It's a tragedy on top of the original tragedy. Donald Trump, I don't talk about him that much on this show. Sometimes I'll do a little bit of a political statement, but I, I try not to make this a political show. You guys get enough of that elsewhere and probably all over your social media feeds. I try to make this mostly an apolitical show about poker and gambling, but uh, he has the coronavirus, as I'm sure you've heard, no matter where you are in the world. So we'll discuss, uh, as of right now, the information we know and what we can make of the situation. Does it look like uh, it's more serious than they're letting on or does it look like he'll get over it how will it affect the election i will give you my opinion which may end up being completely wrong but i'm going to give you my opinion on the matter and uh, trader risky if he's still around at that point can do so as well and by the way this is not going to be any kind of uh, analysis of donald trump himself this is not going to be a pro or anti-trump segment we're not going to be discussing uh if he's a good president or a good person or anything like that, that's not going to be the focus here. It's just going to be an objective discussion of him, a human being who's 74 years old, who's overweight, has the coronavirus, and uh, and he's the president, and the information has been released, how much we can trust it, and all that type of stuff. Just pretty much uh, it would apply to anybody who's the president that gets the coronavirus, and uh, we get that information. Caesars has purchased bookmaker William Hill. So we will talk about that very interesting purchase. William Hill, even though they're based in Europe, they operate a lot of the sports books in Las Vegas. So that's a pretty significant purchase. We will talk about that. Remember, Caesars already did their mega merger with Eldorado a short time ago. That was approved, and it has already happened. Doug Polk and Daniel Negranu have their heads-up match set. We have a date for it, and we have the terms for it. I will tell you when that is. It's not too far from now. You have time to plan your schedule around it if you'd like to watch it. I'm definitely going to watch it. This is one of the things I'm interested in. I think there's only been two things of this type I've ever been interested in. There is the Kate Hall-Mike Dentali match, and then there's this. And this one I'm even more interested in. We've talked about a lot of the feuding between the two of them on this show, so I would like to see how this plays out. I'd like to see if uh, Doug Polk can win, despite the fact that uh, he's a favorite and the expectations are on him and there's not a lot he gets for winning because uh, other than the money and the bragging rights, but he's kind of seen as the favorite, so you kind of expect him to be the one to win, and that's the way Negroni wants it, but we'll talk about that whole thing when we get to it. Circa is a new hotel in downtown Las Vegas, not exactly the best timing to open up a new hotel, given how Las Vegas is struggling and how... The entire travel industry has been decimated and will continue to be decimated for the foreseeable future. But nevertheless, they are forging forward, and they are going to be opening in late October. I will tell you more about that when we get to that segment. Howard Stern is apparently a fan of poker, and I didn't know that. In fact, uh, I wonder how much poker news Howard Stern follows. It's very possible that uh, Howard Stern... Follows a lot of stuff that happens in poker. It's even possible he knows who I am, or I, I, I doubt he's listened to the show, but it's even possible he has, or uh, has read things about me and about, definitely he's read about things about the things I've talked about on the show. I had no idea Howard Stern was into poker, but he is. So I'm going to play you a segment from his show where he talks about his fandom in poker, and he definitely knows of some big names in poker, so he's not just claiming to be a fan of poker when he's not. So I'll play you the Howard 
Stern Poker Fandom segment. And that, that was kind of surprising to hear. Who knew? Michigan will join the few states in the nation to have legalized online poker in November. I'll tell you about that. Poker Stars has changed the concept of waiting lists in order to prevent bum hunting, which is the practice of only sitting when known fish are in the game. I think Poker Stars' uh, system, which I'll tell you about when we do the segment, I think it's kind of ridiculous, and I, I think it's kind of stupid, and I would be frustrated if I was playing on there and that was the system. I'll give you my criticisms of it. However, I will say their approach is a lot better than GG Poker's, which is just like downright hostile to pros. So I'll compare the two when we get to that segment as well. But they both have the same goal to prevent bum hunting. Finally, if we have time, yes, I've been putting this off every week, but I think we may have time this week because I don't see any of these segments taking a really long time. Finally, I will do that what would Druff do segment about the guy who went on that lunch date and all the stuff that happened there that I've been talking about for a few weeks, but then by the time we get to the end of the show, I'm exhausted and say, nah, I don't want to do it this week. We'll get it done before the end of 2020, I promise. Maybe tonight. Okay. So it's time to just jump right in. And this is a good time because the free roll's almost closing, three minutes away. So you better hurry on in there if you're not in there yet. But I'm just going to come out and say it. A lot of you already know. I received information on uh, October 1st, which was just two days ago, that Mike Possel is suing me. I'm not entirely surprised in fact, we even discussed the possibility that Mike Possel would be suing people because his friend Ku Fang was dropping hints about this on Twitter under her Poker Thug account. She was dropping hints about this for the past month. So, indeed, that is what happened, and I was named. I have not been served. To my knowledge, nobody who was named has been served. I have to imagine that's coming soon. Uh, until you've been served, it's not official. But I have seen the entire complaint, and that is probably going to be the complaint that is officially filed. Maybe it has been already. Maybe they're going to change it before filing it. I guess there's a tiny chance they could not file it and pull it back, but I, I don't think so. I think it's going to be filed, or already has been. And I think within a relatively short time, I will be served with that lawsuit, as will the other defendants. There's plenty of other defendants. In fact... I am the least prominent, in my opinion, of all the defendants. And I'm also the oldest of all the defendants, interestingly enough. I found out about this because a reporter for a service called Court News, which is a proprietary news service that works, that's like a subscription-based service for attorneys, one of the people who works for Court News happened to be familiar with the entire Mike Postle situation and he saw this in the Sacramento court system, got a copy of it. So he posted the first page to Twitter. Someone alerted me to that. Once I saw the, you know, the front page that that guy posted to Twitter, I, I knew it was authentic. I knew it wasn't uh, something that was made up. And, and eventually I, I got the whole complaint, which I don't know how many people have right now. As I said, it's not been served on me. But uh, I have read the entire complaint. I believe this to be a real lawsuit and I believe I will be served within a short time. Who else was named in this lawsuit? Well, a number of people and entities. The lawsuit was against Veronica Brill, who was the one who uh, was the whistleblower of the whole 
thing yet going on at Stones. ESPN, Joey Ingram, Haralabos Volgaris, also known as Haralabob, Daniel Negranu, Upswing Poker, which is Doug Polk's company, iBus Media, a.k.a. Poker News, Seat Open LLC, a.k.a. Crush Live Poker, which would be one Bart Hansen, who listens to this show, Jonathan Little Holdings, I bet you know whose company that is, Solve for Why Academy, which is mostly Matt Berkey, also uh, Christian Soto is part of that, Todd Wittellis, I think you guys have an idea who that is, and finally, Run It Once, a.k.a. Phil Galfond. So some people were sued as their company. Their company was sued instead of them personally. And some of us were sued as individuals, such as Joey, Haralabob, Daniel Negranu, uh, and me, and, and Veronica. So this is all in one lawsuit. This is not uh, a bunch of separate suits against uh, each person I, and company I named. This is all in one case. I do not have a case number. Uh, if you go to my Twitter, you can see the front page of the complaint, and that's where all these are listed. It is dated October 1st. I don't know if it was actually filed October 1st, but the date on the complaint at the end, which is not in the tweet I sent, but I have it at the end of the complaint, it is October 1st, 2020. The complaint asks for damages and an injunctive relief for defamation libel per se, defamation slander per se, trade libel, false light, intentional interference with prospective economic advantage, unfair competition, and intentional infliction of emotional distress, and it is a demand for jury trial. By the way, uh, don't make too much of those uh, seven complaints and and, uh, injunctive relief uh, damages. That's very standard stuff, as is the demand for jury trial. Uh, Also, 1,000 John Doe's are being sued. That's also listed as in defendants. That is not anything that big of a deal either. This is common in these type of suits, especially with multiple defendants, and especially in defamation cases involving the Internet. Uh, basically, John Doe's allow you to add names to the suit later, regardless of the statute of limitations. So it it's pretty much a trick to avoid the statute of limitations once it's filed. So this way the clock kind of stops ticking and you can add people later. So they may or may not add people later. I, I have no idea what their intentions are, but that's what the John Doe's 1 through 1,000. I don't think I've ever seen 1,000 Doe's added. Usually it's Doe's 1 through 20, 1 through 100. 1 through 1,000 is a lot. <laughs> that's a pretty insane number, but nonetheless, uh, that's what they added. I'm sure you'd love to hear my full thoughts on these on this uh, lawsuit against me, and I would love to give you my full thoughts, but I cannot. As you might guess, since I was named here, I have to be careful what I say between now and the eventual end of this case, whatever that may be. Once you've been named in a lawsuit, it's very standard practice to be careful what you say publicly, not just in this case, but that's what... Uh, is the right advice you will get from any competent attorney. Which brings me to my next point. You may ask, am I going to hire an attorney? And the answer is, of course, yes. You would be a fool to proceed as a defendant in a case like this 
without an attorney for many reasons. So the second I saw that I was named in this, I knew that I was going to hire an attorney. I just had to decide which attorney I was going to hire. And I have made that decision, which I'm about to reveal to you, and I have not posted anywhere on the internet or told anyone except for a few people privately. So I'm going to reveal this now for the first time. The attorney I chose to hire to defend this lawsuit against me is attorney Eric Benzamokin. I almost feel bad playing that sound effect because I bet a lot of you were expecting that. <laughs> but yes, I have run ads for Eric Benzamokin on this show for a long time. And in those ads, I talk about how I trust him, how he's exactly the type of attorney I would hire. But you never know if that's just me saying that because uh, he's become a friend of mine, has become very generous to this show. You didn't know if I really would. You may have thought I was just saying that to be nice. Well, now you see. Now you see that I really trust Eric Benzamokin because I am putting this in his hands. And if I did not believe that he was a very good attorney, I would not be hiring him. I'm going to let him direct the process because he's the expert here, not me. And when he tells me I can say something or make a statement about something, I will. And when he tells me I can't, I won't, even if I want to. And even if I disagree, I will go with his advice because I trust him. And I trust that he knows what to do. And I trust that he knows what to do better than I do. I will be fighting this. I will not be settling. I'm not going to be bullied by a frivolous suit, which I believe this to be. And uh, with attorney Eric Benzamokin, I'm going to uh, obviously answer this. And I will fight this through the legal system. And I trust that Eric will do a great job in accomplishing that for me. Now, I'm not the only one who will be fighting it, obviously. There's a bunch of people on the same side and two companies on the same side, one very, very large company. There's a lot of uh, complexities to this whole thing, uh, many of which I cannot talk about here. You should keep in mind that there is ESPN, there is Poker News that have been named here, and then there's a lot of uh, high-profile poker pros and their companies. I mean, look at, look at the list here. Daniel Negreanu, Doug Polk, who are on the same side of something for the first time ever, probably. Matt Berkey, Jonathan Little. Phil Galfond. I mean, this is really a who's who of big names in poker. And, of course, you have uh, Bart Hansen, Joey Ingram, and uh, then you have uh, me and Veronica. I will be fighting it. I will make a general statement about Poker Fraud Alert, though. Poker Fraud Alert has been around for eight and a half years. The main mission of Poker Fraud Alert has been to fight scams, scandals, and frauds in poker, as well as report on general news in poker and gambling. And in the process of doing so, I knew there would be things that I would say about people that would make them unhappy. And I'm not going to change anything of how we do things here. I have to change the way I can talk about this case and things related to this case for a while. But everything else is going to be business as usual. All other topics I'm going to cover the exact same way that I always have. And that's going to be the way things are here. 
And this is unfortunate, but I'm ready, and I'll deal with it. And I have to assume the other defendants will deal with it as well. So that's pretty much all I can say at the moment regarding this case. Much more I'd like to say. Can't right now. A little bit later on, I will say a little bit more as allowed by attorney Eric Benzamokin. When this whole thing is over with, then I'll be able to talk about it much more freely, as is always the case when there is litigation. Now, of this list of defendants, there's one that stuck out as someone who may not be able to afford a legal defense uh, and may have some issues with paying for it without uh, it being a tremendous burden on them. And that would be the first listed person, Veronica Brill. Everybody else listed, uh, I don't have access to their books, but everybody else listed is either a successful company or a successful individual in the realm of poker. I have to imagine these other people will be able to defend this. They're not going to enjoy the whole thing, I would imagine, but they uh, they can do so without a major impact on their lifestyle. But uh, Veronica, I knew this could be a big burden on her. And as a result, she put out a GoFundMe page to raise money for her legal defense here. And I don't blame her. A lot of times I think GoFundMe is, is a big scam. Not the site itself, but a lot of times people who put up GoFundMe pages uh, there's some sort of scam or semi-scam angle to the whole thing. And in general, I don't like it. In fact, even when it's not a scam, people are often asking for things that they really should be handling themselves. Just just because you can't afford something doesn't mean that you, know, you need to put up a GoFundMe page uh, sticking your hand out for other people to pay for it. That's not always the case. Sometimes GoFundMes are legitimate and for a good reason. But most of the GoFundMes I've seen are crap. But I would not put this one... In that category, I don't see GoFundMe for uh, GoFundMe for Veronica as crap, and I understand why she's doing it. Veronica does not have very deep pockets. Veronica, predictably, a little concerned about the financial impact that defending such a suit can cause, especially because she doesn't know how far it will go. I'm very uh, happy to see that the poker community has been generous. If you go take a look at her GoFundMe, which you could find on her Twitter. You can also find it uh, on Poker Fraud Alert. I put a link to it. But if you go take a look at her GoFundMe, she was only asking for 20k. In nine hours, she has already raised $22,000. Plus, Bill Perkins, the very rich guy who lives on the Virgin Islands, the guy who wrote that book, Die With Zero, which I've talked about before on this show. He basically advocates uh, spending all your money by the end of your life, because uh, you should enjoy what you earn. You shouldn't just save all your money until you get very old and can't enjoy it anymore. And he doesn't believe in leaving large inheritances to your kids. And I don't agree with a lot of things he put out in that book, but nevertheless, that's that's his philosophy. Anyway, uh, he will be spending some of that money of his because he has said that he is also going to back Veronica's legal defense. So all of a sudden, Veronica even though she may not have a large personal fortune, uh, is going to have uh, not only uh, at least 22 k of donated money to her, but also Bill Perkins will be backing her legal defense as well. And I, I give a big thumbs up to Mr. Perkins for that. I think that's very generous and very noble of him, and I don't believe it's for any kind of ulterior motive. 
I thought very highly of him for doing that. And that takes care of the one person in this lawsuit who I worried about from the financial standpoint. Everybody else, I thought, okay, they're not enjoying this, but I think everybody else can handle it financially. And Veronica was the only one I was worried about that uh, I I wasn't sure how much she was going to be able to, but now it looks like she will be able to with the help of the community and uh, Bill Perkins. So good job, Bill Perkins. That's awesome. Good job, Bill Perkins and the people who donated and uh, chose that the community uh, is behind her and that uh, a lot of people care about this whole thing, and that's that's very nice to see. In fact, uh, the whole situation, ever since it began a little over a year ago, uh, in my opinion, brought out the best in a lot of people in poker. And there are some things that have brought out the worst in people in poker, but in some cases you'll see the good sides of everybody, and that's what I've seen in this case from a lot of people, including some people I don't even like very much. Uh, let's let's take a phone call here. We have a call coming in. Caller, you are on the air. Yo, where do you donate to this Valerie person? <laughs> that's, that's Veronica. And uh, uh, Veronica, well, you, if, you, like, you can look at. Where do you donate to this? I want to donate something. To okay, well, you can you can, you can look at the thread in the in the flying stupidity forum. You look at the thread. Uh, it's uh, post number seventy four. And she has a tweet there, and if you click in the tweet, you can see that there's a, her GoFundMe page. And then you'll also see in response to that tweet that Bill Perkins said that he's also going to back the effort. Oh, I see him. Don't worry. I already told him I'm going to come to his mom's house, and we're going to go to KFC together. <laughs> okay. That piece of crap. Oh, I did. I just put, posted that. I'm not even kidding you. Go look. Uh, okay. I well, mean, like, for real. Anyway. Um, don't, don't hang me up, man. Talk about some, let's talk about some baseball before we go into anything else. <laughs> Well, uh, you as far as baseball. Back? You want me to call back? Don't make it like four in the morning, bro. Well, whenever I'll you say you're going to call back, you don't call back, though. That's the problem. I will. Because, you, listen, the last time you're talking, we're going to talk about five guys. It was like six in the morning. I couldn't stay up anymore. Okay. Well, <laughs> it was six in the morning, bro. You and Drexel. Okay. Well, we'll uh, I'll call back. Just call back later. Okay. Man. okay. I, I, I thought Veronica was you. We're, we're like getting your defense fund together. No, no, no. I, I'm not getting. I don't have any. I'm, all, I'm way out of. I'm way out of loop. I didn't make the free roll tonight. Oh no. Well, I know. What the hell? You, you, you get, owe me twenty two bucks. Trader Ruski Jude me that. No, night. I, no, I. Trader I, Ruski, you beat me that night. I know, brother. I, I don't think I. Do I owe you twenty two dollars? I don't know. You, you got, you got to ask yeah, for. Yeah, I it. came in second place. That's okay. Their whole in the, you you got to ask for it like no, everybody you can else. Donate it. Okay. Oh, you can donate. You oh, thank stop you. it. Donate the damn thing. Okay, well, thank you, bad guy. I'm kidding around, man. Okay. Well, thank you, bad guy. I always donate it. I came in second place when Trader Rusi donated 35. I came in second. Okay. But I want to call back and talk baseball. Okay, you can do that. The Dodgers are playing on Tuesday. Uh, can we do that before Tuesday. 3 in the morning? 3 whose time? Your time? My yeah, hopefully not your well, time. Well, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't go by East Coast time. This is a West Coast bias show. I don't care about East Coast time. So okay. we, what are you going to talk about after this, man? Well, we're going to talk about uh, the GG Poker uh, Fedora Cruz thing and the and I the like that. and the re- real time assistance. I, and I might call in again, but you okay. won't answer. Okay, well, I'll probably answer. You can give it a try. I thought I thought I was I, hey TK the Pip. You just you just sell them out, man. You, know, you don't care about my picks or anything. What are you talking about? I don't you care about your picks. Knife. I I call the very last <laughs> baseball pick I made. I copied off of you. 
bad guy made a pick out no, there. No, you're, no, you're, I kid around, man. No, we, we're a good team, man. We yeah. screw with each other. Yeah, right? look, bad guy. I mean, no, the guys, I want, I, sorry, guys. I want everybody to hear this. Bad guy made a pick. The very last baseball pick that I've been on this season was the San Diego Padres oh. over four and a half runs in that wild game where the, it was a very high-scoring game, 11-9, wherever the hell it was. And, uh, yeah, we got lucky. There, so, so, it was looking bad. So, <laughs> right. So, so bad guy picked it, and then the San Diego just wasn't scoring. They're getting shut down. I'm going, crap, there's no way they're going to get five runs here. And then they, they pushed two across and then blew it with the bases loaded one out. And I'm like, ah, the, you know, yeah. it's, it's still looking bad. And then they just exploded. Fernando Tatis got two home runs. Yeah, Will Myers got two home the runs. scores 11 to 9. Yeah, so they got 11 yeah, runs. So, like so it went from like, hey, oh, crap. Anyway, brother, I love us in this show. I always screw with you. You know I kid around on there. You know that, right? Yeah, well, I, I, know, I never you know. know with you back. I never know if you really think that I'm, I'm disrespecting your baseball picks, but I'm going. I couldn't be disrespecting. No, get the hell out of here, man. I, we, I think when we do, well, you, that, you don't do. I don't post enough picks, but I always screw with you because I think that gives you good luck. You it does. That. It's true. Whenever, whenever bad guy criticizes one of my picks, it wins. <laughs> it's an incredible record when he criticizes yeah, that, it. Well, the one night you were like three and no, that's a, you're a good picker, man. You're smarter than I am. But that in sports is hard, isn't it? It is hard. It is hard. Sometimes it feels easy when it's just when it's all falling the right way. It feels easy, and then other times it feels like everything yeah, you right. do. It feels like you feel like such a fish. Other everything times, you said you can't win. Yeah, every everything you go, it goes everything the other way. Goes yep. All, all right, right, brother. Anyway, thank you, bad guy. Hey, I don't agree with it. I see with that thing, and I'm not going to say anything about it because I don't know what the hell's going on. But that guy needs dealt with. Yeah, well, I like you didn't do anything wrong. All I know you did I didn't. was report the truth. Okay, look, I I'm going to I am <laughs> I, mean, like, I am dealing with I am dealing with it through the legal system and I will do the best I can and as will my attorney Eric Benzamokin and I have confidence in that. You can't beat Benzamokin, bro. I know, he's, he's got he, a good guy. You've heard him on the show. Like a very knowledgeable guy. So I'm uh, Hell yeah, he's a great guy. I gave him his nickname, Ben Smoking, right? Yep, that's true. <laughs> Hey, you can't beat this guy. He's going to have been smoking that motherfucker, whatever his name is. I'm not going to say it. I know what your name is, MP. All right, anyway, I'll talk to you at three. Okay. All right, bad guy. All right, I love you, man. Thank Steve. you, bad guy. I do. Well, you knew Saturday night, bad guy. Bad guy would be in rare form. Yep, that's but, true. And, and, you know, and by the way, for the money she's raising, and I think it's great that uh, Bill Perkins is, like, backing it now. I think any money, and I'm going to go on it, it's the first I've heard of it. I think she should use it to go on vacation if there's extra money. Well, actually, it's, it's funny It's funny, It's funny. funny you mention that. She's actually not. Uh, so, there, there, of course, is the question with a GoFundMe. Uh, when, when it happens to get extra money compared to what's needed, what happens to it? And that's one of my criticisms of GoFundMe also is that, like, what if they end up getting more money than they need? And I've seen this before, too, in extreme, like where someone's looking for, like, uh, $5,000 and it goes viral, and then they end up getting, like, 750000 So what do they do with the rest? And that's, always, that's also been a big criticism of mine where people start to feel good about donating to something where – it just so much exceeds what it needs to. I'm not talking about this one. This one's only like two thousand over what it needs to be. And truthfully, right, the, like the get, like the gas guy in Philly. Right. That, that ended up being a scam. Yeah. The, the the guy at the gas station in in, Philly, in Philadelphia. Right. But I will say that she is pledging that if she does not, if she does not use all the money, or any excess that gets collected compared to what she needs, that she's going to donate it to her friend getting a van. <laughs> Which is kind of weird, but whatever. She's she's basically saying, "I'm not going to keep it. I'm going to." She has some friend that she, she mentioned who it is, and he's trying. He's been trying to get a van for a while. So this is going to go to his van fund. So, uh, provided you're okay with it, defaulting to the guy's van fund if she doesn't spend it all, 
that's that's what will happen to it, and that's what she puts right there on the page. I'm not revealing any secrets. I did find that it was kind of funny, but it, it's better than her just keeping it herself. Like, that's uh, that's what most people do when they get access. They go, oh, sweet. Okay, well, I got more than I need. Okay, well, I'll just pocket it. And that's nice that she is saying I'm not going to benefit from this. Either it's going to go to my legal fund or my buddy will get a, a van that he's always been looking for. Uh, when I can say more, I will. Sometimes you'll hear a little bit more, and then at the end of this, you'll probably hear a lot more. Unfortunately, the legal system is slow. So even if this case meets a relatively quick end, it won't be that quick. So, like, don't expect in two weeks it's all going to be done. There's no chance. There's no chance at all. The legal system is very slow. In fact, I imagine during COVID it's even slower than normal. So we're going to have to wait. Anyway, we're going to uh, move on here to the Fedora Cruise topic. That is something that has been uh, not getting quite as much attention as it probably should. Uh, one reason is that it's not as easy to understand or easy to relate to as uh, some of these other big stories in poker. But nevertheless, it's, it's a very interesting one, and it's one that does raise some eyebrows about playing online poker and who or what you're really up against and uh, you know how easy is online poker to beat if people like Fedor Cruz are, are doing what they have been uh, alleged to have been doing. So uh, we mentioned this last week. Fedor Cruz is uh, a German player who is accused of using real-time assistance which is basically a program that uh, tells you what to do based upon various situations that can come up. It's almost like, think if you could print a gigantic chart of if you have this and your opponents are doing this and the flop is this, then here's the optimal way to play. And think of a chart that's so large it would take like several football fields to print, except it's in your computer. And think if you could consult this chart every time something was happening uh, that the that a solver has already uh, figured out is the optimal play. If you could consult something like that, this would make you very, very difficult to beat. It basically makes you into a bot. So the bot is not operating the computer. It's not actually clicking the buttons. But you're being guided what to do based upon a very, very... Uh, large database of uh, pre-solved hands of what is the optimal uh, thing to do. And uh, there has been a bunch of evidence that has come out recently against a young player named Fedor Cruz, not to be confused with Fedor Holtz, who's a better-known Fedor, also from Germany. Fedor Holtz is not accused of any wrongdoing here, so don't be confused. This is Fedor Cruz. But uh, a, a lot of evidence has come out about this, and uh, it's, it's looked very bad. Fedor Cruz rose through the ranks very quickly from low stakes to high stakes and was crushing the whole way. In fact, he rose through the ranks in such a rapid fashion that people wondered how he was doing it, how he got so good so fast. Usually it's a slower process to move up from being a novice and playing low stakes to becoming a crusher who could be some of the best players. So, uh, when that was happening, it was already uh, raising some eyebrows of how this young player ma managed to do this. And uh, now we have some answers as to how he probably is. Now, 
sites like PokerStars and GG Poker, they have uh, they have ways to detect when people are using real-time assistance software, but uh, there's also ways to get around that detection. And one of the popular ways these days is to have two computers running. And, uh, in fact, it can be impossible to detect if you have a real-time solver on the other computer and you're running GG Poker or PokerStars on the first computer, and then you quickly enter the information of what you're holding, the number of players, the, what position you're in, what the board is, you quickly enter this uh, to that computer and, and the real-time solver gives you the best play. Then you, you're basically a bot. You're not really making your own decisions. And not only is that uh, a huge advantage that's unfair, it is cheating, by following exactly what it says to do, you also take any kind of tilt or emotion or miscalculation out of the way that happens to the human mind. So again, the, the operator of this has to be able to follow it the whole way and not deviate from it because he's tilted or whatever, but provided you've committed, you're just going to follow it the whole way, then you also get the advantages that a bot has in that uh, it's always playing its A game, it doesn't tilt, it doesn't uh, make wrong decisions because it's you know, the, the brain kind of uh, has a moment where it gets confused. None of that. So it's a tremendous advantage if uh, if this stuff has been computed properly. And uh, some evidence has been put forth, and you can see this if you Google Fedora Cruz, K-R-U-S-E, uh, you'll see tons of news stories and threads all about uh, this scandal. And this is not getting as much play as other scandals because, as I said, it's not as simple to understand for the average person, and it's not as exciting. You know, it's it's much more exciting, like the UB scandal, where the, the there were owners of the site that were looking at people's whole cards. That's very very easy for everybody to understand. This whole real time assistance thing uh, that can be confusing, especially for novices who are just uh, casual fans of poker. So for that reason, it's not getting as much attention. But uh, nevertheless, it is growing as far as the notoriety of, of this uh, scandal. And it's, it's a bad thing because, as I said last week, when you're playing online poker, you could be up against real-time solvers because they're not always at the highest stakes. In fact, he is alleged to have used these at lower stakes and eventually moved up through the ranks using this, this uh, tool. Uh, there also can be just outright bots that are basically doing the same thing. There, there's more of a chance those will get caught, but uh, there's outright bots at lower stakes for sure that also sometimes collude with each other. So there's a lot of concern about bots and colluding bots and real-time solvers now in poker, and what's disturbing about the real-time solver is, as I said, it's a very tough thing to detect. Unlike bots, which are running on the same computer where the poker software is running and the good poker software can detect it in some ways, which they won't they won't ever say how they detect it because they don't want to give this away and make it easier for the bots to evade detection. I will tell you that the the software that can detect it, like PokerStars, it is intrusively looking into your computer. You may wonder, can PokerStars see that I'm browsing porn while I'm playing PokerStars? Answer is yes, and they might be. They're probably not recording it anywhere, but yes, they, they can. So 
Keep in mind that uh, any poker site you're running could be doing anything. It could be taking shots of the screen. It could be looking at all the processes you're running. There's a lot of things it can do, and that's just uh, some, a chance you're taking by running any poker site software. Any any software that can detect bots has to be able to look into what your computer's doing. So it's a double-edged sword. The, the better security has against bots, the more intrusive it's getting to your computer. But even with that... If you've got a real-time solver running on the other computer and you're manually entering the data or transferring it in some way that is not detectable to the poker software, then the poker software can't detect it. And it is a human clicking all the buttons. It is a human who is uh, operating everything. So this could be going on, and the people who are crushing you may be using this. Now, that's not to say every time you lose, you can blame it on a real-time solver or a bot. You may just not be that good. Or you may just be unlucky, or maybe both. Or you may just be sitting at games that are too tough for you. Maybe you are good, but you're sitting at games of people who are even better. So you can't blame it on that if you're losing, but then at the same time, you can't sit down in any online poker game and be confident that you're not up against one of these things. And that's disturbing. It's not the first time we've heard of this. It's not the first time it's been thought of. But when you see something like this, you go, oh, crap. This, this is happening. This, this guy, Fedor Cruz, it looks like he was doing it. So anyway, that's all news from last week. But there's some more updates to it this week, and I want to get to that. I've had a lot of complaints about GG Poker. I've never played on there. I can't play on there. As, as an American, I can't play on there. But I have always felt like they're customer hostile. I have felt like they are too harsh on those that they determine are breaking the rules, that they basically don't give a crap of who they screw over, that they are very, very hostile to pros, that they are so selfish and so obsessed with the, quote, poker ecology, which basically means raking as much as possible. The poker ecology is what they mean is a, that everyone has a chance and everybody can survive longer and doesn't bust that fast and that you know, a few people aren't beating everybody. So what that really means is that they want as many people as possible to keep raking until everybody's money just gets raked away. That's what they're looking to do. Now, they're not going to get that done to – they're not going to rake everybody's money away and pay out nothing, but their goal is to collect as much and rake as possible and cash out as little as possible because – as I've mentioned before, an online poker room works differently than a live card room in that an online poker room gets its income from deposits, which live poker rooms don't. Live poker rooms, get, they get their income from the actual rake that drops because in live poker rooms, you buy in for real money, you get chips, and then when you leave the same night, you cash out your chips and get real money back. And the difference between your buy-in and cash-out is what either was kept by the casino in rake or kept by other players in winnings. Or if you leave with more than you bought in for, then you've gotten other players' money, but you've also dropped some to the rake. So they are keeping some of those chips that you and everybody else buy, and that's how the live poker room makes money. So the live poker room doesn't care who buy, how much you buy in for, or how much you cash out. That's not important to them. All they care about is how much gets dropped in rake. Online poker is not the same way. They drop rake also, but it's different because you don't ever cash out of there until you've built up excess money to where you feel comfortable cashing out because you have more money than you really need on the site. 
once in a while, people just cash out everything because they're ready to quit and be done. But usually when you cash out, you still leave money on the site. So their goal is for you never to have enough money to cash out and for deposits to keep rolling in and them to just keep raking off those deposits. So if they just keep getting deposits and they never pay out, then that's the ideal situation. Every payout they make is money they don't get to keep. And that's not the same way live card rooms work because live card rooms always pay out the same day because everybody cashes out and gets their cash the same day. It's a totally different way of doing things. They're both poker games that are raking money, but they're different models as far as how they get to hold the money. One gets to hold the money for a few hours. One gets to hold it possibly indefinitely. So they have a lot more incentive to prevent the cash out players than a live card room does. Live card room just wants action, action, action. Online card room wants to discourage cash-outs as much as they can. And the way to do that is to get rid of the pros who win disproportionately. And GG Poker has been trying this to an extreme. And they found excuses to ban people, excuses to ban people and take people's money. And they say they're trying to create a fair environment and a good poker ecology. It's all a bunch of BS, and we've talked about this before. It's really a war on pros. It's saying we don't like pros because they actually cash out. And we don't like people cashing out. Ideally, we want everybody of the same skill level so where you all just kind of trade money back and forth and rake it all away. And since we can't have exactly everybody at the same skill level, we want them roughly the same skill level. So we don't want you guys who are pros who are way above mostly the other players in skill level taking out a bunch of money from the site. Because every time you have to do a cash out, that comes out of our pockets. So there's like a war on pros. While every other site tolerates pros... GG Poker is openly hostile to them. So uh, I've criticized that before. And in this Fedora Cruz situation, you would think this is right up their alley. Because as I said, they love banning people. They love having a reason to ban pros. And Fedora Cruz played on GG Poker. He also played on Poker Stars. But you would think that this is something that they would love because they can ban a winning pro and be completely justified in doing so. Unlike other bans that I have talked about with GG Poker, which I felt were unjustified, or even where the ban was justified, they would confiscate someone's money, and I felt it wasn't justified. With Fedora Cruz, I will say that I'm satisfied there is uh, enough information here to where the ban and confiscation were justified. So why am I criticizing GG Poker then? Well, Fedora Cruz was more than just a player on GG Poker, and this has been getting some attention. Now, it is not GG Poker's fault if they associate themselves with some poker pro, and then it turns out that poker pro is a bad guy. There's only so much they can know, and also they are not responsible if someone on their roster does something bad. I understand that. There's only so much they can control. They're not watching everybody at every moment, uh, nor have they done an exhaustive background check. There's only so much you can expect them to do. So that's not my criticism here. However, it's the way they are handling this which is very sketchy. So uh, there has been some rumor that uh, Fedor Cruz was actually a GG Poker Pro of some sort and that they are distancing themselves from this. Now, he wasn't a direct sponsored pro like Daniel Negreanu, who's the face of the site, and Elky, who's another face of the site. Like, he wasn't to that level. He wasn't uh, one of their pros that you have that they promote with a little cartoon picture of them. But... They have other positions that are sponsored on there, 
And in this case, it was said that Fedor Cruz was an influencer. That is somebody who has uh, a social media presence that uh, is promoting GG Poker while on their social media. And someone who's got a large following on social media, this can be useful for any company, not just a poker company, but for any company. In fact, I'm sure you've heard about uh, Instagram influencers, for example, who make a lot of money just to have like a product sitting in the background as they take pictures. And it's, it's amazing what some of these influencers get once they get popular enough and the type of sponsorship dollars they receive just by casually putting certain products in or, or casually talking about using certain products. So uh, GG Poker apparently employs influencers and they give them a yellow name tag as opposed to a white name tag that regular players have. Now, colored name tags are actually uh, very common on many sites, not just poker sites, but uh, even on Poker Fraud Alert, if you go take a look in the Poker Fraud Alert forum, you will see my screen name, Dan Druff, is in red while everybody else's is in blue. And that's because I'm the owner, and I wanted to put myself in a different color. Not because I'm more important than anybody, but just to make it clear that this is the owner of the site posting. So people notice that people who aren't that familiar with the site see something from a different color, and they go, oh, okay, that's the owner. It actually says uh, owner under my name tag, but that's to make it more obvious to everybody that I'm the owner. Uh, 2 plus 2 has the same mechanism. Uh, I also have a few custom name tags for other people who are significant on the site, uh, like uh, Brandon has one. Brandon actually chose one that is the uh, same color of the Florida Marlins. Sorry, the Miami Marlins. Uh, to me, they're still the Florida Marlins, but uh, the Miami Marlins, who somehow made the second round of the playoffs, which is baffling to me. But nonetheless, he chose that color. And uh, Trader Ruski, if you'd like a color, you can have one. You've definitely earned it. I know you don't post much on the forum, but uh, you can you can have a color also if you want. So anybody who is uh, uh, a prominent figure on Poker Fraud Alert, uh, I'll give colors. I actually should probably hand out some more. You know, I, I would also give them to very regular posters if they wanted that. Because I like recognizing people for their contributions, whether it's to radio or to, to the forum. But anyway, uh, GG Poker does the same thing, which is fine. Again, if I were to criticize that, I'd have to criticize myself for doing the same. But Fedor Cruz was yellow. Well, Patrick Leonard, who's a successful poker pro, he's uh, at Pads Poker, P-A-D-S Poker, Patrick Leonard. Uh, he's also a uh, party poker pro. Uh, Patrick Leonard has been very active in calling out the whole Fedor Cruz thing, and he was aware of it before it was made public, but he's been one of the lead figures in, in calling this out on social media. This is what uh, Patrick Leonard tweeted out on September 30th. Very, very interesting twist in the Fedora Cruz case. A lot of people said that it should be impossible for an ambassador to, to be an ambassador and cheat. I don't quite know what that means. <laughs> Nothing's impossible. It just means you're ambassador, you can cheat. But I, th I think he's trying to say that uh, uh, people are saying that, that that they shouldn't be hiring ambassadors who would be cheating, which, I mean, they don't know if it's going to happen, so I, I don't quite agree with that. But let's go on. News today, it was just a software feature, and he was never connected or an ambassador, referring to Fedor Cruz on GG Poker. Changes things a lot, if true. Why not say this before? And then he showed a screenshot. So some guy named Abra was talking to a rep of GG Poker. So Abra said, Fedor Cruz was a GG influencer highlighted in yellow text. And then GG Poker Evan, some representative of GG Poker, wrote, absolutely no official connection at all. 
Lots of names have that yellow influencer tag, which changes by the week. It's merely a software feature, really. So it's, you're, you're not associated with a site if you get that special yellow tag. It's just a software feature. <laughs> well, I mean, yes, it's a feature of the software. It could not change your color if it was not written in the software to do so. My red name on Poker Fraud Alert is a software feature. That doesn't mean I'm not the owner. That just means it's a software feature that makes my name red as opposed to others who are not red. So that's a stupid thing to say. But what is this about? He has a name that uh, that the yellow influencer tag changes by the week, and there's no official connection at all. That's really, really a shady thing to say. So... Uh, is that true? Is it possibly true that they're just constantly handing out these yellow tags and taking them back away, and it's no big deal? That maybe one week someone's an influencer, the next week someone else is an influencer. Now, that wouldn't make any sense. Like, why would they change who's an influencer week to week? So what, if you if you don't get on uh, Twitch as often, they take it away from you? Like, I don't understand how you're the influencer of the week. And then they've never had a program like that, to my knowledge. Like, be the GG Poker Influencer of the Week. I, there's nothing like that, to my knowledge. So that's a very weird thing for Evan to say. Uh, so then uh, people were questioning this. People were, of course, saying, wait a minute, <laughs> uh, this doesn't make any sense. And Patrick Leonard saying this doesn't make any sense and he's also saying why at this point on september 30th like two weeks into this whole thing why is gg poker coming out just now saying he's not officially connected he's not an influencer it was just he just happened to have a a a tag that he temporarily had it's just a software feature why why come out with this weeks later and only when someone asked about it so what do you think the answer is that they gave Trader Risky, what what answer? What would be a good answer at this point from GG Poker? What, whether it's whether you're BSing or not, what would be a good answer to give at this point if people are asking why are you coming out two weeks into this uh, and saying that he has no connection to it? I would say that you know we have the big tournament going on. We're very busy with COVID. Something that that direction. I don't know. Right. There's not much you could say. But something like that. There's something like, uh, sorry, we meant to say this before, but uh, uh, it slipped our mind to mention this. But yeah, he's he's not associated with us. No. Uh, here's here's what they wrote. This couldn't be much of a worse response. This is in response to Patrick Leonard. They wrote, "We didn't think anybody was dumb enough to make that association until today." <laughs> Everybody's stupid. They're calling everybody dumb. We didn't think anybody was dumb enough to make that association until today. What association? That's a, you're coloring his name. Everybody else is white on GG Poker. You make his name tag yellow, and supposedly everybody who notices that is dumb to think that maybe he has some association with the site. They're not just guessing. They're seeing that you gave him a name tag that is a different color. So Patrick Leonard couldn't believe this. He wrote, seriously? With about 10 question marks. What an incredibly short-sighted tweet. And then he also tweeted to Fedor Holtz and Daniel Negreanu, who are both uh, prominent named pros on that site. Really, guys? Like, basically saying, is this what you want to be associated with here? I mean, can you imagine calling your customers dumb? And the customers were right to question this. It's not like they're saying something stupid. The, the, the stupid statement's actually coming from GG Poker here. 
the, the customers like Patrick Leonard, they're very reasonable to point out how this is uh, very questionable and, and why wouldn't they have said this for two weeks. But basically, GD Poker is saying, yeah, it should be obvious that uh, a yellow name tag doesn't mean he's associated with us. We didn't think anyone was dumb enough to think that meant it. What a stupid thing to say. Even if the customers are being dumb, which they're not, you don't write that on your Twitter. This is the official GG Poker. That's unbelievable. This is, you can still see it. If you go to the GG Poker Twitter account, you can see this on the official GG Poker. It's called GG Poker Official is the name of the Twitter account. Go look at the September 30th tweet. They, they wrote this. We actually didn't think anybody was dumb enough to make that association until today. This is the third biggest poker site in the world, everybody. And, and this is, they're actually calling their players dumb for thinking that a guy with a yellow name tag is associated. Just, you know, so what if everybody has yellow on there except a few people? I mean, everybody has white on there except a few people, not yellow. So Fedor Cruz was one of the few people with yellow on there, and we're dumb to think that that might mean he has an association with the site. But let's go with it. Let's go with it. We're dumb, okay? I'm dumb. Trotorowski's dumb. Patrick Leonard is dumb. All the other people who follow GG Poker are dumb. We're all dumb, okay? GG Poker's smart. We're dumb. So let's let's go with that assumption. We're dumb. We don't know what we're talking about. Is it possible we just made a mistake that this is just something they give to people on a weekly basis and we're dumb to think otherwise? Well, let's take a look at something that someone found on Twitter, an announcement about uh, an event. Following the above event is ring event number eight, HR Championship 10 million guaranteed. I don't know what that is, but it's not important. It offers the largest guarantee of all WS. Uh, World Series of Poker Circuit events coming in at a whopping $10 million. So it's some kind of ring event, WSOP ring event. To take part, the buy-in is just as high as $25,000. It's kind of a weird way to put it. It's just as high as $25,000. I think they mean the buy-in is uh, is is high, $25,000. Registration has increased to 57 players. Among them are GG Poker ambassadors Fedora Holtz, Bryn Kenny, Bertrand Elke Grasbelier, and Fedor Cruz. Oh, wait a minute. GG Poker Ambassadors, Fedor Holtz, Bryn Kenny, Elke, and Fedor Cruz. Well, that should answer that. Who's dumb now? They're calling him a GG Poker Ambassador in this press release in May. It also makes sure to mention that there are, quote, other players in this who presumably are not GG Poker Ambassadors. Other players are ring winners, the Mad Queen, and uh, Chi Jen Chu, a.k.a. Petty Fox. Also in the lineup are Kristen Bicknell. Game gets underway on May 18th at 2 p.m. Hong Kong time or whatever. I think that's what's HKT, whatever. I, I, bottom line, this was on May 18th, and they identified GG Poker Ambassadors Fedor Holtz, Bryn Kenny, Elke, and Fedor Cruz. And those other three are definitely ambassadors. They're talking about who's in that field for 25K with a 10 million guarantee. How do they explain that one? We're, we're dumb? Is that the answer to this one too? We're misreading it. We're dumb. We don't know how to read. By the way, there's also a screenshot shown in that uh, registration. They're showing the registration with 57 players with 50,000 starting chips each. And it's showing everybody with white names except for, guess, Bryn Kenny, Fedor Hulse, Elke and Fedor Cruz. Hmm, all of them are in yellow. Yellow. Now, keep in mind, Brent Kenny, Fedor Hulse, and Elke are also in yellow. It's not even like Fedor Cruz is in yellow and they're in red or something. They're all in yellow, those four, in May. Hmm. 
Does that sound like a guy who doesn't have any official association? Like, why not just be honest about it? If he was officially associated, just say, okay, we we hired him as a site pro. He has done some things that uh, we don't approve of. We have removed him. We apologize that uh, he was a site pro here. Uh, we were totally unaware of, of the behavior that he's being accused of. Uh, and uh, that's that. You know, some, some guy, they can come up with a very reasonable statement. Yeah, maybe a few people will say this looks bad that the guy was a site pro and ended up doing this. But people will understand. GG Poker can't take responsibility for the behavior of every single one of their pros. What, what they can do is they can do the right thing and drop them when they behave in a bad way. But this happens all the time. Look at, at Subway with, with Jared from Subway when he turned out to be a pedophile. Uh, people are still going to Subway. They understand that Subway didn't realize that Jared was a pedophile. And as soon as that news came out, Subway dropped him, and uh, that pretty much uh, got Subway out of it. Subway didn't love that that happened, but uh, as long as you act quickly and drop brand ambassadors who behave badly, then the public generally forgives you. The public does not forgive you when you pretend like that person was never associated with you. Can you imagine if Subway said, uh, what, Jared who? No, 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 it was a different Jared who looked just like him that happens to have the same name. Was Not the same guy, not the same child molester, sorry. Like, that would have killed them. They wouldn't even have thought of doing that. But for some reason, GG Poker thinks we're, we're dumb enough. They think we're all dumb. They were going to buy this. Then there's also... Are some, they a public company? I'm sorry, Jeff. Are they a public company or no? I'm not sure. I never looked into that. I, they kind of came out that of nowhere. That would be interesting. Like, if they're public, can they even make these irresponsible statements? Yeah, it's, I don't know. I mean, they're they're not located in the U.S., but... I, I don't know. I don't know much about who owns them or what their background is. They kind of grew out of nowhere. Here's a, a statement from their own Twitter, which you can check from September 5th, in case you're wondering. Maybe the yellow designation changed since May, and I'll tell you, it looks like it has. But keep in mind, Fedor Cruz was yellow and called a brand ambassadors in uh, May 2020, but it looks like it's on September 5th, which obviously was less than a month ago, and only 25 days before that tweet they made calling everyone dumb, they very specifically said what each color means. I guess they have several colors now. It says, WSOP event 82, the 1050 beat the pros bounty, starts in 10 minutes. Every player has a bounty on them, but if you knock out a pro in blue, influencer in yellow, or streamer in purple... You win entry into a 10K free roll on September 12th. Well, okay, seems pretty clear to me. If you are in yellow, you are an influencer. That's that's it. it, it they, they're not saying the influencer of the week. They're saying an influencer in yellow. So not only was he, he called a GG Poker ambassador in May, but he had the yellow influencer tag still in September. So I, I think it's pretty obvious here that he was either an ambassador or an ambassador influencer, whatever the hell he was, he was representing them in some sort of paid capacity. And then he did bad things. And then uh, they got rid of him. That's what it looks like to me. And that's fine. This happens all the time with ambassadors for companies. And then they distance themselves and they apologize and they drop the person and they move on. Sometimes they just drop him and say nothing. Depends on the situation, depends on what the company wants to do. People understand. 
I would not hold it against GG Poker that they had him as an ambassador at one point. But instead, they deny it, and if you dare question them, they call you dumb. They actually call you dumb on their own Twitter. I guess it's appropriate that WSOP partners with them because the WSOP has been known for insulting people on their own Twitter account, on the official WSOP Twitter account. There's been some ridiculous things coming from that account, which is why I've always said that since they've hired Kev Kevmath, they should just let him control the account all the time. They should hire him not just to work during the World Series. They should have him as the person in tr- control of that account for the entire year because I guarantee Kevmath is not going to insult people. Kevmath is a very, very mild-mannered guy. I could never see him doing that. So they should leave him in control. Then there would be no insults or anything else inappropriate from the WSOP account. So the WSOP account has said dumb or uh, insulting things in the past to people. But this is arguably worse than anything WSOP wrote because this is about everybody. This isn't like about them getting mad at one person. This is about saying anybody who believes this is dumb. Anybody who believes what appears to be the truth is dumb. Can you imagine? From, the, from their own account. Talk about hostility to their own players. I mean, they, they are really, really player hostile. They, are, they have a tremendous amount of contempt for poker pros and their own customers in general. They, they basically want to control the entire conversation. They, they want you to not be a good player, not be a winner, and not question anything they say. And if you do, you're dumb. You're bad. Remember the, the description of the bad pro, the good pro, and the uh, the medium pro, whatever the stupid terminology was. Uh, like They've made it very clear that they're hostile to a lot of their customer base, and that's very bad. Now, do I think they cheat people? Well, other than those BS confiscations, no. I think like if, if that doesn't happen to you, I don't think the site cheats you. I think they pay out. I don't think the site's a scam. I don't think it's another lock poker. So I'm not worried about that. I think if you win and they don't accuse you of bum hunting, they're going to pay you. But I I have a lot of issues with the way that things run, especially they have this contempt and arrogance going on over there. They really don't seem to like their customers, and that's not good. It is not good when they feel like it's a war between them and their customers and the winning players on the site. It's just you don't want the site seeing you that way. Now, Bovada, which I know is... Trader Ruski's favorite site nowadays, they have long also had contempt for pros. But Bovada only goes so far. Bovada does not find excuses to uh, not cash you out. Bovada does not uh, uh, find flimsy excuses to ban you. Bovada just has certain uh, obsessions. And then they're also pretty bad at uh, fixing things that uh, occur that are out of the ordinary. And, and that's what happened to Trey Ruski, and, and they screwed him. And I, I understand why Trey Ruski's right, bad. Right, because that's where they make the extra money, because they just steal those extra tickets to take money from the tournaments to take food really right out of the mouths of poker players. Yeah, believe it or not, I'm not even sure if it's malicious. I think it's like it's just like stupidity. It's like, and I'm not making defense to them. I'm saying that they've got they've got such a rigid idea of what's right and wrong over there that uh, anything that slightly deviates from it that requires some thought, like some common sense, what's the right thing to do, they completely go to pieces and make the wrong decision. And then, and often that screws players. And I think that's what happened to you. They just uh, they made a terrible decision, and nobody would listen to common sense, and just this is the way they handle a tough luck, and uh, they, they won't even listen to you, explain it to them very logically and clearly that they're ripping people off, which they were. 
So, uh, and, and I understand why Trade Risky's mad. Well, Right, that was a drop, but think about like how they make their financial projections for their business, right? And they're gonna make X amount of money, players go through, they make X amount on Ray, and that's how they, right? So now they have this whole pot of all this extra money they're bringing in that they didn't earn from Ray. So how do they explain? You know what I'm saying? Like on the, I don't think they even think maybe that much. Somebody's I, I, no, I just, I, I just it's showing up somewhere. I think it just shows up, and yeah, money. I don't, I don't think they're, they're, I don't think they're that introspective. It's, it's just there, and they have it, and I don't think there's that. Much. That's the problem. There's like, I'll give you another example of how dumb they are. There, there was this um, obvious bug that was. Uh, um, Costing me the basically the big blind, which in my thirty sixty game is thirty dollars. It's frustrating. Like it's not huge money, but it's not, yeah, thirty dollars isn't like a dollar. It's, it's something where you you lose it due to, due to a software bug. You get annoyed. And I'm not talking about like a disconnect or a crash, like an obvious bug that just uh, um, basically would uh, it would force you to post and then wouldn't uh, and then would deal you out of the hand. It would deal you out until until the next big blind. So. I, I would bring this up to them. I would show them the smoking gun proof, and they'd say, "No, this is how it operates. You know, this is standard." I go, "It's not standard." And I, I would explain very clearly why it's not standard and the exact bug, and I'd show them screenshots, and I'd, I'd say, "Please give this to your development team." No, we're not going to do that because it's uh, it's standard. Like they, I could not convince them it was standard, and the only reason the conversation ended is because, as a quote, one-time courtesy, they gave me the money back. But. It's not even like they said, well, you know, we'll look into it. They, they basically told me, no, this is fine. This is normal. No, we're not considering it just because uh, uh, you're a regular customer here. We'll give you back this money. And, and so I, I wasn't – doing you a favor. Right, and they, they won't even look into fixing it. And, I, like, and that's how they behave with a lot of things. And it, it's so I, – I, I had this discussion with Bo, about Bovada. I don't want to go too much of a tangent about Bovada, but I actually had a friend uh, contact me recently – about uh, Bovada payouts. He had run up a lot of money on there, and uh, he had never done that before. He's had a, an account for a long time, but he'd never run up the type of money he had uh, recently. So he, this friend was very concerned that the amount of money that he ran up, that they're going to find a reason to not pay him. And I said, no, they won't. They'll pay you. And he says, what? No, I've seen every site that, that you know, they always try to throw up hurdles. I go, no, they won't. He goes, really? I, I didn't. It's hard for me to believe. I said, no, they, they, they won't. He says, well, how come I've heard bad stories about Bovada? I said, well, because there are some bad stories about Bovada, but they have certain idiosyncrasies and certain obsessions you need to know about. And beyond that, they actually don't really uh, – they don't do anything else that's bad. So like there's – so as far as if you run up a lot of money and cash it out, they're not going to try to interfere. They're not going to try to stop you. They're not going to say, hmm, you have 100K on the site. Let's try to find a way to take it. They, they don't think that way. A lot of other sites think that way. Bovada does not. But they have some other obsessions. They have an obsession with what they call bonus abuse. They have an obsession with sports multi-accounting that you don't, uh, that you're not letting someone on your account that was, that had their limits lowered for the sports book. They have an obsession with that. They have an obsession with, uh, being totally being, like, like, they're very rigid regarding their rules and regarding, uh, anything you report to them is abnormal. They can't think outside the box. They can't, think logically they can't make exceptions very easily they're very very bad at that so like that's where they suck and that's how trader risky got screwed and i've been screwed in a few cases like and if their payment processor screws you that's another one like if depositing or cashing out they have they have payment processors that will sometimes skim 
not large amounts of money, but they'll scam you know, 50 bucks from you. And if you complain, they give you a big fat middle finger. Other sites, like Bet Online, their processor did the same skimming to me. I called Bet Online. They said, "Can you send a screenshot of the, your bank?" I did. Okay, here you go. Here's the money back in your account. No questions asked. Super fast. You know, thumbs up to Bet Online there. Uh, Bovada, they they make every excuse in the book and won't pay you. They won't they won't make it right for you. Even if you can prove you can give them the smoking gun proof, they won't make it right. So like, these are the weird obsessions they have there at Bovada that screw you. That are customer unfriendly. And in general, if you're a pro, they, they're not going to push you off and they're never going to ban you. But if you say you're leaving, they're like, okay, bye. It's, it's kind of like uh, there, there's a family friend that we had. This is a couple like my parents' age, uh, maybe 30 years ago. And um, the husband was, was pretty unhappy in that marriage. And... Uh, the wife started making all these demands of him, and he just didn't give in to any of them. So she figured, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to file for divorce just to scare him and then take it back, and then it's going to really scare him into shape. So she serves it with divorce papers, and he couldn't have been happier. He's like, okay, bye. Good idea. Let's divorce. So that, that's exactly what Bovada would say if a player like me went to them. It's like, if you don't make this right for me, I'm going to quit. Like, okay. You mean a guy who's been playing on here for many years and constantly cashes out? Yeah, okay, goodbye. See ya. So they're, they're not player-friendly at all to pros. But I will say this for Bovada, that they aren't actively trying to find ways to get rid of me or steal my money. Provided you know, the little amounts get stolen, like when my cash out gets skimmed by 80 bucks, but uh, or like when you run into a situation like Trader Ruski ran into, but uh, they don't look for ways like GG Poker to throw off the pros and ban them and take their money. There's just such hostility from GG Poker to their players. And this is the worst I've seen of it of any site. This is not the worst poker site ever because they pay, provided you don't get banned. But like a, it's not a non-paying poker site. That's the worst you can have. The very worst you can have is a poker site that just simply won't pay you. That's worse than a cheating site. The very worst is a non-paying site. Second worst is a cheating site. Uh, third worst is a site that slow pays. Uh, and I'm talking about active sites, not dead sites with no action. Uh, fourth worst is a site that uh, tries to find excuses. Or Fourth, I, sh- I should say, is probably an apathetic site, one that lets uh, people cheat and bot on their and do nothing about it. And, and fifth worst is a site that's hostile towards its customers. But as far as Customer hostile sites, this is the worst I've seen. So that puts an extra dagger in the back here with this Fedor Cruz thing, which otherwise I don't blame them for. Now, in related news, GG Poker has taken some action and banned some players who have been doing what Fedor is accused of doing. And they actually put a press release up on their own site about this. So on uh, ggpoker.com is the following statement. At GG Poker, we firmly believe poker to be a battle of wits that is meant to be experienced without the use of any real-time assistance whatsoever. To this end, we were among the first to prohibit heads-up displays, as they refer to as HUDs, and we have been quick to ban players in the past that were using prohibited software. Okay, great. I agree with all of that. Let's go on. 
while there were while there will always be deceitful individuals trying to cheat the game and steal from their fellow players, our security team continues to be on the cutting edge with regards to detection and protection and maintains a zero tolerance policy to real time assistance. Recently, a high profile RTA, that is real time assistance case, was brought to light. We have rededicated our efforts to combating RTA and have swiftly adopted enhanced RTA detection methods and improved our internal processes for handling these cheaters. By the way, the high-profile case is the Fedora Cruz one. Although there are public concerns that RTA is an imminent threat to the status quo, that it's undetectable, that is patently false. Our security team is fully aware of the different ways RTA is being used, and we want to emphasize that RTA is detectable. Now let's stop for a second. How could they detect it if people are manually entering the information on a second computer. How could they possibly detect it? Do they, do they turn on people's webcams without them knowing and watch them going over to another computer? No. So how could they do it? Well, one way is if people report suspected users of RTA and then they look at their stats, and if the stats of the person's play are very similar to what the stats would be of someone who is using a real-time solver because they do have certain patterns to them, then they can assume they're using one and ban them. So I assume that's what they're doing. They also may just be scanning for people who have stats similar to uh, real-time assistance. Through our upgraded detection methods, we have discovered a small group of RTA users on GG. We have taken immediate action on those accounts as we continue to develop our processes. The measures we have taken are commensurate to the frequency and severity of RTA use. 13 accounts have been banned and $1.175 million have been confiscated, which will be returned to the players. 27 accounts have been banned with no confiscation. 40 accounts have been issued warnings. Okay, let's stop here. I don't understand all this. I mean, okay, the ones you banned and took their money, provided you're sure that you got it right, that they were using these RTA uh, methods to cheat, great, I agree. Ban them and take their money and give it back to the players. As long as there's no false positives, as long as you're sure you're getting it right, then yes, ban them, take their money, give it back. I'm always pro-banning of cheaters. I'm always pro-refunding cheating uh, cheaters' money back to those who were cheated. But what's up with the 27 that were banned with no confiscation? Basically, you're banned, but you can cash out. Why? There shouldn't be a middle ground. Either you have been cheating and we're taking your money, and you were banning you, or you have not been cheating. So why have 27 been banned? Why have they done enough to be banned, but not enough to have their money taken? And then why were 40 given warnings, which is half of them? They took action on 80 accounts. Half of those got warnings and could still play. Why? It should be either you've done it or you can't. Now, maybe what they really mean is that 40 of the 80, they're not sure. And they sent them a warning saying, we think you might be using this software. If you are, we're going to take your money and ban your account. So stop it if you are. Maybe that's what they mean. And they don't want to admit that this is not a great process and that there's some they're not sure about. Otherwise, But they should be more clear about this. They should say that 40 suspected but not proven RTA accounts have been warned. That would be more reasonable and make people feel better. I'm just guessing here. Otherwise, what they say the severity of use. I don't care how severe it is. If, if people are using these and it's very clear that they should not be using these, then ban them. I have a feeling what they're doing is they're, they're looking how, how many hands people are doing with these RTAs and how much they've been winning. 
So someone's just uh, done it a, a little bit and won a little bit of money, or maybe even lost, uh, they're letting it slide and letting them be warned. But I think that's a mistake. I think once you see people are using these things and, and uh, it's against the terms, just take it. And no one's going to be sympathetic to these people. Like, can you imagine one of these people banned for using this shows up on a poker forum and says, you know, yeah, I was using one of the real-time solvers to play, and uh, I didn't know that it was against the rules, and they took my money. You know, can you guys, you know, can you guys help me out and convince GG? And everyone would say, get the hell out of here, cheater. Nobody would be sympathetic towards someone who's using one of these things to get their money banned. Nobody. Like, whenever someone gets banned for botting and their money taken, if they admit they were botting, that's it. Discussion over. I know very few people in poker that would say, if you're caught using a bot or something emulating a bot, that you should get your money. I think it's pretty universally agreed that if you use any kind of real-time assistance telling you what to do in hands, where, a, where a, uh, an automated program tells you how to play poker, and then you do that and win money, that you should get that confiscated. So, so why are half the people getting warnings? I don't get that. Moving on. It says, massive increases in data analysis are a big part of our new process. We want to emphasize another critical factor. Our team deeply analyzes poker hands based upon our proprietary algorithms with the assistance of some of the brightest poker minds. I, I want to stop here. The word poker is capitalized, and that bothers me. Why? Why is poker capitalized? Poker should be lowercase. Why, why is poker capitalized? I mean, it doesn't change the statement. It's just tilting to read this. Poker is not capitalized. It's, it's a lowercase. It's not a proper noun. Just a game. Be like me writing about baseball. And every time I talk about baseball, it's uh, capitalized. So I went to the capitalized baseball game today. And and I was in the stands, and uh, a baseball got fouled away, and I caught it. And every time I'm putting a capital B on baseball, you get pissed off reading that. I'm not trying to be the grammar Nazi here, but it's just stupid to be in an official statement like that. Anyway, they write, their insights and contributions continually improve our algorithms. Through this process, we can quickly establish whether GTO, that's Game Theory Optimal, poker play has occurred. Once we've made this determination, we look at a variety of other factors to determine whether said GTO play involved the use of an RTA. So it's basically what I said there. They're looking to see if someone's basically playing perfectly Game Theory Optimal. And then... They take a look, okay, how are they accomplishing this? If it really looks like they're doing it because software is assisting them, then they're gone. In addition to our technical enhancements, we're making it known to RTA cheaters that GG is no place for them. Henceforth, any cheaters found using RTA to gain an advantage will be faced with the strictest measures, permanent ban and confiscation of funds. Well, okay, but what about the ones who did it already? Who's going to argue with that? I don't get it. Why are they getting a pass here? This has been a known cheating method for a long time. People in the 2000s got banned for botting. That's been very accepted by the poker community. If you bot, you are a cheater, and your money will get taken from you if you are caught. Nobody questions that. So it's so weird. They will ban you and take your money if you're a bum hunter, but they won't take your money in some cases, in half the cases, if you're using real-time assistance bot-like software. Half the people just get a warning. doesn't make any sense to me. Further to our cause, we have implemented a community-focused reporting system to expedite the removal of cheaters. Players are now able to report any suspicious activity during gameplay, streamlining the reporting process. Can you imagine how this is going to be abused? 
Every time someone takes a bad beat, they're going to report it. Can you imagine how many rigtards are going to report this? I get emails. I don't even publish these, but because the site is called Poker Fraud Alert, some people believe that, like, I'm the poker police and I get weird people writing me emails about bad beats they take on certain sites and they're convinced some site is rigged and they don't provide any kind of evidence or anything compelling. It's just kind of like, uh, you know, this site's uh, rigged. And it's so weird, some of these emails I get. I don't even post them. I don't want to humiliate these people. I assume these are just losing players. That is great content, though, Drop. That could be like a whole show around that. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> Maybe I should post them. I've just been ignoring them. But but I, I get emails sometimes, and I'm not even, I don't even position myself as like a place you should go to report this. I say you can come and, and uh, report uh, if you think something's been done wrong to you uh, by either an individual or a site, but I don't posture myself as someone who should be receiving reports like this, that a poker site is rigged. But anyway, I, even I get those. Can you imagine they, they provide people an official mechanism to report cheaters? Every time somebody like gets it all in against someone way behind who gets their runner runner, they go, oh, it's a cheater. I'm reporting it. I could totally see they're going to be inundated with reports. I think that's a mistake. A report can be submitted during play via the hand history page. Oh, that's going to get so abused. Or anytime via PokerCraft. I don't know what that is. These reports will allow us to act more quickly against suspected RD, RTA and other cheaters and will provide better context for us to base our investigations on. You know, if they're smart, I don't know if they've done it this way. If I were setting this up, the report button, I would have people select a uh, reason they're reporting and have one of the reasons – I believe this is rigged, or I believe the, the player has cracked the random number generator, something like that. Uh, so this way I can just ignore them. I can just blanket ignore all the, all the complaints like that. And then if they select the one I believe they're using a real-time software program to help them, then I'd look more carefully. You're going to have so many false positives here, or false reports. I, I think that would be useless. You're going to get so many they're not good reports. I would think that... This would be something that would be better done if they were to contact their more active high-limit players and mid-limit players who are winners and say, hey, guys, just want to let you know, here's an email address to report any suspicious activity. That's totally what I would do. I'd make a, I'd make a list of the people I could trust to probably not panic every time they get a bad beat and to intelligently report to me something they think is wrong, and I would email them and give them the address privately. Oh, I, I actually – see, I didn't see this before. I actually see the report page. This is funny. So it's a page that says, Fair Play Report. Should you report, should you experience or observe any offensive or fraudulent activity on GG Poker, please file a report here. Once a report has been filed, our security team will commence an investigation as soon as possible. Report feature is available only for hands played in the last 30 days. Who are you reporting? And then you can put like check marks on who is in the hand. What happened? Oh, there is a drop down. I can't see what the drop down is. There's collusion, and then there's other ones that I can't see. So may, maybe there is something like I think site is rigged. <laughs> that, that would encourage people to think maybe the site is rigged. So, But, like, I, they would be smart to separate into categories to where they can, like, easily ignore one of them. Okay, Trade Risky's back. So, okay, yeah. so there is I, – I do get to see the little graphic there. I, I wish I could see the different categories, though. We realize that these are merely the first steps in our quest to free online poker from RTA. 
GGPN will continue to fight to provide a fair and enjoyable experience at our poker tables. We will use all resources at our disposal to rid our network of undesirable players. We forge on, knowing we have the poker community's full support, and we will spare no effort in tackling RTA as well as other cheating methods. Please note that we do not intend on releasing detailed investigative reports going forward unless circumstances dramatically change and it is warranted. That is the statement from them. And, I mean, it's good they're doing this, but I don't know why they didn't ban all 80 and take their money, why they only took 13 people's money out of the 80, and why they let 40 of them continuing to play on the network. That doesn't make any sense to me. But a lot of things GG Poker does doesn't make any sense to me. It kind of sucks when that is one of the biggest sites, and they're behaving in such an erratic fashion. I don't know what it is with Negranu. He goes he goes from one controversial site to the next. He's, he's with post-Esai Scheinberg uh, Poker Stars, which does a number of crappy things like the Supernova Elite scandal. And then he moves to GG Poker, which is now doing other things that are not uh, very community or player-friendly. And then he's got to kind of deal with it and defend them. I know he gets a lot of money. And I know a lot of people would do the same in his shoes. But still, it's uh, it's not a good position to be in. If I were as big of a name as Daniel Negreanu is, and I was invited to be the face of a site like GG Poker, uh, I would agree, but I would want uh, some assurances in the way they're going to treat players. And if they could not provide those to me, I actually wouldn't accept the money. And I'd say I can't do it. I wouldn't expect perfection. And, of course, if they were to behave badly, I would know that my lips are sealed. Because you can't take the money to represent a site like this and then go bash them. That's not how it works. You may wish that's how it works, but that's not how it works. Once Once you're a spokesman, you have to basically toe the company line, even if you don't agree with some things they're doing. So you you are kind of selling your soul to them in a way, and you hope that the ones you're selling your soul to are are good and not bad. You hope you're not selling your soul to the devil. So you got to be careful when you become the face of a site, especially the main face of the site, that you're going to be able to hold your head up high when they're acting in a certain fashion and you're not allowed to condemn it. And in fact, uh, people will ask you for your comment, you can't say anything, or you're expected to defend them. So what I would do in Negreanu's shoes, I know when he joined them, the, these scandals hadn't been taking place yet. But I still would have asked them, like, uh, you know, what's your stance on this? What's your stance on that? And I'd make sure that they understood that you know, what my position is on these things and that uh, I'd want them to assure me that certain things are not going to happen over there. And I may even have it in my contract like i can be released from the i can release myself from the contract if a b and c occurs now they could also give me a big fat middle finger then and go to some other poker pro and that's also what you risk is if you're too difficult they may not want to hire you and daniel was dropped by poker stars and he was looking for a new sponsor and he makes a lot of money from this 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 is a big deal not that daniel's broke but this is he gets a, a nice income stream with this for basically not doing very much so it's a sweet deal and I'm not going to sit on my high horse and say, oh, I would never take a sponsorship like this unless the site is absolutely perfect. I don't care. I'm not taking a million bucks a year. I don't know if that's what he's getting, but I'm just throwing that out there. Like, 
if you're getting a large sum of money per year just to be the face of the site and you don't have to do that much real work to get the money, it's very hard to say no. It's a little easier to say no if the site is outright terrible. They're outright thieves or something like that, like like lock poker back in the day. But something like GG poker, which are not outright thieves, uh, especially at the time he took the, the contract, but they're still not thieves. They just engage, in my opinion, some unethical behavior. But you, you have to know when you're signing on to that that it's going to reflect upon you how they behave and that there's no regulation that is guiding them. It's not like being a WSOP.com pro where you have the excuse, look, it's a regulated site. If you've got an issue on how they're behaving, uh, you should take it up with the regulators. That's You can say that in a nice way. You can say that uh, when I signed on to be a pro, I, I assumed uh, you know, that they are going by the, the regulations that the state set up for them and that if there's something you're, they're doing that you don't agree with that you think should, is against the regulations, you should uh, you know, take it up with the regulators and that this is not my area to uh, get involved with. That's why I signed on to a regulated site. Like, uh, that, that's, that would be a, a good answer. But some like GG Poker, they just do what they want. Poker stars, they just do what they want. I don't think uh, Negreanu has said a whole lot about this. I think he's learned somewhat from what happened to him with Poker Stars. Negreanu's reputation has really declined heavily over the last five years. He went from someone that just about everybody liked to a very mixed reputation. There's a number of people that still really like him and a lot of people that really don't like him. And I didn't used to see that. A lot of that is thanks to Doug Polk and all the attacks from Doug Polk, but not all of Doug Polk's attacks were incorrect. Like, a lot of them had a legitimate basis to it. Some of them were exaggerated. Some of them were made to be a bigger deal than they should have been. Some of them blamed Negreanu more than he deserved blame. But Negreanu also was not blameless. And he's also said a lot of controversial things on Twitter that has further made people uh, want to push away from him. So, uh, And then there's the behavior on the streams recently. There's a number of things that have detracted from his stellar reputation. Now, he still has a good reputation for honesty. He's not known as, a, as any kind of scammer or anyone shady as far as uh, someone who you could trust with money. He still has a very good reputation. But as far as somebody who you like, well, you know, some people don't like him anymore. And some of that has to do with his sponsorship uh, with Poker Stars and the way he handled the Supernova Elite situation and, and other situations that came up with Poker Stars. And now somewhat with GG Poker. Okay, moving on here. Let's talk about Stephen Paddock. October 1st, 2017 was a very tragic day in Las Vegas history. Stephen Paddock had a plan to kill a lot of people. In fact, he wanted to kill as many people as possible. I'll go as far to say that Stephen Paddock did not kill anywhere near the number of people he was hoping to kill. He actually not only planned this out, but looked into other sites and other concerts to attack in the same fashion and chose this one, feeling that this was the one where he had the best chance to kill the most people. It was an act of evil and extreme selfishness and the guy was a psycho to say the least and we still don't know the reason he did it if you recall he brought a lot of high-powered weaponry to a comped suite he got in the mandalay bay 
and the plan was to wait until the Route 91 Country Music Festival down below to start. And then after it had been going, and there was a sufficient crowd of people down there, he would smash the window of the Mandalay Bay and point his high-powered modified weaponry that could uh, fire repeatedly without pause and just fire into the concert and try to kill as many people as possible. It was even believed that he was looking to blow up a nearby fuel tank to maybe kill even more people, though he didn't understand the way that fuel tanks work and that you can't just shoot them like people do in the movies and create a giant explosion. So that that wasn't going to work. But uh, he was attempting to cause as much carnage as possible. The whole point was to kill as many people as he could and then kill himself at some point before he could be arrested. And he did this. He killed, I believe, 57 people. He injured hundreds of others. Some of you have seen these videos. It's very sad. Very shocking. And we had a long show about it following this uh, incident. And he killed himself before the police got into his room. In fact, he had a camera that he set up on top of a room service table outside of his room so he could see in the hallway when the cops or security was coming. Uh, A security guard who was in the hallway uh, that was in front of his room, he shot, and the guy was injured and had to crawl away. That guy survived. But uh, he shot that person through the door. But he knew eventually a large contingent of police was going to come in and arrest him if they could or kill him. So he, he brought a handgun up there to shoot himself, just to easily pull the trigger and shoot, shoot himself in the head and shoot himself dead. So that, that was the plan, is to kill as many as possible and then kill himself. He was not expecting to escape. He knew he was going to die that day. Stephen Paddock, I think, was 60 years old, somewhere around there. 60, 61, I forget his exact age. And he was someone that uh, there's a lot of mystery surrounding. Why did he do it? This was very meticulously planned. He didn't just snap and start killing people. This was something he spent a long time planning. So he had a long time to decide, I shouldn't do this. You know, some people can have fleeting thoughts that they want to do something awful and then do it and then uh, regret having done it. But when you spend a long time planning something that's really, really evil and then go ahead and do it, then it shows that you had a long time to think about it and you still went ahead with it anyway. But the motive was not known. He was not known to hold any kind of extreme political views. This was not uh, meant to make any kind of political point. This did not seem to be tied to any kind of uh, religious views. And this did not seem to be tied to the concert itself or the people at the concert or the performers at the concert. So why did he do it? And I'm not going to be able to give you that answer because the only person who knew that is dead, and that is Stephen Paddock. And I don't expect us to get all the answers because if the only person who knows his motive shot himself dead, then you may never know. But I do expect, after three years 
that we have a full picture of everything that is possible to know. And in the first week or two of the aftermath, there were a lot of questions surrounding Stephen Paddock and ones that I was sure would be answered over time as more investigation into his life took place. Some of the things that were surprising me that we were not finding out fast, but I figured, okay, they're collecting it all, and at some point they're going to drop everything on us and we'll understand a full picture of his life, even if we don't know ultimately why he did this. We can start taking more educated guesses when we start to see a portrait of the way his life was like. A lot of times you can trace people's psychotic actions like this or evil actions to something in their life that is going wrong or frustrating them and that has uh, sent them over the edge. For example, this isn't the reason, but uh, you know, someone who would do something like this like uh, a month after his wife left him, you would say, okay, he was devastated about his wife leaving him and he went crazy. Like that would be a good conclusion if someone, their wife leaves them and then within a month they, they commit a mass shooting when before that they had no history of any that type of behavior. So things like that. You, you get information about their life and their situation and what's been changing over the last few years or last few months, and you start to take some good guesses as to what caused it. And this is the public's right to know. This is a tragedy, but we should know things like this. Uh, and you may say, well, why is it our business? Well, first of all... The, it's the business of everybody who is related to those that were injured or killed. It's definitely the business of those who were injured and still alive to know why they were shot. And the public in general should know these things. And it can help people report any kind of behavior from someone who might be acting the same way. So if you see someone who seems to be following the path of a Stephen Paddock type, and you remember what Stephen Paddock did and why he likely did it, uh, you can report it and have authorities investigate him and maybe prevent a tragedy like this. But what do we know three years later? Three years is a long time. After three years, we should really know everything short of his motive if there was no clear indication of motive. I bet you don't know. Okay, let's think about what was being discussed when this occurred. Stephen Paddock was known to play a ton of video poker. He was known to just sit there all day and all night and hammer video poker. He was called, in some cases, a professional gambler, but was that true? Was he actually winning or was he losing? Remember, remember, video poker, there is no way to beat video poker unless you're doing it in some sort of positive expectation fashion where you're getting some kind of rewards above the video poker itself. Yeah, there's a few machines out there that have a tiny percentage about above 100 payback if you play perfectly. But you're not going to make a lot on those because these are not at high stakes. You'll find some like at the Four Queens. But they're low stakes machines and the amount over 100 is tiny and if you make one or two misclicks or one or two mistakes... You've just killed your edge there. So you're not going to get rich off of those. So if you're a professional gambler who plays video poker, you're probably finding some kind of edge that exists on top of the video poker. You're earning a certain number of points. You are getting certain comps that are worth it. Whatever it is that you've calculated that your expected loss in video poker is going to be less than than what you're going to gain from... Uh, 
from playing video poker. And that's the only way to be a professional gambler through video poker. Now, you can be a recreational video poker player who just enjoys playing it and wants to try to get lucky. That's fine. But I'm talking about someone who is a professional gambler that's looking to make money on video poker. That's the only way to do it. Now, there is some question whether that was the case with Steven Paddock, whether he was uh, some kind of advantage player who played video poker and found angles to make additional money above uh, th- that makes up for the loss he would take in the expe- expe- expected value. There, by the way, there also are some other ways to win in video poker, like the progressives. Like if a progressive video poker jackpot gets high enough, which would happen if the a royal flesh isn't hit in a long time, and then you get a team of people over there to play the machine, uh, the bank of machines to basically share the bankroll and uh, play it until it hits, and that's positive expectation, but it is time-consuming and it requires a lot of people. So it's not easy. Bottom line is it's not easy to be a professional video poker player. Uh, so without going into further advantage play explanations, the question is, what was he doing with all that video poker play? Was he doing some kind of advantage play? Or was he just playing a lot of video poker and chunking off a lot of money? Even if you were a perfect player at those machines, if you play at fairly high stakes, you're going to start losing money uh, fairly rapidly just from the odds catching up with you. Because the return is not 100%, even with perfect play. So the question that was on a lot of people's minds was, did he lose all his money playing video poker and go nuts? And how much money did he lose? How much video poker was he playing? How much got shot off to the casinos? Did he go on this spree shortly after a massive loss or a consistent loss over a period of time that ate away all or most of his fortune? And these were questions that we should have answers to, not just for our knowledge, but also to see this in others in the future and warn authorities if we see other Stephen Paddock types that seem to be on the same path. That's the best way to defend against this happening again, not uh, the stupid measures that have been taken by hotels ever since then to eliminate do not disturb signs or do room checks every two days. All of that is what I call the illusion of security, because none of that makes any difference. A room check every two days, the reason they do that now is because Stephen Paddock, over a five-day period, snuck the high-powered weapons up into his room. Well, okay, but guess what? You could sneak them into your room in a two-day period. He didn't need five days. He took five days because he had five days. He didn't need five days. So anyone you give 48 hours to could easily sneak high-powered weapons up to their room undetected. There's a lot of different things that they have that they've put in place. These 48-hour room checks, uh, people sitting at the lobby checking keys when you're going up. None of this makes any difference. None of this matters. This is the illusion of security so it can feel like they're doing something. I have said there's only one thing they could do at the hotel level to prevent this. And that is an x-ray machine that you have to put your baggage through that every time you go into the hotel. So if you're just walking in, you don't run through the x-ray machine. But uh, if you bring a suitcase or a bag of any type in that's large enough to contain a large firearm, not like a handgun, but like a large firearm that could shoot a long distance, that uh, uh, you have to run it through an x-ray machine. And it would actually work because everybody doesn't check in at the same time. So there wouldn't be a gigantic line because uh, the number of people carrying luggage up to the room, there's never like a huge line of people all carrying luggage. Usually in an elevator, there's like one guy with luggage and everybody else has no luggage because they already checked in. 
So if you already checked in, are never going through that. So it, it would actually work, but they don't want to do that because that's actually effort and resources. They have, and, and they actually have to inconvenience people checking in, and, and it, it looks weird. So they don't want to do it. Instead, they just want to do something that, that looks like it's doing something, but it's not, the stupid room checks. So that was a result of the Stephen Paddock shooting, but the response has been something that's not going to help at all. But what you can do as a citizen is report people who seem to be on that path. And they can also watch people who seem to be obsessively gambling their money away and acting in an erratic fashion, especially if they seem angry or whatever. So here's what was found out. Because I, I had a lot of questions. Including like what I heard he owned property. I heard he owned a lot of real estate. I heard, oh, Stephen Paddock was a multimillionaire. Then I also heard Stephen Paddock didn't have much money at all. Like it was, it was so hard to tell what the truth was. And I'm like, shouldn't this be easy to find out? Shouldn't the authorities be able to look into his property ownership records and financials very quickly to see how much money he really had and put that out there? That should not be a secret. Stephen Paddock's financials should not be a secret. But apparently they are because we don't know very much. So what was learned since then? I hadn't heard anything, but I decided to use Google and see what I could find out. And I'll tell you what I found. There were uh, two reports I saw, one in 2018, one in 2019. In 2018, Clark County put out some answers about this, but we still didn't learn very much. Clark County Sheriff Joe Lombardo said in 2018, By all accounts, Stephen Paddock was an unremarkable man whose movements leading up to October 1st didn't raise any suspicion. An interview with his doctor indicated signs of a troubled mind, but no troubling behavior that would trigger a call to law enforcement. Okay, maybe that's true. Let's go on. Uh, It said uh, that he left no manifesto and not even a note to answer questions, which we knew. One of his brothers said that he believed that uh, Stephen had a mental illness and was paranoid and delusional. And a doctor believed that he may have had bipolar disorder. That's from the Clark County report in 2018. Stephen Paddock's girlfriend, who behaved in a, an odd fashion, that he had this uh, Filipina girlfriend who was uh, around his age. A lot of times the, these older white men who uh, marry Filipina women, a lot of times there's a big age difference. And a lot of times it has to do with these women getting into the country or getting their family into the country. A lot of times you see these like younger Filipina women marrying older white men. But this wasn't the case here. This, uh, his girlfriend was his own age. She was Filipina, but she was his age. I think she was 60. Anyway, uh, if you remember, he sent her off to the Philippines. And, and uh, he went you know, before doing this, he sent her to the Philippines. He sent $100,000 to the Philippines and told her to have her family buy a house with it. And, uh, and then he went and did this. He didn't tell her he was going to do this. Her name was uh, Marilou Danley. There were some questions as to what she knew, and she did say her fingerprints would be on the guns, but she said that guns were just a hobby of his and that she just helped uh, maintain them for him and had no idea he was going to do this, and that she really just thought that he was breaking up with her and out of guilt gave her the 100000 and told her to go visit the Philippines. because He bought her a ticket to go visit her family and say, Here, here's $100,000, uh, go with your father and uh, go buy a house. So anyway... Uh, Apparently, according to this report in Clark County, he told Mary Lou that uh, 
he was ill and that he suddenly stopped being affectionate with her. She said that uh, he complained that doctors couldn't cure him and that he had a chemical imbalance. That's interesting, and I know how that feels. Two years ago, in fact, exactly two years ago, I was dealing with a chemical imbalance in my brain that doctors could not cure. I kind of cured myself. But from mid-August through mid-October, I had a chemical imbalance in my brain that uh, was screwing everything up. My perception to everything was off. I've told you guys about this many times. I never wanted to kill people. I never wanted to hurt people in any way. I didn't didn't make me violent at all. It was just the in, internal turmoil and the inability to enjoy anything. So he may have had some form of some kind of uh, chemical imbalance in his brain, and he may have been suffering from depression or anxiety. That still wouldn't explain this violent behavior, but it does look like he had some sort of mental illness and felt like it was hopeless to solve. And it can feel hopeless. I'm not defending him at all, by the way, but I'm just saying that um, I do know how it feels to know that your brain is not working right and that it feels hopeless that you'll you'll never be able to get it right. Because unlike other things, unlike, uh, you know, something like your, a problem with your skin, you go to the dermatologist, they give some cream to put on there and it gets better. Uh, there's nothing like that. There's some medications that can help with psychiatric issues you're having, but sometimes you're just stuck and there's nothing you can do. And it's a very helpless feeling. So I, I can see how that, along with other issues he may have had, could have influenced this. And they concluded in this report that he acted alone. They did charge a man who sold illegal weaponry to him, but this was not someone who was looking to see this happen. This was just someone who uh, was selling illegal weapons and didn't realize that it would be used for this purpose, but nonetheless, the person did sell illegal weapons to a killer, so of course he did have to face charges. There was a guy named uh, Douglas Haig. Now, what about his finances? I was interested in that. I was really interested in his finances. Why? Because I thought the best possible explanation, best meaning most likely, was that he chunked off his money in the casino and was furious that he just kind of felt like a failure. He felt angry, kind of at himself, at the casinos, at the world, and just felt like ending it all. When gamblers lose, they go through some very destructive states of mind. I knew a guy who was a problem gambler who, whenever he lost, would want to engage in reckless behavior afterwards. He'd want to do drugs. He'd want to get prostitutes. And he told me that losing made him want to do this. He kind of just felt like losing was reckless, so he felt like I might as well continue being reckless. Everybody reacts different ways to losing. So is it possible that Stephen Paddock, who already was an unstable individual apparently, is it possible that his reaction to losing over a long period of time was the plus feeling like he just uh, couldn't get his mental health right? Is it possible he just decided that he wants to end it but that he wants to go out killing people. Well, let's talk about his finances that were described in this report in 2018. He had 14 bank accounts, 
which contained a total of $2.1 million in September 2015. That is almost exactly two years prior to when he committed the crime and then killed himself. By October 1st, 2017, when he died, he was down to $530,000. The sheriff said he, quote, wasn't as successful in the gambling as he was in previous years. Now, what does that mean? So that's that's a very interesting thing we're seeing here. That looks like he lost about 1.6 million of his 2.1 million to gambling in the casino. It says he paid more than 600,000 to casinos and over 170,000 to credit card companies. And he also made almost $100,000 worth of firearms purchases. I'm not sure where the rest of the money went. They gave no other information regarding casinos. Whatever it looks like his bank account was reduced by 1.6 million. What do they mean he wasn't as successful as in previous years? What does that mean? Was he winning previous years? Let's go back before September 2015. How did he do in 2014, 2013? Was he winning? Because if he was playing regular video poker day in, day out for many hours, unless he hit some sort of rare jackpot at some kind of – at stakes he doesn't normally play. Let's say he's normally playing the uh, – the $5 per credit machines, and then one day just says, you know, to hell with it. Let me try the $100 per credit machine, and then within an hour of being there, it's a royal. Yeah, that could skew it to where he'll be up for the year. But short of that, if you play a ton of hands in the year, a video poker at relatively even stakes, you're going to be down. You are going to be down. It's not like a slot machine where you hit some rare jackpot once in a while that can uh, put you up for the year. Video poker, while having a lot better odds than slot machines, does not have a gigantic jackpot to it. So if you just play a ton of hands in a year, you're going to be down. As I said, there are ways to get around that, such as uh, having a team of people play progressives or playing in spots where you get uh, uh, some kind of perks or comps that overcome the losses or various tricks of signing up for players' clubs. I'm not going to get into the whole thing, as I said. There are ways to play video poker profitably, but not sitting in the same few casinos all day and all night. That's not going to do it for you. And that's what it looks like he was doing. Though it would be also helpful to know where he was playing. Like, why, why can't we find out how long did he spend at the Mandalay Bay? How long did he spend at other casinos? How many hours did he spend playing video poker? How much money did he lose playing video poker? How much did he lose in this place, in that place, in that place? I think we should know this. He definitely is not entitled to the right to privacy at this point. And I don't think the casino should be either. I think we should know. But we're not told that. Mira Lou Danley said that she accompanied Stephen Paddock to gun stores and gun shows and that she helped him set up a gun range in Nevada. And that with any hobby that he had over the years, he got very obsessive with it and that guns were one of those hobbies. So she didn't find it to be odd, which is possible. His mother, who is still alive, said that uh, she didn't know why he would have done this. And she said she says she thinks he developed some kind of brain tumor. But of course, this is his mom. Most most moms don't want to acknowledge that their son is just evil, even after doing something like this. They did do an, aut- an autopsy on him and looked at his brain, and they did not see anything, even with a microscopic brain examination at Stanford University. His brother, Eric Paddock, who was kind of weird, I've seen him on video talking about Stephen, but 
Uh, Eric did say that uh, Stephen was a narcissist who only cared about people who could benefit that, that could benefit him. We're still not really understanding this very well. It did say that it looked like that he probably did not do this for any ideological reason, that he was not a terrorist, that this was not aimed at the people at this particular concert or about country music or country music stars or anything like that or the politics of the people in the concert because he, he was looking at other sites to do this at, including the Life is Beautiful Festival, which is also a similar concert, but not, not country music, but different type of music that they had a month before and that he actually went as far as booking a room and then saw that the room wasn't as good as the Mandalay Bay one was going to be for the, for shooting people. So he backed out of that one. And he also was looking at Lollapalooza in Chicago. So it didn't look like it was about Las Vegas. It it looked like he just wanted to kill a ton of people who were gathered together and do it from a hotel room up above. And he just thought that was a brilliant plan. And that's what he wanted to do. It didn't look like it was uh, the, the choice of target really had any significance. It was just, how can I kill the most people? So that was in the 2018 report. So after you hear me, after you heard me give you that information, do you feel like you know a lot more? Probably not. Probably a few small things you've learned here, but you probably don't feel like you've had any kind of aha moment regarding this. Well, 2019, the FBI released their report, and that one a lot of people were waiting for. People thought that's going to finally give us some answers. So they released the report in early 2019, in uh, January. And uh, unfortunately, it was not all that detailed. They said that they found no evidence that it was motivated by ideological or political beliefs. They believed that there was no single or clear motivating factor they did say that throughout his, throughout his life, he went through great lengths to keep his thoughts private and that he left no clues behind regarding that. And they said that active shooters rarely have a singular motive or reason for engaging in mass homicide. More often, their motives are a complex merging of developmental issues, interpersonal relationships, clinical issues, and, con- and contextual stressors. stressors. They found no manifesto, video, suicide note, or other communication related to this attack. They did mention that as he grew older, Paddock became increasingly distressed and intolerant of stimuli while simultaneously failing to navigate common life stressors affiliated with aging. That's an interesting statement. Intolerant of stimuli. I have thought for a long time that Stephen Paddock might have been autistic or that he had Asperger's at the very least or full-blown autism. The inability to deal with stressors, with with, uh, stimuli, is that that is something that is common with autistic people where certain kinds of stimuli bother them. Now, it didn't say he's always been like that. It said he was getting increasingly distressed. It didn't talk about what stimuli, but it said intolerant of stimuli. And also was failing to navigate the common life stressors affiliated with aging. So assuming they mean physical pain and maybe some uh, mental issues. Though I don't understand. He was only around 60 years old. Uh, I doubt he was going senile. 
And if he was having anxiety or depression type uh, issues, that that's not associated with aging. In fact, that usually shows up when you're younger. That will sometimes stay with you your whole life, but it is rare to have it just show up around that age. In fact, when mine showed up two years ago, it was rare at that age. So I don't know what they mean by that. But it, it does kind of seem like that he wasn't dealing very well with the fact that things just start getting more painful and you start having a hard time doing things and you start having uh, more physical difficulties with older age. That normal people say, yeah, it sucks I'm getting older. I wish this wasn't hurting or I wish this was easier for me like it was 20 years ago. It looked like Stephen Paddock was getting mad about that. They said that he experienced an objective and subjective decline in physical and mental health, level of functioning and financial status over the last several years. In reaction to this decline, Paddock concluded that he would have to seek control of the ending his life via a suicidal act, and his inability or unwillingness to perceive any alternatives to this ending influenced his decision to attack. I think they're going too far with that. I don't know if that's... I don't know if they can say that much from what they're looking at here. I can believe maybe that's a possibility that just he decided he doesn't want to live like this anymore. He decided he can't stand being in the physical pain and in the uh, mental state that has declined and leaves him constantly unhappy and perhaps uh, with heavy anxiety or depression and that he just wants to end it and that unlike others who kill themselves in such a situation, which is not really uncommon, that he chose to kill others as well, which is very uncommon. Usually people who are suffering in that way and want to end it, they just uh, kill themselves. They don't think about hurting other people. They concluded that his intention to die by suicide was compounded by his desire to attain a certain degree of infamy via a mass casualty attack. They believe that he was also influenced by the memory of his father, who was a well-known criminal. Now, you may not know about this, but his father was a well-known criminal. Stephen's father was Benjamin Hoskins Paddock, who was a bank robber and was at one point on the FBI 10 Most Wanted Fugitives list. In fact, he was on there for eight years, which was one of the longest periods of time that someone has been on that list, on the 10 Most Wanted, from 1969 to 1977. His father died in 1998, and he was not in prison when he died. His father had four sons. Stephen was the firstborn in 1953. He also had a kid named Patrick in 57, Bruce in 1959. Interestingly enough, he called himself Bruce, too. Bruce was a nickname of his. And uh, Eric, the one I talked about, was the last kid in 1960. So it was all within a seven-year period, the four sons. Bruce was later convicted of uh, having child pornography. He had uh, 600 child pornography images, but somehow the charges were dropped in May of 2018. I haven't heard of uh, Patrick or Eric being in any trouble. His father was a well-known bank robber, who, as I said, was on uh, the most wanted list for the FBI for eight years. So not only did Paddock perhaps inherit these criminal tendencies, which is very likely. 
you are more like your parents than you think. You may think you're nothing like your parents, but you are. You're not exactly like your parents. But if you are honest with yourself, you will see that there are many traits of your parents that you inherited. I'm talking about your personality. Some things that will surprise you if you really take a look into it closely. That's because genetics mean a lot. They mean a whole lot. That's why often twins who are separated at birth and then meet many, many years later find that not only do they look alike, but there's a lot of similarities in their personalities. A lot of things that you would have thought would be have would have been a product of their environment somewhat, but were not. So given that Stephen Paddock was half of this career criminal bank robber, it's not surprising that he had criminal desires. Now, it doesn't mention this in the FBI report. That's just my commentary here. The FBI claims that he was influenced by the memory of his father and said Paddock's father created a facade to mask his criminal activity and hide his diagnosed psychopathic history and in doing so ultimately achieves significant criminal notoriety. It said that uh, throughout his life, Stephen Paddock displayed minimal empathy and that he primarily viewed others through a transactional lens of cost and benefits, that killing people while they were being entertained was consistent with his personality. See, I, I don't believe that. That's where I think they're overthinking it. That's where It looks like some FBI psychologist is trying too hard. I don't think he was trying to kill people while they were being entertained. I think he just wanted to kill the, mass, the maximum number of people and thought he came up with a very ingenious plan. Now, it is true that nobody had done this before. It is true he, he found something that was obvious to just for some reason people didn't think of before, and that is go to a tall building surrounding a big crowd of people and fire into the crowd. I'm surprised he didn't go for New York Times Square during New Year's. That probably would have been even more effective, but maybe it was tougher to get the proper view of it. To Whatever it was, he... He liked the idea of this, or maybe New York was too far. Well, there would have been a huge security with that, though. I mean, Times Square, I would think, is a whole other level. Well, yeah, I guess there's one other reason. Well, is, yeah. is that he didn't live by New York, so it would have been hard to get all the weapons over there and get up, get it up the hotel. and get. You know, like, how do you get all the weapons there? There's a, it's, not, it's not impossible, but it's a lot tougher. It's a lot easier when he lives in Vegas and he could just drive it over there. So that's, that's probably a good reason. But uh, – I don't think he was looking to kill people while they're being entertained. I, I think he was just going, okay, well, where's a place that everyone's going to be gathered in a big crowd and I can be in a building above them and shoot them? Oh, a hotel that's over an outdoor concert. Perfect. And, and the truth is someone could do this again. That's the truth. There's there's nothing to prevent this from happening again. It's disturbing, but it's the truth especially now that it's been exposed. It's kind of like those school shootings. Once that Columbine thing happened, notice we see all these school shootings now. And it's because now kids have the idea to do it. Strangely enough, before Columbine, like uh, kids didn't really think of doing this. Then once that happened, some of these psycho teenagers are like, oh, yeah, school shootings. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, you know, I, I hate everybody and I'm a psycho and I'd love to kill some of these kids. And yeah, I'm, I'm going to do it too. So I'm afraid this is going to happen again. I'm glad in three years it, still ha- it hasn't happened since then. But the, the measures they've taken in Vegas are meaningless. This could easily happen again. They said he had a history of 
exploiting others through manipulation and duplicity, sometimes resulting in a cruel deprivation of their expectations without warning. I'd love to know what they mean by that, but they don't explain. That's bothered other people who've read this report, that they're too brief about things. Like, Why not give examples so we can understand? By the way, this, again, could uh, be somewhat related to him being autistic. And being autistic doesn't automatically mean that you have these traits. But uh, there's some autistic people who do have these type of traits where they they have trouble with empathy. And they are kind of just looking at everything in such a black and white fashion as like, well, I want to be friends with this person because they can do things for me. They can help me. They can be a positive in my life because they bring this, this, and this to me. Not because I care about them. Not that I want the, the warmth of human interaction. I just I think they can help me. So that's the, the way they're describing him. They said that they yielded no indication, the, the investigations, that his attack was motivated by a grievance against any specific casino, hotel, or institution in Las Vegas, or the festival or anyone killed or injured during the attack, that because he explored other potential sites, that just because this is the final selection was meaningless, and that he selected a position that allowed him to kill the most people, the position in the hotel, that is. Throughout his life, it says that he displayed an ability to devote significant time and attention and energy to specific hobbies or projects of interest. That once he decided to do this, that he devoted time, energy, attention, and interest to this shooting. That he engaged in detailed preparations, including a year-long burst of firearms and ammunition acquisition. That the planning itself was probably satisfying to him because it provided him a sense of direction and control despite his mental and physical decline. I actually think that might be true. That this gave him something to do. This gave him something to work for. It was like a project. It was a sick project. It was an evil project, but nonetheless it was a project. It required planning. It required purchasing. It required uh, a lot of things to put together. Scouting sites. Like, he... it, It took a lot of work. It did. So he may have felt like, Everything in my life falling apart. I can't think as well as I did before. I'm, I'm hurting a lot. But, hey, look look what I can still do. This occupies my mind. This occupies my day. And this is giving me a sense of accomplishment, as sick as that sounds. I actually believe he may have felt that way. That may be – they may have hit on something correct here. That doesn't explain the motivation, but it explains why he could go through this whole thing without having second thoughts. And it said he engaged in significant, methodical, internet-based research regarding site selection, police tactics, and response and ballistics. He conducted in-person site surveillance and engaged in end-of-life planning. Despite his research, planning, and uh, and preparation, they found no evidence that he communicated his intent to do this to anyone or that anyone was aware of his objective. And that he had always been private, and they believe that he probably really didn't tell anyone. And they said there's no evidence that he sought to escape the hotel room after the attack and that he took multiple calculated steps that he could commit suicide at a time and in a manner of his choosing, including bringing up one handgun, a 38 caliber revolver, which he used to commit suicide. And that uh, he accelerated the timing of his attack 
based upon a perception that it was very likely that there would be a quick security and law enforcement response to what he was doing. So I, I believe that part being true. I believe that he went up there believing that he'd probably die in that room. However, they did say that prior to the attack that he maintained interpersonal relationships and was not completely isolated, that he seemed to demonstrate authentic concern and responsibility for his girlfriend and certain family members while sustaining amicable relationships with previous intimate partners. Now, let me stop there. I heard reports that he treated his girlfriend like crap, that he always uh, talked down to her, was nasty to her in public, and that people were pretty alarmed by that. Like people who worked in casinos remembered him, and he was just always talking down to his girlfriend in a very nasty way. Now, believe it or not, he could have cared about her and still treated her that way. He just... He was just an asshole. I mean, we know he was an asshole by what he did. But he, uh, they said that not only did he care enough for her to send her away with that final 100000 but that other girlfriends he had in the past, uh, he actually maintained relationships with them. He didn't say, like, F you, you're not with me anymore, I don't want to talk to you. Which does seem to contradict a little bit what they were saying before, that he only maintained relationships for practical purposes. I don't quite understand that. They said his declining mental and physical condition and concerning behaviors in the years leading up to the attack were observed by others but not interpreted as indicative of preparation for any kind of mass attack. They said in many ways he was similar to other active shooters that the FBI has studied and that they typically experience an average of 3.6 stressors prior to an attack and display an average of 4.7 conserving behaviors to others. Additionally, 21% of active shooters had no identifiable grievance or the grievance was unknown prior to their attack. More than half lived with somebody else and 48% had suicide, suicidal ideation or engaged in suicide-related behaviors at some point prior to the attack. And that makes sense because if you know you're going to die when doing this, uh, you have to have some sort of suicidal feelings because you are committing an act which is going to result in your death. It is committing suicide, even if it's killing others first. So that I, I would think it would be more than 48% have thought of suicide before. I, I, I'm very surprised the number is that low. I would think it's almost 100%. And, Drop, you said he was broke when he died, right? No. Uh, see, that's, that's the weird thing. They, they, see, they don't, they're not totally clear about this, but it looks like he had 530000 Now, maybe he did something else with that 530000 A 100000 of that he gave to his uh, girlfriend to go to the Philippines with and buy a house, but uh, I don't know what happened to the other 430000 But it, it just mentioned in, in the 13 months prior to this happening that he chunked off $1.6 million. Uh, like hundred k of it was gun purchases, and hundred k I don't know if it's before or after that, uh, went to his girlfriend to the Philippines – but and that he, he lost six hundred thousand to casinos, but that there may have been more loss to the casinos. It's it's very unclear. And this is my problem. See, I'm not just reading to you guys reports from eighteen and nineteen. By the way, that's the end. I don't have any more for you. Uh, why don't we know everything? What about the the property ownership? I so I heard. Oh, he owned all this real estate. Okay, where is it? What, what real estate did he own? What percentage did he owe of it? Was did he? What equity did he have? How much were these properties worth? How much cash did he have on the day he died? What, how much cash did he have three weeks before he died? How much specifically did he lose to casinos and which casinos? Why isn't this all detailed? Why don't we know this? And I think there's a reason we don't know this. And I think it's because 
the casinos don't want this known because there is a good chance that this was a guy who was teetering on the brink of doing something like this and that losing most of his fortune at video poker combined with everything else that was happening sent him over the edge. I don't think it was just the video poker, but I think it was this combined with everything else that was going on. He was in pain. His brain wasn't working right. He felt that his doctors could not help him. And uh, he was chunking off everything in video poker. Also, I'd love to know how he was doing before this. How, how was he winning the years before? Or was he? Or was he just doing worse than before? Maybe he was playing higher than before. Maybe it's as simple as he was playing lower and he wasn't losing as much. And then he jumped up to higher stakes in the final year of his life and chunked off one point something million. That could explain it. But they say he wasn't as successful in gambling as before. See, to the average person who doesn't understand gambling, that would make sense. But to me, it makes no sense. To me, as a gambling expert, this makes no sense. You'd have to compare this to how he was doing before and how he managed before to do better. Because you'll find over time in gambling, I'm not talking about poker where it's it's a matter of uh, both luck and the skill of your opponents, but in something with a a fixed set of uh, odds against you or for you, that the longer you play, the closer you get to expected value. And it just doesn't make sense if you put in super high volume that you have really good years at video poker followed by really bad years at relatively the same stakes. It just doesn't make any sense. It just does not make any sense. You can have bad streaks. Like if you're going to – like I've had good video poker and bad video poker years but because I'm not playing every day, all day, and all night. I'm just – I'm playing enough to earn the status I want to earn, and then I quit. And if I hit some royals, then great. I've done well. If I just brick royals completely, then I've probably lost money. So that makes sense. But if I'm sitting there all day and all night playing video poker, uh, by the end of the year, it's going to reflect pretty accurately the odds of the game – and my skill in playing the game to getting the closest I can to the expected loss, and that's going to be pretty close. There will be some years better and worse than others, but you're not going to have a massive variance there if I'm sticking to relatively the same limits and playing a very high volume. And that's what's making no sense. And from what I've heard from people who worked at casinos that observed him play, I was told that he sits there playing for many hours and that he was almost like a machine, like playing very fast, not thinking. And when I say not thinking, I mean like in a good way, like he knows so well what to do that he doesn't have to stop and think in some of the tougher spots of, hey, what do you do here? Like, yeah, you know, if you're playing video poker, a lot of them are very obvious, like you're dealt, uh, you're dealt a pair of kings. In a Jacks are better game. Well, you hold the two kings, throw everything back. That's an instant thing that uh, any video poker player knows to do. But then there's the harder spots where you don't know exactly what to do. So you get dealt a, a three to a royal with also a, a pair of jacks. You keep the pair of jacks, you keep the three to a royal. Like the, that, that'll take people a moment to pause and think, what do I do here? But people said that they watched him play. He was never pausing. He was just instantly doing it, and they're presuming he was doing the right thing. But it's still negative expectation, and it's going to eat you up eventually. So I, I want to know how he was doing before, how he was doing after. We, we don't know that. And I think that's on purpose. The casinos have a lot of influence in Nevada. A lot of influence. 
And the last thing the casino industry wants is people to believe that this tragedy was partially motivated by a guy who compulsively gambled most of his fortune away in a year's time. And that would get a lot of people very angry. And it may even cause some casino whales to look at themselves and say, whoa, wait a minute here. So this guy who lost over a million dollars in the casino in a year flipped out and killed a ton of people? Wow, I don't want that to be me. I better stop. So I don't think they wanted people to consider this. I don't want... I don't think they wanted people to blame them for not stopping his compulsive gambling. A dirty secret with casinos, even though they're supposed to stop compulsive gambling, the truth is that casinos live on compulsive gambling. That's the reason they stay in business. They don't stay in business because the casual traveler comes in and drops a small amount of money in the slot machines. They... The gambling side of their business, which admittedly they're getting away from, or at least they were before COVID. They were starting to make money uh, in other areas as well. But the gaming portion of their income is mostly coming from compulsive gamblers, not from casual gamblers. So they want the compulsive gamblers, and they try to find excuses for why these gamblers are not compulsive so they can stay there and they don't have to kick them out. They're supposed to kick them out, but they usually don't. So I'm thinking that for the sake of the casinos, they've tried to downplay this. Why the FBI didn't do this, I don't know, but maybe they were kind of directed by this Las Vegas sheriffs, the Clark County sheriffs, and they unwittingly went along with it. I think they're missing a very obvious angle here. Like if you ask me right now, what's my guess? It would be the guy... First of all, had some personality disorders. Second, he was starting to have a mental, mental decline due to some kind of actual ke- chemical imbalance in his brain. And each day was becoming uh, torturous for him. And he was physically hurting. So he was miserable. And he couldn't stop it. And doctors couldn't stop it. And he was trying to enjoy the one thing that he used to enjoy, video poker. And instead he was just chunking off all the money he had previously made. But that begs questions. Where did he get the money? Where did he make $2.1 million? Where did that come from? Notice that's not in there. Where did he get the $2 million? I heard something about real estate, but nothing in these reports talks about real estate. We never found out about that. Why are these things not being said? Why? What's the reason? I'm not going like all conspiracy theory on you. I've heard conspiracy theories. Oh, he was he was running guns to the CIA. I've, I've heard a lot of nutty stuff that I don't believe. But I think it's something having to do with the casinos covering something up. There's something wrong here, why we don't know more. But does, does he deserve the privacy of his financial transactions after killing uh, 58 people and injuring over 800? Somehow we don't deserve to know this? It's insane. Go ahead, try to find it. Try to find how much he lost specifically in the casinos, in each casino, how he made the first two point whatever million he had on September in September 2015 before he went on his losing streak. Where'd that come from? We don't know. We don't know. What about his real estate holdings? We don't know. Three years later, we don't know. Really weird. Now, I cannot demand this. You can't demand this, but you know who could have demanded this would be the Las Vegas media. And they really, really crapped the bed. They did not push for this. 
This is media malpractice in Las Vegas not to demand answers, not to demand a full picture of Stephen Paddock's life. But you know what? I think maybe the media in Las Vegas is complicit. I think uh, they count on the casinos for information, and they don't want to make them look bad. I think kind of it's possible that everybody kind of knows the truth but doesn't really want to say it because they'll piss off the casinos. So everybody just kind of stays quiet, doesn't talk about the elephant in the room, doesn't ask the tough questions, and just kind of hopes everybody takes these explanations and walks away. Oh, his dad was a criminal. He wanted to be like his dad. He was in psychological and physical pain. He just decided he wants to go out killing people. And, uh, and yeah, he lost a little money in the casino and decided to kill people. Very weird. And I thought about this when October 1st came. And people were talking about it on Twitter, who lived in Las Vegas, about the anniversary date of the shooting. So I thought about it, and, and then I thought about other things in the evening when – First, I see Trump has COVID, and then second, I see that I'm being sued by Mike Possel. It's a lovely day. Before we move on, though, Trader Risky, do you, what, what thoughts do you have on the on the Paddock thing? Anything that you want to add? No, I mean, I agree. Lack of information is just weird. I mean, to just go out like that and with no real, like, statement or no note or nothing, you know? It's really it's weird. so fucking weird. Yeah, how, how could there not be just a, a massive dig into his life where we know every detail. Do they think the public doesn't care? I, I think everybody wants to know, even three years later. Why don't we know? Why is it not put out? It's weird. Yeah, why would you like go after someone you hate? or I mean, Just to shoot random people is just so fucking weird. I don't know. Or at least, at least give us a whole picture of his life and let us figure it out from the best, best we can. I, I believe yeah. that... I believe they really don't know a motive. I don't think there's a cover-up of the exact motive. I don't think he left a note behind saying, it's those damn casinos, I'm going to kill everyone because these damn casinos. I don't think he did that. I don't think there's – I think they're telling the truth. He left nothing behind about that. But I think they're purposely covering up uh, a lot of details about his life and how he made his money and lost his money because it would give away things that are unflattering to the casinos. And maybe and I think that's just like the PR machine for Vegas. Yeah. You know, I mean, all stories just never get like, they always kind of hit a peak and they die quick. It's amazing. Yeah, it's disturbing. I wish we knew more. Okay, I want to move on and talk about a topic that I just mentioned, and that was on October 1st, 2020, another big piece of news, and that was that Donald Trump has the coronavirus. And I'm sure all of you heard this by now. I'm sure I'm not giving you any kind of news you haven't heard of yet. If it's true, you should listen to more news because you shouldn't be getting two-day-old news on this show of that magnitude. But that uh, kind of shocked everybody. As far as how I felt when I heard it, it's funny because I have been wondering if this is going to happen. I've been watching Trump romping around the country going to all these rallies, and I just kind of thought, you know, just because he's the president doesn't mean the virus is going to ignore him. I mean, the virus treats him the same way it would treat anybody. So why can't he get it? The more you expose yourself, especially indoors, the more likely it is that you're going to catch the coronavirus. And someone who is 74 years old and overweight, like Donald Trump is, that's not a good thing to get. 
So I had wondered if this was going to happen. And I had wondered also, like, if Donald Trump were to get the coronavirus and die, like, then what would happen? Like, I had thought about this before he actually got it. I'm not saying I predicted he was going to get it, but I wasn't thinking, oh, my God, I would have never expected this. It was one of these things that I thought, hmm, what if this happens? And sure enough, it happened. So the first news came out that Hope Hicks, who was uh, pretty close to him and one of his advisors and was uh, physically with him a lot, was diagnosed with the coronavirus and that she had been with him in the prior days. And so that already that raised the question of, is Donald Trump going to get the coronavirus? And sure enough, he had it and his wife Melania had it. And that news broke on October 1st, late in the evening. This broke by Donald Trump himself tweeting it. Remember, Donald Trump has been using Twitter to communicate with the people. And unlike other presidents and even celebrities who use Twitter, he does not have a a Twitter filter. He doesn't have people that make sure his tweets are okay uh, I really believe he's like tweeted from the toilet before. I think like I would notice a lot of tweets would show up at uh, 3 a.m. Pacific time, not related to this, but like it looked to me like he was waking up at 6 a.m. Eastern. And the second he'd get up before getting out of bed or maybe while he's on the toilet or whatever, he'd just fire out whatever's on his mind. Probably before he even gets out of bed, he'd probably re- wake up, reach over to his phone, go on Twitter and then fire off the first thing that's on his mind. It was it, really strange to think about the president of the United States behaving that way, just really having nobody as uh, a filter or someone to analyze what he's saying. Usually public figures have a PR team that tweets for them. But Trump, I've always believed that uh, almost all the tweets that he puts out are really from him and that are totally unfiltered and are not run by anybody else. And he's, he's received a lot of advice and criticism that he should stop this. But he won't. He's just been obsessed with Twitter for a long time and has not stopped. So uh, the first thing we saw about uh, this was on October 1st, he tweeted, Hope Hicks, who has been working so hard without even taking a small break, has just tested positive for COVID-19. Terrible. The first lady and I are waiting for our test results. In the meantime, we will begin our quarantine process. So already right there. He realized this might be a problem and decided that uh, they're going to quarantine unless they test negative. So then shortly after that, he tweeted, tonight, Melania and I tested positive for COVID-19. We will begin our quarantine and recovery process immediately. We will get through this together, in all caps, he puts. So that immediately started speculation, including some people that were conspiracy oriented and thought that maybe this is not true, that maybe this is all a hoax so he could either get out of future debates or to where he could uh, claim he's too sick to continue the campaign and bow bow out of it because he thought he's not going to win and that uh, Biden's going to beat him for sure, or that uh, he's afraid he's going to be convicted of some crimes if he loses, and this allows uh, him to resign because his health is too bad and then for Vice President Pence to become president and then pardon him. So these were some conspiracy theories, none of which I believe, but these were some people, some people were saying they don't trust that he really had COVID and that he was just making this up uh, for some sort of ulterior motive. Others even thought that he was doing this to 
then, quote, recover from it and make COVID look a little less serious and also to look like a, it's a heroic story of, uh, of beating COVID and then getting increased support in order to get some votes back, maybe like a sympathy vote. So there are a number of uh, conspiracy theories. He was seen walking off under his own power to a helicopter to be brought to the Walter Reed Medical Center to be treated. And at the time it was said that at least it's a good sign that he can walk over there. Now to review, COVID symptoms occur in various ways, if you're going to get symptoms at all. People who are like 30s, kind of like 35, 33, 34, kind of in that range, they typically get what I call moderate symptoms. And that is they feel sick, they have somewhat of a fever, they feel somewhat run down, but they're not completely debilitated. They kind of feel the way that they've felt the number of times of being sick. So you don't feel good, you're very limited to what you can do, you feel crappy, but it's not like your worst experience ever. It's just you're sick. That's what I call the, the 30s COVID. What I call the 40s COVID is what I call mid-level symptoms. And mid-level symptoms are one – this is where you're not up to the level of being hospitalized, but where you're completely debilitated. You can barely stand up. That going to the bathroom is super challenging. That you are fatigued beyond – Anything you've ever felt in your life, that all you can do is lie in bed, that you're also in pain, you just feel very sick, you have a fever that won't break, you sometimes hallucinate, everything just feels awful, and your energy is just about zero, and that seriously, when you need to go to the bathroom, it takes like every bit of energy you can muster to get up, go to the bathroom, and come back. Now, if you're like that, and by the way, that is not uncommon for people my age to get. In fact, if I were to get COVID, that's kind of what I'd expect to get. That, that's what I think one of the most likely scenarios if I were to feel symptoms. I think the two most likely scenarios would be either asymptomatic or that at my age. I think it would be less likely that I'd get what I call the moderate symptoms. And I think it's less likely that I'd get more severe than that, like uh, breathing problems or death or close to death, all of which could happen, by the way. I'm not, uh, I'm at an age where death is possible, but not likely. Anyway, uh, if he was up to the mid-level, what I call the 40s symptoms, then he would not have been able to walk to that helicopter. So he was able to walk to the helicopter, and then they took him to Walter Reed, now, here is something that uh, he put out. He was standing here, and I think he recorded this before being taken away in the helicopter, this 18-second video that he tweeted out. I want to thank everybody for the tremendous support. I'm going to Walter Reed Hospital. I think I'm doing very well, but we're going to make sure that things work out. The First Lady is doing very well. So uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I will never forget it. Thank you. I want to thank everybody for the... Okay, it's the same video replaying, but he's standing here. The echo is because he's in a big room. Again, this was before he went to Walter Reed. This is before he walked off on his 
own power to the helicopter to be taken there. So he was strong enough to stand up, strong enough to make the statement, but it was 18 seconds, so he could have mustered every bit of energy to do that and then to walk to that helicopter. A lot of this could have been for show. He is dressed up in a suit, which usually, usually not in a suit when you have COVID and you're trying to recover. So this was definitely for show, but there's only so much you can do. Like there's people I know who had the, what I called the mid-level symptoms. They could not have stood up in a suit and, uh, and made the statement. They, they could not have done this at their worst point. And these are people in their forties. Then came a tweet and this was yesterday on the 3rd, that uh, was on the 2nd. The next tweet was on the 2nd. And this one was a little suspicious. This one said, going well, I think. Thank you to all. Love, in all caps. That's unlike him. Trump usually speaks in superlatives. Everything's great. Everything's wonderful. Everything's tremendous. He doesn't say going well, I think. He would say something more like, everything's going tremendously well. Uh, thank you all. The, you're all the best. Something like that. Not uh, thank you to all love. He doesn't write love either. Like a, That one really looks like he was really not feeling well and had someone write this for him. So that, that one looks like it didn't come from him. That's the first tweet I've ever seen from Donald Trump that I think wasn't written by him. Then the next tweet saw on October 3rd. These were written an hour apart. The first one was doctors, nurses, and all the great Walter Reed Medical Center and all others from likewise incredible institutions have joined have joined them are amazing. And then like a few exclamation marks, then no space after the exclamation marks. Tremendous progress has been made over the last six months in fighting this plague, all caps. With their help, I am feeling well. Okay, I think this came from him. Now, it, not that it's so hard to imitate him. Like I, I could write a good fake Trump tweet, and you believe it came from him. But but look at the, the previous one didn't look like a, a Trump tweet. This one did. Notice all these superlatives: great, tremendous, amazing. So that's exactly the type of way. Uh, incredible is another one. In just one tweet, like like four or five superlatives, and he doesn't put any space between amazing three exclamation marks and tremendous. That looks like someone who's sick who's hammering out a tweet. So I, I believe that one came from him. Also, this weird tweet an hour later, in all caps, our great USA wants and needs stimulus. Work together to get it done. Thank you. That's a weird thing to write. Like, you think anyone's thinking about the the stimulus when they're going to look at his page? Like, they're going to look at his page to see how he's doing. It's a weird thing for him to also throw in there an hour later. It's almost like he was getting, uh, he wasn't quite all there. <laughs> it's just kind of a weird, it's kind of like when you wake up and you just say a weird thing before you're fully with it. Like in the first 30 seconds you're awake. That's kind of what it's like. It's like he, it's kind of like he was really out of it and just typed this out. So that's what he wrote uh, yesterday. Then today, he put out a four minute video. Trader Risky, have you seen this video yet? I did. Yeah. So I'm going to play it for you guys. And uh, he's sitting at a desk. He's still at Walter Reed. But they have him at a desk with some flags behind him. And he's trying to project like he's okay. So listen to this and we'll talk about it. 
I want to begin by thanking all of the incredible medical professionals, the doctors, the nurses, everybody at Walter Reed Medical Center. I think it's the finest in the world for the incredible job they've been doing. Uh, I came here, wasn't feeling so well. I feel much better now. We're working hard to get me all the way back. I have to be back because we still have to make America great again. We've done an awfully good job of that. But we still have steps to go, and we have to finish that job. And I'll be back. I think I'll be back soon. And I look forward to finishing up the campaign the way it was started and the way... Let me stop there for a second here. A few things to take away from it already. Uh, he's sitting, not standing. The previous video for 18 seconds, this is a four-minute video, but the, the previous video of 18 seconds, he was standing. The fact that he's not standing here is telling. If he could stand, he would. Because standing is indicative that you're healthy enough to stand. You have the energy to stand. The fact that he's sitting is already showing that he probably does not have the ability to stand. That he wanted, he wanted to project that he's as healthy as possible, but just simply could not stand for this. So uh, when I say stand for this, I mean that like he can't physically stand. So the, so they dressed him up. He's, he's in a suit. He doesn't have a tie on, but he's in a suit without a tie. He's got the flag on his lapel. He's sitting there at this desk with the flags behind him, and he's trying as hard as he can to speak normally and sound okay. Let's continue. The way we've been doing, the kind of numbers that we've been doing, we've been so proud of it. But this was something that happened, and it's happened to millions of people all over the world, and I'm fighting for them, not just in the U.S. I'm fighting for them all over the world. We're going to beat this coronavirus or whatever you want to call it, and we're going to beat it soundly. So many things have happened. If you look at the therapeutics, which I'm taking right now, some of them, and others are coming out soon that are looking like, uh, frankly, they're miracles. If you okay, so let's stop this again. It was reported that he took some experimental therapeutics here to fight the coronavirus, which is weird. And that was acknowledged. It's not like a, a fringe conspiracy report. It was acknowledged that he was taking some experimental drugs. Now, it's possible that he just wanted to. It's possible that he just said, let's try it. That he was afraid that he'd become a statistic and be one of those uh, people over 70 who dies of it. So it's possible that he believed in it and wanted to take it. But nevertheless, he took therapeutics, and there's some belief that perhaps this was worse than it appeared for a while, and that that's why they resorted to that. That uh, possibly he had breathing problems, and possibly this wasn't looking very good, and that he has taken some things to try to help the situation. However, I will say that even though it's clear he's not healthy here, he still isn't as bad as what I call the mid-level symptoms. Because someone with those mid-level symptoms could not do this. They could not be propped up at a table and make a four-minute speech. It didn't have to be four minutes. Like, he, he could have done one minute. He could have done two minutes. He did four minutes, which is pretty long to speak when you're really, really sick with a coronavirus. So this at least shows, and this was today, this at least shows that he was... Uh, well enough to, uh, to to speak for four minutes. Maybe not stand. Maybe he sounds fatigued and kind of winded, as you'll hear as I play the rest of this. But at least he was well enough to speak for four minutes straight. 
which is a lot better than those who are experiencing mid-level symptoms. So this is a good sign for him. You want to know the truth? There are miracles. People criticize me when I say that. But we have things happening that look like they're miracles coming down from God. So I just want to tell you that I'm starting to feel good. Uh, you don't know over the next period of a few days. I guess that's the real test. So we'll be seeing what happens over those next cu- next couple of days. I just want to be so thankful for all of the support I've seen, whether it's on television or reading about it. Uh, I most of all appreciate what's been said by the American people, by almost a bipartisan consensus of American people. Let me stop that again. He said, be careful. We're going to look at the next couple of days. That, that, that's, those are the big days here. And we've seen this from his official doctors, too. That something about the next 48 hours are critical. That's a little bit weird to say if everything's going okay. Because the way the coronavirus works is that, um, usually with, with the progression of it, is that it gets worse and worse and then hits a peak and then uh, hangs there and gets better. And for those that die, it never hits that peak. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse and eventually you die. And that's what's very scary about it is as things get worse and worse, you don't know where it's going to stop. Is it going to stop at just being super fatigued where you can't do anything? Is it going to stop at that plus breathing problems? Is it going to stop at uh, that plus uh, you being in critical condition or is it going to stop with you dead? And it's a helpless feeling, a super helpless feeling to just watch it progress every day to get worse and worse and worse and worse and you feel like there's no stopping it. It's just whatever it's destined to do, it's going to do. And you just don't know where it's headed. So once it levels off and slows down and, and kind of hangs there at the same spot, like if you're super fatigued but if you're not having breathing problems and it sits that way for days, then you can say, okay, very good chance it's not going to get past this and very good chance I'm going to survive this and it'll be fine, as bad as it is right now. But uh, they're saying it's critical for the next uh, few days. So to me it sounds like things have not gotten better. It seems like... Things are probably getting worse for him every day, but they're not to the point yet where it's even like mid-level symptoms. It's a, It looks like, if I had to guess here, it kind of looks like it's between moderate and mid-level where he's very fatigued, probably has a fever, probably has a number of concerning symptoms, but he's he's able enough to sit up and talk for four minutes and then hope it doesn't get worse tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And... That's what he's talking about, that if it – probably the doctor's told him if it stays here for the next few days and doesn't get worse, you're going to recover. If it keeps getting worse and worse, we don't know what's going to happen. So that, I think that's what he's trying to say without putting it that way. And by the way, he's not getting bipartisan support. I've seen really nasty things written on Twitter of people that yeah, – there's a lot of sharing of the Ivan Drago Rocky Four meme of if he dies, he dies. Which, by the way, I, I made a reference to that in a poker tournament 15 years ago at Commerce. Believe it or not, they were covering every single Commerce tournament, like even small ones back in 05 because the poker boom was so big. They actually they actually assigned reporters in the poker media to cover every little tournament. So they were covering a limit hold'em tournament. And I was down to the final three. And I was the uh, chip leader of the final three. And they asked if I want to make a deal and the other two wanted to make a deal 
And I said, no. And they said, why? And I said, if I go down, I go down. And I actually said that thinking of Ivan Drago. If he dies, he dies. And then I did go down. I finished second. So Now, the good thing was the deal would have given me about second place money anyway. I think like a little bit more. So I didn't really cost myself much. But, uh, yeah, I said if I go down, I go down in reference to that. Anyway, a lot of memes of that, a lot of people saying they hope he dies. A lot of stuff from people who don't like Trump who were uh, rooting for the coronavirus to take him out. So maybe some high-profile politicians were insincerely saying they want him to get through this. But uh, I, I think the support he's been getting have been people who are on his side anyway. But that aside, I think I think he's nervous. I think he's aware of the fact that the next few days are going to determine where this goes. And that's exactly what I've worried about if I were to catch COVID. You know how Tom Petty said the waiting is the hardest part. That's definitely true with COVID because you don't know where it's going. You don't have an indication at the beginning how bad it's going to get. You don't know where it's going to stop. And the older you are, the higher chances that it will just keep getting worse and worse and worse and worse and kill you. So the only solace I would take in getting it, in the, I would look at the numbers of people that are dying at my age, and they're pretty low. Not low like a 35-year-old or a 25-year-old, but, but still pretty low at age 48. But if I was 74, I'd say, you know what, there's a fair chance this is going to progress to the point that it kills me. Now, we'll get shortly to the chance of it getting that far and killing Donald Trump. We'll listen to the rest of his uh, video here. By, by the way, Traderski, can you hear what I'm playing? I can. Good. Beautiful thing to see, and I very much appreciate it, and I won't forget it. I promise you that. I also want to thank the leaders of the world for uh, their condolences and their they know what we're going through. They know what, as your leader, what I have to go through. But I had no choice because I just didn't want to stay in the White House. I was given that alternative. Stay in the White House. Lock yourself in. Don't ever leave. Don't even go to the Oval Office. Just stay upstairs and enjoy it. Don't see people. Don't talk to people. And just be done with it. And I can't do that. I had to be out front and this is America. This is the United States. This is the greatest country in the world. This is the most powerful country in the world. I can't be locked up in a room upstairs and totally safe and uh, just say, hey, whatever happens, happens. I can't do that. We have to confront problems. As a leader, you have to confront problems. There's never been a great leader that would have done that. So that's where it is. I'm doing well. I want to thank everybody. Our First Lady is doing very well. Melania asked me to say something as to the respect that she has for our country, the love that she has for our country. And uh, we're both doing well. Melania is uh, really handling it very nicely. As you've probably read, she's slightly younger than me, just a little tiny bit. And uh, therefore, just we know the disease, we know the situation with age versus uh, younger people, and uh, Melania is handling it statistically like it's supposed to be handled. And uh, that makes me very happy, and it makes the country very happy. Yeah, uh, Melania, by the way, is 50 years old. She is uh, about two years older than me. And 
I wouldn't say – I heard her that she's got very mild symptoms, which is better than the average 50-year-old. If you're 50 and you're getting mild symptoms, you're doing great. So I would say she's handling it better than you'd expect at that age. She is thin, which helps. Lighter people do better with this statistically. Obviously, at 50, she's a lot better off than someone who's 74. But – yeah, I'm hearing that Melania is not having a lot of trouble with it, unless they're not being honest about it. But she, she's probably doing well. She's probably fortunate enough to have a, a very mild case of it. But I'm also doing well, and I think we're going to have a very good result. Again, over the next few days, we're going to probably know for sure. So I just want to thank everybody out there, everybody all over the world, specifically the United States. The outpouring of love has been incredible. I will never forget. Thank you very much. Okay, so that's his statement, and you can hear in his voice he's not as animated as he usually is. You could hear he's he's putting a lot of effort into being able to make that speech, but it was four minutes, and he sat up and did it. So he's doing better than he could be. He's doing better than a lot of people I've known that have had it that are much younger. But as he said, the next few days are critical, and he wouldn't say that if that wasn't true. Like I think if if he felt that it's already peaked and he's already on the way back, he would tell you. Because it would be to his advantage to tell you he's beating it. He wants to project that he's doing well. So the fact that he's even admitting that the next few days could be a problem shows that he's concerned and that we just have to wait and that probably symptoms are getting worse every day. So we'll have to see. It'll also be telling what we don't see. So if we don't see him at a table again talking to us, if he's only tweeting, or if the tweets go silent especially, or if the tweets don't go silent but don't seem to be like him, and it seems like someone else is operating for him, that might be indicative that he lacks the energy to do anything, and then at that point it could deteriorate very fast. I was talking with someone about what we would hear if he really was taking a rapid turn for the worse, which he isn't yet, but if he gets like really bad, will we hear about it? And my prediction is we're not going to hear much until like it's really getting close to him dying. And then I think we would still not hear the full extent of it until he actually were to pass away. So like, let's say he were to get to a critical phase. I think they put something out that uh, Donald Trump's condition is worsening, but he's stable and his doctors are working with him and uh, uh, let's all hope, help, hope and pray for him or something like that that they downplay how much danger he'd be in, and then, like, a day later, we'd hear that he passed away. Like, uh, I could totally picture it being like that, that we're, we're not going to really have any time where we're hearing it's critical, unless it's like, lasts a long time, unless he's one of these people who goes critical and stays critical for, like, two weeks before passing away. So we will see. It Remember, it is a not a long process, but it's not a super rapid process. So people don't discover they have COVID and then die within like four days. That's usually not how it goes unless it leads to a heart attack or stroke. But if it kills you the typical way it kills you, then it's a process of about two weeks usually between noticing symptoms and death. Sometimes a little faster, sometimes slower, but around two weeks. And that's why they talk about the two-week death lag, that when you're looking at the death numbers for COVID, you have to know that these are numbers for infections two weeks ago and that when the death rate is going up, that means that two weeks ago things were getting worse, not that things are currently getting worse and that you, it's always two weeks behind. So he hasn't had this for two weeks. We will have to see. 
I don't understand what he's talking about. Like uh, he could have stayed in the White House and he hid away from everybody, but that president shouldn't do this. He is hiding away from everybody in, in Walter Reed. He's he's further from the White House, so he is. Like, it's uh, that was kind of a weird statement, but he should have just stuck to saying I wanted to get the best care possible and give myself the maximum chance to beat this. So I wanted to go to a medical facility that I respect. And so I had them bring me to Walter Reed. That's all he had to say. So uh, we will see going forward. Now, if, uh, well, before we talk about if he were to pass away, what are the chances that he would pass away? Well, they're lower than you think. A lot of people who, especially those who are hoping he dies, say, oh, well, he's 74, he's obese, blah, blah, blah. Okay. What is defined as obese in the U.S., I think shouldn't be called obese because there's a very wide range of what's obese. There's people that are really noticeably obese. And then there's ones that are called obese that are just overweight. And the problem is there's not a very wide range of overweight before you transition to be what's clinically obese. Um, At my highest weight in August, 2018, I think I was like right, there at the very edge of obese. Like, I think I actually was briefly, quote, obese there. And I wasn't. I People saw me then. I didn't look obese. So that I didn't feel obese. I wasn't obese. I, I don't care what the numbers said I was. And uh, now I'm not, no matter what way you look at it. But uh, I, I feel that what's called obese should be higher. And that's Something that's never been made clear, they talk about the BMI and those who are over 30 BMI of what what the chance is of them uh, dying of COVID versus those under 30. Well, what about people over 35 versus those who are 30? What about those who are 40 versus 35 BMI? Like uh, That's more important to see because then you start to look at actual obese people versus ones who are technically obese but don't really look it and really aren't that much overweight. So – Donald Trump, you look at him, he's overweight for sure, but he doesn't look obese. He doesn't. And if you take away any hatred you may have for Trump, and just look at it objectively, you just picture you're looking at a typical man walking by who you don't know, who looks like Donald Trump uh, body-wise. You wouldn't say, oh, that guy's obese. you just go, oh, it's, it's a heavy older guy. That's what you'd say. So is his weight perhaps a factor? Yeah. If he was thin, he would have a better shot. Is his age a factor? Yes, very much. That is the biggest factor. Some people say, oh, it's it's weight's the biggest factor. No, it's not. Age is by far the biggest factor. By far. It's not even close. Obesity is second, but age is first by a wide margin. That's the big problem, is if you're old. And if you're on the other side, if you're young, then unless you have an unusual pre-existing condition then you're not going to get it very badly unless you're super unlucky. And don't worry about those few outlier cases of where someone completely healthy who's 25 ends up uh, in critical condition. Yes, it happens. It's super rare. So truthfully, if you're 25, you don't have to worry much about this. And we had Mr. Tickle on this show in Russia, and he said that's the attitude he eventually took. He mentioned going to a party, and he's like, he said, yeah, at first I was worried about it and keeping away, and then I thought, you know what? I'm not, a, I'm not living with anyone older I'm not worried about it myself. I'm 25 years old. Screw it. 
And that would be the attitude I would take if I was 25. But I'm not 25, so I take a different attitude. So age is a big deal. Him being 74 is a big deal. And what's the chance it could kill him? Well, for someone who is over 70, the chance of dying of COVID is 5.4% once you catch it. However, over 70 is a very wide range because it includes those over 80, over 90, and even the few people who are over 100. They're all lumped in with over 70. So when you're 74, you're on the lower end of that. So people who are 70, 71, 72 are going to do a lot better on average than those who are in their 80s or 90s. So just saying over 70, that's putting everybody together. And if you took out those who are over 80, then that 5.4% number would go way down because you have a much higher chance of dying of this over, over 80 than if you're in your 70s. Also, people have a lot of health problems in their older age. And you may say, well, Donald Trump might have health problems. He just won't, he won't show us his medical records. He, he may be full of health problems. Yeah, but I don't mean like that. I'm talking about debilitating health problems that really, really put them in bad shape. In fact, that's the reason, that's one of the two reasons that people in nursing homes are dying of this at such a high rate. Number one, it spreads like wildfire in there because you know what it does indoors. And number two, nursing homes have people who are usually in bad health. It's usually old people who are not in good enough health to take care of themselves. Some of them are very sick. Some of them are very frail. Uh, it's just if you're in a nursing home, there's a very good chance that you have major health problems that prevent you from living normally and you need others to take care of you. And you're usually put there because family members don't want the burden of doing it themselves. And they say, let's put you in this home where uh, you can be cared for. Nursing homes are terrible places, by the way. I would never want to put my parents in one. My parents are healthy and don't need to go in one. But if they were to get to where a uh, nursing home uh, would be an option, I wouldn't want them there because it's, it's a terrible place. E- even before COVID, it's a terrible place. But uh, all, nursing home, all nursing homes are. Some are worse than others, but all of them suck. Anyway, if you take away the nursing home deaths, and Donald Trump would not be in a nursing home if he was just like a regular guy. Let's say he wasn't famous, just average regular guy Donald Trump, as hard as that is to picture, he wouldn't be in a nursing home. He'd be living under his own power and take care of himself. So if you take away nursing home people from that age group, the survival rate is much higher. So that also drags that number down. So that 5.4% goes way down between taking out the older people and taking out the nursing home people. Because Donald Trump, as I said, regardless of whatever health problems may lurk behind the scenes that we don't know about. He is healthy enough to operate normally, take care of himself, walk around normally, energetic enough to do all these rallies. Like a lot of older people could not do that. So that just seeing the level of activity he has gives you a certain indication of his level of health. So you take all that away and it's nowhere near that 5% for people over 70 when applying it to Donald Trump. I would put his chances of death 
before any of this, you know, like just before he got COVID, if, in theory, what would his chance of death be based on everything we know? I'd probably say it's probably around 1%, maybe 1.5%. However, it's higher than that because he's getting symptoms. And there are a number of old people who just don't get symptoms. They're just asymptomatic. And he's clearly not one of them. So the fact that he's getting symptoms and the fact that these symptoms are enough to warrant transferring him to Walter Reed Medical Center shows that uh, this is progressing somewhat. And that already changes the odds because uh, you have to raise them because a lot of those uh, 95% of people who don't die from COVID over 70 are ones who are asymptomatic or very, very mildly symptomatic, and he's neither. So that would raise him back up. So I believe he has a higher than one, one and a half percent chance of dying. I don't know what the percentage would be. It's definitely not a anywhere near a favorite. It's still a big underdog that he were to die. But uh, we'll have to see. He's right that the next few days will mean something. If it gets a lot worse two days from now, then the chance goes way up that he's going to die. So he's going to have to wait and see. I've heard reports that he's been asking people, like, am I going to die? Is this the end? Like, he's, he's kind of confronting that maybe this is it. Which is tough. You know, when, when you're walking around normally, even at age 74, and then just all of a sudden you've got this and it's starting to progress, and you're thinking, crap, is this, are these my last uh, few days on Earth? You're not really prepared for it. It's not like cancer, which slowly gets you. So we'll see where this goes. If he were to pass away, the Republican Party would have to assign a new uh, candidate. I assume it would be Pence. I don't believe it would have to be him, but uh, I assume that's who it would be. He didn't have any kind of uh, serious primary challenger, as incumbents typically don't. Uh how would Pence fare against Biden? Uh, I don't know. That's very hard to say. On one hand, uh, no one's thought about President Pence, so that really hasn't been a, a consideration. And he is associated with Trump being his vice president all this time. On the other hand, he may benefit. He may get back some voters Trump lost if you know, his Mike Pence has a very different demeanor. Mike Pence is more of the Christian conservative type, but he doesn't act like a clown on Twitter. He, he, Mike Pence acts presidential, regardless of what else you think of him. You may not like his policies or his uh, uh, his religious devotion or uh, yes, his opinion on gays and something like that, but he does act presidential where tra- Trump often doesn't. So some people may like that. They say, okay, good, we have, we have a serious president again. Okay, well, I'll go back to the Republican Party. So I, I don't know the way people would handle it. I really have no idea how Pence would then fare against Joe Biden if he were to become the new nominee. And, of course, there's not much time left. There's less than a month before the election. And some people have already voted. Some people have already received their ballots in the mail. In fact, I think in California they're arriving – I, I think I was told I was supposed to get mine uh, 
yesterday, but I don't believe I did. Did, did you get yours at Trader Risky? I, I did. I got mine uh, Wednesday or Thursday. Maybe I just didn't check the mail yet. I'm trying to think. Maybe, maybe I didn't check the mail. Uh, but yeah, you could you could already fill out your ballot and send sent it in. And if you voted based upon thinking it was Trump versus Biden, and it turns out to be Pence versus Biden because Trump passes away, uh, too late. You can't take back the vote. So there's that too. That a lot of not, right now, now in California, you know, and also Pence being the head of the Coronavirus Task Force, and now the president. And everybody, get, I mean, it is a disaster. How could he even compete? It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Uh, I would still believe Biden would be the favorite if uh, Trump were to pass away and Pence were to take over. And also, I, I don't know how many other states got their ballots this early. California doesn't really matter because we know Biden's winning California. But uh, other states where it's not as clear who's going to win, I don't know when they're getting their ballots. And also, as I said, it's it's not likely Trump's going to die tomorrow or the next day. It would be a process that would probably take two weeks. So it, it'll be interesting to see where this goes if if – Trump does end up dying and we finish up with President Pence for a few months. That would be a, uh, a very big story in history that would be studied 100 and 200 years from now. So there's that would be uh, something that would be pretty amazing for people to read about in the future that during this coronavirus pandemic just before the election the president gets it and then dies well and they're going to be showing him forget the mask teasing biden about his mask then he got it and died yeah that's true you know, I, that, mean, I know that's the, yeah that too so uh and then there's also the question if uh, if he survives this which is still the most likely scenario that he's going to survive this and uh and be the candidate how is America going to react to this? Is, is America going to say, well, Trump, you screwed this up so badly, even you got it? Or are they going to look at this with sympathy, like, wow, President Trump beat the coronavirus. We're proud of him. What a, what a heroic story. And then uh, we're voting for him. Like, we're all feeling good. Like, sometimes the, uh, a public figure like that, if they bet, battle an illness and then come back from it and survive it, their approval rating goes up. So uh, it's hard to tell what will happen here with what people think of him and we and it's even possible that uh some people will be turned off by seeing some people on the left on social media uh being very callous and nasty about this and uh that it might also push them votes to trump I've, I've seen some of that i've seen some people in the middle saying they're disgusted seeing some of the comments that are being made and that uh, that this is making them reconsider their support of the Democratic Party. And this is not from – I'm not talking about comments from prominent Democratic figures. They're smart enough not to do that, but uh, talking about just randoms on social media. So if, if there's enough of that, I could see also people in the, in the center going, oh, wow, they, well, the other side is disgusting. Okay, never mind. We don't want to be associated with them. So the, the, the people on the left are doing themselves no favors talking like this out there because this is just turning off voters who are considering voting for Biden – Make it, if it makes it seem like a lot of Democrats are thinking this way, that would turn off a lot of people who are in the middle and still not deciding it. So that could also influence the election as well. So there's a lot of wild cards here. I mean, just so many in this election. It's just so hard to figure out what's going to happen because uh, so many weird things this year in, in 2020, and this is one of them. So, uh, And it is interesting, Trump. I mean, what would they do? You're right. So many people probably voted already. 
So then if something drastic happened in the next couple weeks, and then there's a new name on the ballot, or can they even put a new name on the ballot? The ballot's already went out. Yeah. Uh, it's really weird. I don't know. I don't know how way that's handled. And yeah, it'd be a mess. It'd be a tremendous mess. So or maybe because they're on the same ticket, it would just automatically go to the number two. Yeah, it might. I, I didn't yes. think of that, but yeah, they, you're voting for Trump Biden, so I don't try Trump, but you're voting for Trump Pence, so yeah, maybe it just goes to just Pence, and then whoever he picks as VP. That's true. Can't they just all come together and have a Trump Biden? <laughs> Is that what you're hoping for? <laughs> that that would really be chaos. Uh, anyway, we'll see what happens, and I'm sure by next week's show that uh, we'll know a lot more about this. It's a very big days uh, going forward with this matter. Okay, uh, getting away from politics, we talked about how uh, Doug Polk and Daniel Negreanu are going to be on the same side in the Apostle lawsuit. But they're not going to be on the same side at the poker table, or pretty much for anything else. Uh, on November 1st, we now have a date. That is the date. November 1st is the Doug Polk versus Daniel Negreanu heads-up grudge match that has been talked about for a few months. Now, they've been going back and forth on Twitter, deciding uh, what are the terms, what is the date going to be. There's a lot of different uh, things that they were discussing as to uh, what was going to happen with this match. It seemed like both were interested, so it didn't look like either was stalling. There was just a lot they had to hash out. Uh, Where is it going to be? What are the blinds going to be? What are the other rules? How long do they have to play? How many hands do they have to play? How long do they have to play each day? They have a lot of different terms that they're all discussing, but it does look like that it looked like the whole way that they were interested in making this happen. Uh, Polk being considered perhaps the best heads up, no limit specialist in the world. Negranu being a great all around poker player, but one who is probably better at limit games than no limit games. And in fact, he came up playing limit games as did uh, many of the middle age and older poker pros who were playing when uh, Limit Poker was bigger, myself included. So in a heads-up, no-limit match, there's no question that Negreanu is the underdog. If you remember, Negreanu wanted to be the underdog, that Polk even offered, hey, I I know that uh, heads-up, no-limit is my game. Would you like to throw in a mixed game, which you're better at? Which is true. Negreanu is a better mixed game player than Polk is. If if Negreanu were to throw in some mix-limit games, he would be a lot better than Polk and he would probably have a similar edge that Polk has over him in Heads Up No Limit. But Negreanu's like, no, no, that's okay. <laughs> so it's obvious that Negreanu cares more about maintaining the underdog status than he does about winning this, which is really interesting. Like, who would ever turn down being able to have a game in there that you're better at? But it looks like Negreanu wants to be able to defend this if he loses. Instead of, oh, Negrana, you suck, you're a has-been because uh, you lost this. Now it's, oh, I lost this because I'm against the best uh, heads-up no limit player in the world, so of course I'm going to lose. It's like what I talked about in, in junior high school. I preferred to have fist fights with kids who were perceived to be uh, a little bit stronger than me than ones who would be perceived that I would beat because uh, I wanted to fight with no expectation that I was going to win. 
because uh, it would be embarrassing if I lost to the kid everyone thought I was going to win against. And if I lose to someone they think is going to beat me up, then it, there's no humiliation in it. So uh, that's basically the Negreanu's thinking here. And we've talked about that before. But they, but nevertheless, they have been trying to hammer out the details, and it looks like they really want to have this match. So uh, Polk started feeling, though, that it was uh, dragging. So he tweeted on October 1st, All right, I'm sick of the runaround. Does anyone know how to get in touch with Negreanu so we can actually schedule this match? He tweets at me once in a while, and they go silent. It's been two months. I'm ready to fucking battle. Let's work out some details. So Negreanu responded, saying, Well, this tweet is awkward. You're all riled up, eh? I guess that's his Canadian side coming through. You have been talking to Maury and Brent, no? I'm not sure what that means, but uh, I have said they, I, I, I have, and they said they spoke with you. All that's left is waiting on a final legal opinion to see what options are available. November 1st could work. Feel better? I'm not sure what he's talking about, the legal options, and that doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, the Maury and Brent he's talking about are uh, Maury, Escandari, and Brent Hanks of Poker Go. And I guess that's to broadcast it, but I, I don't know what that has to do with anything. But Negreanu threw out November 1st. So then they started going back and forth about details and uh, what exactly is going to happen in this match. So finally, it was hammered out. Uh, they're going to be playing two tables of 200-400 heads up, no limit, hold them online. That's 200-400 blinds. Dollars. They will start with 100 big blind stacks, but anytime someone uh, falls below uh, some th- certain threshold, I'm not sure what it is, it'll automatically top back up to 100 big blinds. So you, you're never going to be short stack. You're not going to have someone with uh, 15 big blinds on the table. So it's going to be yeah, fairly deep at all times. They're going to play a 25,000 hand match with an option for the one who is down to quit when they get to the uh, 12,500 mark. So if someone's getting their ass beat, they can say, you know what, we're done. I don't want to lose any more money to you. Let's quit here and you're the winner. Uh, also... At the 12,500 mark, both players can agree to raise the stakes. Now, I don't know why they can't do that at any point. Why, why, if it's both agreeing, who else is involved? Like, why can't they do it at any, after the first hand, they could agree. Like, that's, that's a weird thing to put there. And Polk was, uh, so Negreanu said that he would agree to a two hour minimum session length. And also, Polk wanted an inspection request. And that is that uh, with this, all this talk about the real-time assistance, that uh, either could send a representative over to look at the other one's uh, uh, play, to watch the other one, and make sure the, uh, that, that no one's uh, cheating in any way. So uh, they could that, that one could send the other, you know, one of their friends over to just watch that. The other, the opponent is not doing anything wrong. Negranu said that he's okay with it being streamed and that uh, Kane Callis can be the commentator, but he's not going to show his whole cards, which sucks. Like, that sucks for viewing. And Polk said that he wants to play more than two hours a day and said otherwise this whole thing could take more than 100 days. Negranu said he was hoping to play uh, four or five days per week for about 20 hours total. 
what what Polk tweeted specifically was, uh, I'm good with commentary from Kane streaming with webcam on delay and two-hour sessions, but I think we got to do at least two sessions a day. Now, where's it going to be played? Negroni wanted on GG Poker, and and uh, Polk's like, uh, no. Which, I agree. I'm not saying Negroni would cheat. I'm saying that you never want it to be on the platform that is associated with the person you're playing. It was my criticism of the Galfon challenge that it shouldn't take place on run at once. Because even if Galfond isn't cheating, and even if Galfond uh, has no idea of any cheating, that people could be doing it on his behalf who have an interest to see the side ex- succeed. I'm not saying it's happening. I'm just saying that uh, these things are all possibilities that would not be possibilities if you play on a neutral site. So like if Galfond played on party against somebody unaffiliated with party, then there's like about zero chance there's going to be any kind of cheating for anybody. But uh, I would not think that the run at once challenge should be on run at should be. I don't think the Galfon challenge should be on run at once, nor should it be on any site that's associated with his opponent. It should be in completely neutral territory. I feel this should be as well. Now, Doug Polk doesn't have a site associated with him, but GG is associated with Negranu. So I think something like party poker would be a good one. Or they could do it on WSOP.com. That would be a good one, too. They have not decided yet. But anyway, it looks like it is going to happen on November 1st. They're going to have a webcam on them, and it's going to be on delay. So we are getting close to seeing all the details with this, and it looks like it's going to happen in uh, four weeks. So that'll be interesting. I really wish there were whole cards. I know Polk wanted whole cards, and Negreanu has never wanted them. He's afraid that uh, Polk will analyze his play, but he has the same power. I mean, he could do it too. So it's kind of sucky for the viewers we can't see the whole cards. I'm not sure if this is going to hold my interest now. <laughs> now that I think of it, seeing it without whole cards is kind of brutal. Because a lot of the fun of this as an observer is you see what they have, and then you get to see how they play when they can't see. If neither of you can see, it's, it's not that fun. I actually did commentating where I could not see the whole cards. And uh, that was at the Limit Hold'em final table. Of, was that the Joy Miller incident? Yeah, the Joy Miller incident one. In 2009, uh, I, was, uh, I was having to comment without uh, seeing whole cards. Uh, at least I think – what was it uh, – yeah, I, I'm pretty sure I couldn't see the whole card. I remember I got compliments from people that I was able to say what I thought people had and was pretty accurate with it. And, in fact, it was interesting about commentating on that is I found, like, I did the best hand reading in that that I've ever done in Limit Hold'em because when my money's not involved, when my play's not involved, it's so much easier to see everything when you have, like, no emotional attachment to it. But... uh but it, yeah, it's it's hard to have interest as a viewer without whole cards, so that kind of sucks. Do you think uh, Polk and Negrani will be on better terms once they have uh, negotiated all this, played, and even fought on the same side in the possible lawsuit? I think no. I'll tell you a few reasons for that. Number one, they're they're not doing this in a friendly fashion. Like they're they're still they've still sniped at each other. 
this hasn't been a very friendly comment. Like it hasn't been a friendly negotiation back and forth. It's kind of like a matter of fact negotiation with some occasional hostility or passive aggressive hostility. You can tell they don't like each other as they talk back and forth. So it's it's not even like they're they once didn't like each other, but now they're talking about this as as uh, reasonable adults who are like, yeah, you know what? He's not that bad. Okay, let's talk about this. This will be fun. Like they, they, they're they're kind of doing this through their hatred of each other, which is kind of awkward to see. But this will be an interesting match, even if we can't see the whole cards. But I'm not sure how much I can watch of this. That's gonna. If there were whole cards, I think I'd want to see a lot of this. I don't know if I could watch like 20 hours a week of no whole cards. I think this would be the type of thing I'd like leave on in the background and say, oh, look, oh, wow, Paul's up now. Oh, wow, Negroni's up now. Like, it'll be like that. Uh, am I going to be rooting for anybody? No. I'm just going to be watching with interest. I don't really have an interest in this. I have, uh, I have no dislike of anyone involved here. I have no friendship with anyone involved here. I've had very little personal interaction at all with Doug Polk. Negrani, well, I don't think he likes me that much, but I don't, I don't mind him. I don't agree with everything he's done and said recently, but I, I really don't mind Negrano. So I, I don't, I'm not rooting for anybody, to be honest. I'll just be watching. I won't really be disappointed if one is beating the other. It's kind of like the Galfon challenge. Like, I'm not rooting for Phil or against Phil when I watch these things. I'm not covering it on the show, but Phil is playing uh, Chance Corn Youth, and he's ahead. He almost lost his lead, and then he had a good session. He's back ahead by a good deal. So he'll probably win that, too. All right, let's uh, let's move on here. Caesars, some news with them. Caesars has purchased bookmaker William Hill for a lot of money, and that's actually a pretty big deal. Caesars, which is fresh off of a merger with El Dorado, has now made another big splash. The merger was a $17.3 billion merger with El Dorado Resorts, which added a bunch of casinos to the Caesars Empire. Not in Las Vegas, but around the country. And they have announced that they have agreed to purchase London-based bookmaker William Hill for a lot of money. $100 billion! Yeah. Okay, not quite. $3.7 billion. $3.7 billion they have bought William Hill. William Hill used to be something that was only in the UK. In fact, believe it or not, I once played on the William Hill Poker Room. They used to be part of the Interpoker Network. And it was funny because they had vocalizations for your actions. You could turn them off, but I actually left them on because they were kind of funny. So you'd have this British guy every time you do something. Bet, fold, fold, check, raise, bet, fold. That was their poker room for a while. But they were better known in the UK as a bookmaker. You could legally bet sports with William Hill, and they've been around for a long time. Um, Fred Ruski's not going to be around for a long time. We're losing connection to him. And Caesars has bought them. Now... William Hill was not just in the UK. William Hill was operating a lot of these sports books in Las Vegas. And you may say, well, how's that possible? There's no William Hill Casino. Well, what a lot of casinos decided was they didn't want the hassle of a sports book. A sports book is a headache to a lot of casinos because it's completely separate. They have to have experts there 
who understand the entire sports betting market. They have to have people who set the lines. They have to have people who are experts at setting proper limits and proper risk, and they have to watch out for uh, sharp sports bettors and put limits on them so they don't get decimated by people who are winning sports bettors. There's a lot you have to do, and some casinos have decided it's just not worth it. So for a while, what casinos would do is they would just have fairly low-limit sports books, where if you'd walk in there and you want to place a bet of $2,000, they wouldn't let you. So I, I had that happen. I would walk into sports books and want to place a bet, and they'd say, hold on. They'd bring it to the manager. And they, nope, the manager said no. I'm talking about like 2K. They sometimes deny my bets. Depending where this was, uh, some places would take more risks than others, but some casinos just took the attitude, we don't want to risk much. We'd rather just take a large volume and pretty much assure ourselves a win. The only time they'd want to take a large bet is if they already have a lot of money on the other side because really what they're looking to do is guarantee themselves a win where they have equal money on each side and they win because of the juice they charge each person. But they can't force that to happen. They can adjust the line, but sometimes they're just not going to get even money on both sides and uh, and they end up losing if they're on the wrong side of it. So a lot of casinos just kind of decided this isn't worth it. They, they just don't want the headache of this. They don't feel like searching for the right personnel. They don't want to take the risk. They don't want to have the the issue with keeping the limits too low and having their gamblers be unhappy because, you know, they may have high rollers in the place that like playing uh, high-stakes blackjack and high-stakes craps and placing high-stakes sports bets, and it's frustrating for these people to come over to the sports book and they're limited to 2000 bucks. So then they think badly of the casino and they'll want to come back there. So they'd rather just have experts in place that take their own risk, like a, a big company like William Hill that's willing to risk their own money and basically just rent out the space, and the book appears to be that of the, of the casinos, but it's really William Hill. William Hill's taking all the financial risk, and they're paying a consistent rent to the casino. So the casino can guarantee themselves a consistent income stream and forget about it. And so more and more often this was happening in Vegas, and a lot of people don't realize that. A lot of people just walk into a sports book in a hotel, and they assume that this is run by that hotel because that's the way it used to be. But then that has been changing over the years, and William Hill was running a lot of books in Vegas. So this is not a surprising acquisition because William Hill already had a substantial presence in Vegas in the books. So they already had an agreement where Caesars was going to allow William Hill to run most of their sports books, including their online sports books. But then William Hill disclosed that they received an offer to be purchased by private equity firm Apollo Global Management. And Caesar said, ah, you know what? F it. Let's, let's just buy them. <laughs> they just decided that instead of just letting Apollo Global Management grab them, that instead Caesars is just going to buy it themselves and eliminate any future headache with the new owners. First of all, Caesars, to make it a little bit more difficult on uh, William Hill, if they were to accept the Apollo offer, quote, attached strings to the current agreement if it were to be uh, acquired by Apollo. So basically they were going to cease some elements of the current arrangement, which I guess they were able to do contractually, if Apollo ended up buying William Hill. So that makes the purchase less uh, appealing to William Hill and also to Apollo for that matter. 
So then Caesar said, hey, we're going to make it tougher on you if Apollo buys you. But how about we just buy you? So uh, a short time after that, it was agreed that uh, Caesars would be the one buying William Hill and not Apollo Global Management. Now, this is not a done deal. There must be approval from regulatory bodies, and this probably won't happen until around a year from now. Maybe a little less, maybe a little more, but something around a year from now. The CEO of Caesars, Tom Reed, said the opportunity to combine our land-based casinos, sports betting, and online gaming in the U.S. is truly an exciting prospect. William Hill Sports Betting Expertise will complement Caesars' current offering, enabling the combined group to serve our customers in the fast-growing U.S. sports betting and online market. We look forward to working with William Hill to support future growth in the U.S. by providing our customers with a superior and comprehensive experience across all areas of gaming, sports betting, and entertainment. So that doesn't really say much. It's just a typical uh, CEO speak. They put out a press release on... PRnewswire.com, which is common. They put this out on September 30th. Roger Devlin, the chairman of William Hill, said the William Hill board... Uh, let me start this again. The William Hill board uh, believes this is the best option for William Hill at an attractive price for shareholders. It recognizes the significant progress the William Hill group has made over the last 18 months, as well as the risk and significant investment required to maximize the U.S. opportunity given intense competition in the U.S. and the potential for regulatory disruption in the U.K. and Europe. Under the revitalized senior leadership team, William Hill has been delivering on its strategy and potential. William Hill is one of the world's leading betting and gambling companies with a long and proud heritage. It's one of the most recognized brands globally. Over recent years, it has transformed from a business once heavily reliant on UK retail into a company that is truly diversified by geography and channel, providing a stable standalone platform for future growth. For now, it's very much business as usual. Employees will be kept fully informed for this process, and in terms of UK and international businesses, we believe they will have a strong future ahead and will work with Caesars to find suitable partners to further the long-term growth prospects of both businesses. So they are hoping that uh, not only will this be good for the Caesars and William Hill businesses, but that anyone else uh, they're working with, there will be quite a strong future ahead. Now, there's a little more to it. There are some uh, non-U.S. aspects of William Hill, and 888 Holdings has said that they're interested in acquiring the non-U.S. assets of William Hill. So the same day that Caesars agreed to buy William Hill, 888 Holdings, of course this is 888.com we're talking about, 888 Holdings said they're interested in the pieces of the acquisitions that Caesars doesn't want. So anything Caesars is like, uh, no, 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 we don't really want this part of you guys. Uh, that uh, 888 like, oh yeah, we'll take it, we'll take your sloppy seconds. The CEO of 888, Itai Pazner, said... Uh, we're going to look at any asset that can be relevant for us, and uh, the company is in good position to make acquisitions. And regarding William Hill, we're going to look at any asset that can be relevant for us, and within that list, if that opportunity comes our way, that can be relevant for us. So 888 
the reason they're going to have the ability to do this is that Caesars, even though they're going to be buying the whole thing, Caesars has already said, um, yeah, we're going to be dumping the non-U.S. assets of William Hill. So Caesars does not want to manage this stuff that has nothing to do with the U.S. They, Caesars wants to stick to uh, the U.S.-related uh, William Hill market. Uh, everything else that has to do with uh, other countries, they don't want to get involved. So they're already and they've already made it clear they're going to sell that. And 888 like, ah, yeah, we'll do it. We'll take it. The reason Caesars wants it is because the uh, they basically want William Hill's the sports books within the U.S. The mobile betting, the live sports books. That Caesars actually wants to own that now instead of making licensing agreements with them or, or renting out space to them. By the way, Caesars already owned 20% of William Hill before. That's something that some people don't know, but they did. And 888 and William Hill uh, had already talked before about a sale five years ago. William Hill actually said they wanted to buy 888. There was potentially a $1.14 billion deal on the table, and uh, it never ended up happening. William Hill wanted to buy 888 for a little more than a billion dollars, and 888 was like, no, we're okay. So it's possible that uh, the reverse will occur, and 888 will be buying a portion of William Hill that was first sold to Caesars. This kind of reminds me of uh, when a guy meets two girls, and both of them kind of like him, but he likes one girl better than the other. And he says to his friend, you know, I'm not going to date both of them, so I'm going to date this girl. I'm going to date the girl of these two that I like better. But if you'd like to date her friend who's still pretty good looking, um, I'll introduce the two of you and try to get you both together. That's kind of what's happening here from a sports book standpoint. Caesars is taking what they find attractive and they're uh, handing the rest off possibly to their friend 888, who, by the way, is who they have their licensing agreement for the WSOP.com software. That is 888 software. We'll see what goes on with that. I think it's going to be approved by regulators. We still have almost a year probably until we see whether it is or isn't. Now you may ask, why would Caesars want to do this if the whole point of renting out their sportsbook space was to get the headache and risk away from themselves of running a sportsbook? Why would they now want to own the company that was renting their sportsbook? That not that kind of self-defeating? Well, no, it's not because uh, they saw William Hill ran itself properly. They saw that they were making money. They saw that they were successful in running sportsbooks and uh, being profitable while doing so. Caesars just didn't want to get into that business themselves. They didn't want to have to do it in-house. They didn't want to develop the expertise. They didn't want each property to have to hire individual people to manage this. And uh, yeah, for the reasons I already told you, it was too hard. But it's, it's different to acquire a company that already is doing this and already has their experts in place, already has all their procedures in place, and, and you're just basically owning them. So the way Caesars looks at this is it's just uh, they're going to partner with them anyway. They might as well own them. And uh, William Hill is turning a consistent profit. It's not like William Hill is uh, renting the space and then losing their ass. William Hill is renting the space and making money. So Caesars is like, hey, we'd like this money. And we'll take all your people and we'll take your whole operation. And it can run as it did before, but we're going to own it. That, that's basically what they're doing. That's very different than staffing it in-house. So that's that's why Caesars has the 
desire to do this. So it's actually a pretty big story that Caesars is going to own William Hill because it was starting to be that William Hill was just taking over Nevada sportsbooks. And this was bad because this takes away a variety of lines. Something that you're supposed to do as a responsible sports better, and if you want to be a winning sports better, is line shop. You have to, any game you want to bet, you need to look at several different sports books and see which has the best line. And in Nevada, most of these books you can get online and do it through apps if you're in the state of Nevada. In You, know, you have to set up the account, but I know Brandon has some accounts that you can do this with. Uh, you can look at the in-state books if you live in Nevada or if you're physically in Nevada, and you can pick the best line there. The way I do it is that I uh, I look at the books that I have accounts on, and I then uh, pick the best line. If I didn't, I'd be throwing away money. If I just bet on the first line I saw, I would be literally throwing away money if the thing wins. You might as well get the very best payout possible for the exact same game. So the, you, you cannot just stick to one book if you're going to be a winning sports better. You just can't. The only way that you're going to do that is with a variety of lines and with William Hill taking over more and more sports books, that's a problem. That's one of these cases where consolidation is bad for you. There's a lot of cases in gambling where consolidation is bad for the consumer. And this is one of them. Because William Hill's going to have the same lines everywhere. So if you have tons of different sports books around town, you, you're going to find some that have the better lines. If they're all William Hill, they're all going to have the same lines. And that's much harder. And now Caesars is going to own them. Uh, I don't know if this is a smart purchase or not. I, I don't know if the $3.7 billion price is good. I don't know how much they're going to be able to sell back the non-U.S. assets. It's possible that Caesars sees this as a way they can uh, acquire the whole thing and then sell back the non-U.S. assets for a high enough price to where they're getting the whole thing rather cheaply. Uh, this is exactly what they did with the World Series of Poker on a smaller scale. They bought Binions, took the World Series, and then sold Binions. And they got the World Series almost for free because they sold Binions for a very similar price to what they bought it, but took away the World Series. So that was a brilliant move on their part. They basically got the World Series for free because Binions didn't realize what they were selling. Binions didn't realize how valuable the World Series really was. So they sold to Caesars. Caesars took what they wanted. They took the really valuable piece and then sold the crap casino for essentially the same money they paid, and they got the World Series for pretty much free. Now, they're not going to do that well with William Hill. They're not going to buy William Hill and then resell the non-U.S. assets for $3.7 billion, but it's possible they think that they're going to get a good enough price of the non-U.S. assets that they're going to get it fairly cheaply, and it's very much worth, worth it to own the William Hill U.S. assets, especially if they see the sports betting market growing in the U.S. and becoming a, a very big deal and big money maker. It's also possible that they are doing this because they see sports betting growing so quickly in the U.S. on the legalized front, so they realize that it's not just Nevada. They're going to be able to run William Hill books uh, all over the place. And it's very possible that Caesars, it was bothering them that they're going to have all these sports books in so many places all over the country, especially given that uh, they're now merged with El Dorado, and that uh, and also William Hill will be operating maybe in, in other uh, casino properties, not just Caesars, and that... Uh, they would love to have a piece of all that, but they don't. It's going to be an independent company uh, raking in all that money in the rapidly growing U.S. sports betting market. So that's definitely why they did this purchase, and it may end up being wise. So we shall see. 
Speaking of new development in Las Vegas, Circa. Circa is going to be the first new hotel in downtown in a long time. When I say new, I don't mean a hotel that changes its name or changes ownership or changes theme. I'm talking about new construction from the ground up of a building that was not there before that becomes a new hotel and casino. So Circa is downtown, and uh, it, it has been built. And there has been some question, are they going to open Circa? Because Circa would be opening right in the middle of a pandemic when the number of visitors to Vegas is down and when the whole city is basically a mess. So are they better off just not bothering to open? Well, it looks like they are going to open. Circa was originally scheduled to open in December 2020, but uh, they actually were able to get the gaming license uh, a lot sooner than they thought they could. So they actually have decided they're going to open on October 28th because they already have the gaming license. They were thinking they weren't going to get it till December. So they have announced that they're going to open ahead of schedule, which who'd, who'd guess that? How many times do hotels open ahead of schedule and how often would they do that during a pandemic? But nevertheless, they are opening. Uh, the, the, the first time in 40 years that a Fremont Street casino will be opened, the, a new Fremont Street area casino, because uh, every other casino that is on Fremont Street has existed in some form. Circa is just brand new. By the way, the D and Golden Gates casinos, also downtown, are owned by the same people, the Stevens Brothers. The casino was first announced in January 2019, and uh, then it was announced this year that it's going to be adults only, so you cannot bring kids. It's not just the gaming floor, but the entire hotel... Anyone under 21 is not allowed to set foot in there. They're going to have guards at the door, and if you're under 21 or look under 21, they're going to ID you, and if you are under, if you cannot show you're 21 or over, they're going to boot you out. Now, I doubt they're going to ID everybody. Like, I think if I walk through the door, they're not going to say, Sir, can we see you're 21? I have a feeling they'll be able to tell I'm over 21, but uh, I think they'll probably have security there that is checking for anyone who looks under 30, and they will probably ID them. So it's going to be an adults-only property. In Vegas, usually there's no area that's completely off limits to people under 21, except sometimes some nightclubs. But uh, even the gaming floor, while you're not allowed to stand on the gaming floor, you can actually walk through the gaming floor at uh, all Nevada properties. It's not against the law in Nevada to be a kid and walk through the casino. Now, you do have to be accompanied by an adult to walk through the casino, and you have to be continually moving. But uh, by Nevada state law, you could walk around with your kid, even like a little kid, in circles over and over and over in the casino, and you wouldn't be breaking the law. Now, the casino may just decide they don't like this and boot you out but or tell you to stop, but, uh, but it actually uh, is not against the law in Nevada for kids to be in the casino as long as they're moving. The reason for that law is that uh, a lot of these hotels, you had to walk through the casino to get there, and the... Uh, the state did not want to burden the Las Vegas casinos with having to uh, 
set up special entrances for people who have kids with them. So they came up with the law that as long as kids are moving through the casino and have an adult with them, that they are allowed to walk through. So like Benjamin has walked through casinos before, and that's perfectly legal. I told the story once if we were waiting for his mom to go to the total rewards desk in Lake Tahoe and that uh, I had Benjamin waiting there with me and security came up and go, oh, he can't be here. This is the gaming floor. I'm like, well, we're waiting for his mom. Nope, you can't stand here. I go, okay, we can walk through, right? The guy says, yes. I said, well, what if we just walk in circles? He's like, okay, fine, walk in circles. <laughs> so we walked in, I walked in circles with Benjamin until his mom was done. It felt really weird. And Benjamin was like, why are we walking in circles? I'm like, well, we have to. So uh, anyway, that's not going to happen at the Circa. There will be no walking in circles for kids because you know, kids can't come in. And I, I don't know of any property in Vegas that's like that. That was announced in June of this year. Uh, they're going to add 1,500 jobs that are badly needed to Las Vegas. Jobs are at a premium there in Vegas because of so many properties being closed during this pandemic. So that's a good news for the city. Uh, they're going to only open the gaming area on October 28th. The hotel, they're not sure when it's going to open. They're just opening the casino at that point. And uh, that was because they unexpectedly got the gaming license. They were expecting the hotel would be opening in December. And they're like, bang, here's the gaming license. Okay, well, we're not waiting till December anymore, but the hotel's not quite ready. So who wants to come in and gamble? Uh, but um, down there, I, there's another uh, reopening. There's a reopening I should tell you guys about that's a little bit related. Not directly to this, but uh, just to let you know another... Other hotel news, Planet Hollywood, a Caesars property, which has been closed all this time, is going to reopen. It's going to reopen very soon. It'll be uh, on October 8th at 10 a.m. And uh, the hotel is only going to be open Thursday through Sunday. They are going to reopen the casino every day. The casino is never going to close. It's going to be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But the hotel only Thursday night through Sunday night. And... uh, that's uh, I guess Caesars feels like they're doing well enough to where Planet Hollywood is going to uh, reopen. That was one of the properties that was closed. By the way, you may wonder about the Cromwell. If you have heard the Cromwell's closed, that is because they're actually filming a reality show at the Cromwell. Some people didn't know that, but they are actually filming a reality show. It's called Love Island. And uh, Love Island is uh, what they did is they actually had people in the Cromwell living there for uh, like a few months. It's over now, but uh, that was not well publicized. And uh, it was relocated from Fiji. So Love Island, you may say Island, there's no Island in Vegas and there isn't, but they, they were going to do it in Fiji and they actually moved Loved Island to the Cromwell of all things. And uh, I think it was from like May through August, they had the whole thing shut down and they were not open about that. I think they probably didn't want people trying to get in there to interfere with it. I don't follow reality shows, so I don't know much about that. But um, no, actually, you know what? I think they, I thought it was May through August, but I'm reading here that it was uh, August, it started in August and it's 
film, it's just uh, finishing around now, and then they're going to reopen the Cromwell as well. So that, uh, I'm not sure what they were doing there in the Cromwell. It sounds kind of boring just to have people hold up in the Cromwell for, for two months. That doesn't sound very appealing. You're just kind of stuck in the Cromwell and you can't go anywhere. That sounds like a boring show. Yeah, it's going to be uh, in a quarantine bubble and that uh, they're going to just be holding up everybody at the Cromwell. It's a weird show. You know why I don't like reality shows? It's because they're not reality. There's so much that is staged. What you're seeing is not the way things really went down. They encourage certain things to happen. They tell people to say and do certain things. They selectively edit. You're not seeing reality. The amount of reality on reality shows is very little. It would actually be somewhat appealing to me if reality shows were real. Like think of the Truman Show. If we could see a real life version of the Truman Show, that might be interesting. Even if it was one where the person uh, knew they were on camera, unlike uh, the Truman Show where the guy was uh, oblivious to everything and didn't know his whole life was basically uh, revolving around him being filmed, doing everything, and everyone around him, including his wife, were actors. Uh, but even a uh, a Truman Show where the person knows they're being filmed, but just their whole life is being broadcast, someone who's interesting, not just a boring, mundane person, that might be something I'd want to watch. I always said Kent Scaler would be a good one for that. Kent Scaler would be an interesting person to have like a camera on him all the time, except maybe at the Starbucks bathroom. I think they could turn off the camera for that. But like a lot of interesting and wacky stuff happens in Kent's life. So someone like him, just kind of a odd person that gets into crazy shenanigans. I'd love to see that if it were to be real. But reality shows it's not, but... The problem is people watch it believing it's all real and believing it's really happening as they show. And uh, they get really into the stories. And I just can't because it's like it's like not as interesting as a scripted show and yet it's still somewhat scripted. It's like the worst of both worlds. I'd rather watch a good scripted show written by professionals. And I know it's fake. I know I'm watching something scripted, but it's it's written very well and I can get into the story even knowing all the stuff I'm watching isn't real. But I, I hate watching something that's like projected as real but isn't – mostly isn't real and isn't as interesting as a good scripted story. It's, it's kind of like the worst of everything. It's kind of it's the way I see flavored water. I hate flavored water because it's not as good as a regular drink that has flavor in like a, a normal flavored drink. And yet it's also not water. So like why bother? Like you either have something that – is a regular flavored drink or just have water. And yeah, I know they have fewer calories, but that's what also makes them taste crappy. <laughs> Low calorie drinks are crap. They really taste lousy. It, for me, it's either water or something with high calories and nothing in between. So I can enjoy water and I can enjoy high calorie drinks. In fact, I enjoy them too much, which is why even though I don't drink alcohol, that's always been something I've battled with gaining weight is drinking high-calorie beverages. But I, I can't – some people say, why don't you try diet soda? Well, first of all, it tastes terrible. Any kind of diet drink tastes terrible. And, and second, it, I don't think it's good for you. I think like that's much worse for you than regular soda. There's some really, really weird chemicals there that I think are very bad for your body. Now, I'm far from a health nut, but I'm not going to do that stuff. But it also tastes awful. So, 
I don't know how anyone drinks that stuff. All right, we've got on a few tangents here, and I don't even have a co-host. We lost Trader Ruski, and somehow I got myself on a bunch of tangents. So we're going to get back on track. Actually, we're not going to get back on track. I'm going to take a break. We've got uh, four topics left, and I'm going to play you an ad of a gentleman known as Eric Benzamokin. The best endorsement I can give is when I actually do what my own ads say to do. And as I mentioned, I have retained Eric Benzamokin as my legal counsel in this Mike Possel lawsuit. And could you see me doing that if deep down I thought he was a sucky attorney or even just a mediocre attorney? Would, would this be what I would opt to do? And obviously not. So this should speak volumes about the faith I have in Eric as an attorney. And I think from his appearances on this show, this should also uh, speak volumes because he always seems to have the right answers and seems to be very knowledgeable. So listen to this ad. And uh, if you're one of the possible defendants, contact him. And if you have any other legal matter that is in the state of California or federally, then contact him. And he might be able to help you. And he's a very nice guy. I will guarantee you that as well. I'll be right back. Okay, now most of you guys know that I'm very picky regarding which sponsors I take. If I don't believe in the product or service being offered, I don't take the ad. And that's why I lose money on the site every month, even though I'm a cheap Jew. And it kills me to send out that money every month knowing that it is not coming back in. But I'm really, really excited about this new Poker Fraud Alert sponsor because I feel he's providing a service to the poker community that they really, really need. Eric Bensamokin is an attorney and a longtime poker player who provides arbitration and mediation for poker and gambling-related disputes. Now, simply put, if someone owes you money or if they think you owe them money, he's a fully impartial third party you can trust to listen, understand, and decide who's right. The reason you can trust him is because Eric is a licensed attorney in the state of California and federally, and he's able to arbitrate and mediate for you no matter where you live. So you don't have to be in California. You can be anywhere, and he can arbitrate or mediate for you. What makes Eric perfect for this is the fact that he's an attorney bound by the rules and ethics of the state bar, and he's also a longtime poker player, so he understands the issues of our community. And at the same time, he's an outsider, and he, he's probably not likely to know anybody connected to your dispute. So you're not going to have to worry that he's friends with a guy that you're disputing with or even friends of a friend. He's really an outsider to the community who plays poker for fun but knows the community really well. It's perfect, and he's a licensed attorney. You can't do better than that. This means you will get a completely impartial decision from a qualified attorney who understands everything. And I'll be honest, if I had a poker-related money dispute with someone, Eric is the exact type of arbitrator or mediator that I would be looking for. Take down his email address, eric at eblawfirm.us. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. If you feel you're being scammed or if someone owes you money or if someone's accusing you of owing them money, just send Eric an email. It's not going to cost you anything. It's not going to hurt you. Just send him an email, and he'll tell you what he thinks of the whole situation, and then he can go from there. Eric can perform both arbitration, where he decides who's right, and mediation, where he helps both of you figure out your own agreement. Keep the email address around, even if you don't have a dispute at the moment, because you never know when one will come up, and Eric is exactly the man you need for the job. That's eric at eblawfirm.us. That's attorney Eric Benzamokin, eric at eblawfirm.us. Okay, let's uh, move forward here. I want to talk about Howard Stern. 
Howard Stern is someone I never thought I would discuss on this show in relation to poker. I had no idea that Howard Stern had any interest in poker. It turns out he does. So I'm going to play a clip of Howard Stern talking about the poker community, and you'll be surprised how into it he is. And you'll start to wonder, how much does Howard know? How much has he been watching? Is is he reading the major uh, poker news sites? Does he perhaps browse PokerFraudAlert.com? I don't know. See, Howard Stern, uh, he obviously has way more money than he could ever make in poker, even if he were a great player. So the, the monetarily, as is the case with many very rich and famous people, uh, there's not much to be gained by playing poker. But uh, also he would have the problem if he were to play, uh, he'd probably get uh, bothered by people who wanted to talk to him. You know, he can be a fan of it and watch it, maybe play in private games, but uh, he definitely uh, has an interest in poker. So let's listen. And trying to learn poker. I know you talked about chess on the air. Have you ever gotten into that yourself? Yeah, you spend time with poker playing or poker. First of all, I have too much. I I happen to be the student of poker. I do watch poker. You watch it on the like what is that ESPN? Sometimes they have those poker tournaments. I have. I even have my favorite player is a guy named um, David uh, Benjamin. Benjamin. And the first time I saw him play, I said, look at this fucking guy. He's, he's a big guy. He looks like a, he, he looks like he could be a bouncer at a club or uh-huh. something. <laughs> so, sorry for the poor sound quality. This was sent to me by somebody else, and uh, unfortunately the sound quality wasn't the best, uh, it wasn't the best rip of the stream there. But uh, you hear that his favorite player, Howard's favorite player is uh, David Benjamin. He's quite a really big guy. He looks like a bouncer. He doesn't really look like a bouncer. He just looks like a fat guy. And he didn't always look like that. You know, Benjamin at one point uh, was not this overweight, and he gained weight over the years. But uh, let's go on here. And this guy sits down, and he looks like he doesn't have a brain in his fucking head. You know what I mean? He looks like a big dummy. He's a pushover, right? <laughs> yeah, I remember the first time I watched him play, and I went, he's going to get cleaned out so fast. Uh, but he sat down, and I loved his attitude. There's a whole bunch of these poker players on TV who are professionals, and they're good, and they're wealthy guys from poker. And But, but, but they talk too much. They're a pain in the ass. But this guy, David Benjamin, he sits down and he just starts playing poker. And almost when he's out, you see, it's the, the wheels are always turning, but he's almost out of the game. And then he comes back and he fucking zombs you right over the head. I like this guy. I like his whole attitude. And I've learned a lot watching poker about reading people, about how to read a hand. Some of these guys, the best poker player in the world is uh, Phil Ivey. Uh, Phil Ivey. I don't know how he does this, but I still can't figure it out. But he can look at someone and figure out, look at the table, and he knows exactly what's in your hand. So, yeah, so that's not true. He, there, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding of poker, of how how well people can uh, read your hand by just looking at you. But, but okay, I'll, I'll give Howard some leeway there because he's not an expert in poker. But uh, you can see... Howard knows these people. Howard knows these names in poker, and he didn't have this prepared because someone just brought up poker to him, like on the phone, and then uh, he just goes on this rant. So let's let's play some more. Really, it's weird. 
it's scary fucking weird how they'll know you have Ace-9. It was just no. Um, it, it's crazy. He just he, he, he says it. I know you got a pair of jacks, and, 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 but he knows it. And he's still Ivy. And I think Bill Ivy, I once read, is worth about $100 million personally from poker. Wow. From poker. That's you know, amazing. Like, yeah, I mean, the guy is extraordinary. He's like a, there's a poker hall of fame, which sounds completely ridiculous. Because when I think about poker, well, first of all, when you see these guys who go into poker professionally, they all look like degenerates. They all look like they, they all look like they crawl. Because in order to become a great uh, poker player, you hang out at pool halls. You play, you play online all the time. It's not what I could You don't see real, it's very, very handsome men. they've never seen the sun. They all right. look like vampires. Oh, there's a guy from England. I can't think of his name. His name is Schwartz. He looks like it, literally what you're saying. Like they, his parents raised him in a basement. <laughs> like they, they never allowed him to see this. They never allowed him to see the sun. But there's a lot of good guys. Bill Ivey, I watch. Uh, Phil Lack, I like. Um, there's a guy. I don't even know how to say his last name. It's Daniel um, DeGrano, I think you, you call him. He's worth about $50 million from playing poker. Just married a hot woman. I mean, the guy's having a great life, and I was looking at these guys. I go, what a great life. They love playing poker. Isn't that interesting how much he knows? He even knows about Negreanu marrying Amanda. So uh, he's following this. Like, yes, he doesn't – like, he didn't know Daniel's name without thinking about it for a second. But he knows enough. Like, he knows that Daniel's very successful in poker. He knows that Daniel married uh, a pretty woman. Like, he, he knows these things. So this, he's watched like more than like one or two. He's following it. They play all day, and they're so good at reading what other people have in their hands that that's how they make their money. That's the skill. But um, well, you know, they did say at one point I heard that you know because a couple of these guys who play online have wound up in some of these tournaments. Yeah. And the guys who play live were always saying, those guys will never be any good because you need to be able to sit at the table and, and read a chat. There's a, guy, there's a guy who plays, he's Italian, doesn't speak any English. Uh, what the fuck is his name? Gianni, uh, can't think of his name. But um, he qualified. In other words, he played online, and he was playing so well that he got to sit at the table. And I'm going to tell you, he was pretty good. He was pretty good. Okay. Uh, but, but he didn't win the tourney because, mm-hmm. you're right, you need a certain amount of experience being on the table. It's, 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 a, it's a really interesting thing, poker. I think you can learn a lot watching poker, but I wouldn't uh, – I think it's, it's not for the faint of heart. You've got a real – I mean, wow, you can get into I a lot of – I can imagine that. what it's like to sit at that table with that kind of money sitting in front of you. And you've got a couple of cards in your hand, and there's other people with cards in their hands, and you've got to figure out if you're going to bluff them or you know what they have. I don't even know how that happens, how you keep your composure. I've, I've actually, once, I think I've done it twice, I went years ago and sat at a professional poker table with professional players. They cleaned me out so fast, uh, and I never played again. Because, again, I work too hard for my money. I ain't looking to give it to some right. guy who plays cards all day. But it was fun. It, it would have been fun if I, if I didn't lose so fast. It was such a quick experience, and they all, I could tell, were laughing at me because they all knew exactly what I had. Well, okay, so I, I wonder, it must have been like a private game, it sounds like. It sounds like a, it doesn't sound like he was playing low stakes because – 
Howard has a shitload of money, and if he went to go play at a game that was maybe you know, high stakes to me and you, to him it would be a joke. So Howard would have to be playing at a pretty high stakes game, and I'm guessing he probably played in one of these privately set up games in New York. And uh, yeah, he probably got beat by the much better players there. And he's probably right there looking at him like he was a fish because he probably was one. But it's not that they could read him; it's just that he wasn't good, and they could they could just tell by the way he'd play his hands. He was probably too straightforward and obvious with the way he'd play. Not so much any tells he gave off, but uh, they could probably tell just by his betting patterns and everything else of what he had and what he didn't. And Howard was probably astounded by this. <laughs> Howard probably realized that he's just going to get beat every time and quit. Knew I didn't know what I was doing, and they could tell when I had a good hand. And as soon as I went in there, like that, they were laughing. They see me as like a shark going to a fish and just devouring it. It's amazing. Yeah. And like this guy Daniel Negrano who plays, I noticed he talks though. He talks, he's joking around, blah, blah, blah. Then there were other guys who wear the sunglasses, they got the hoodie on. I know. You know everyone's got their own style. And they I like the guys who Yeah, talk. they either look like serial killers. Because they're all covered up like they're in the witness protection program. Yeah. Nobody can see them. There's one guy I used to watch play, and he would he have on the hoodie and the sunglasses, and he had this giant fucking wart right on the side oh. of his nose. And all you could see is this fucking wart. Yeah. And I wish I could think of this guy's name, but I was like, damn. He's scary. It looks like the yeah. Unabomber with a wart. I and, never you know, saw a beauty sitting at that table. Yeah. <laughs> no, although there's one woman I watched who uh, was gorgeous. I wish I could think of her name. This is, you know, I watch a lot of poker, but this woman was gorgeous, and I, I, yeah. I looked her up online, and she had a ton of bikini pictures, and she was in a professional tournament. Yeah, she was good looking, but she was clean out quick. Um, yeah, I think you got to look. I think you got to be a big mess to play poker. It just doesn't work. Uh, and she was playing the hot chick card, too. She was like, there was one point she was in a showdown with, um, it was just her against this guy, Negrano. However you say his name. And she looked at him at one point and she goes, what would you do if you were me? You know, and she's got the big hair and the blonde hair. And the hair. She's in distress. She's in distress. And she goes, I don't know what I would do if I was you. You'd be like, if I was you, I'd give, you, give me all your money. That's what I'd do. <laughs> she was trying to play on his sympathy. Right. I'd shake him to death. Uh, very, very interesting. But, uh, yeah, I do like poker. I like it. Uh, let's go to Stephanie. Stephanie, what up? So, okay, that's the end of that. He was taking calls, and someone mentioned poker, and he just went out. You see, he knows a lot about it. If it's one thing, it's just a prepared bit, and he just wanted to act like he knew. But he definitely knows. So, you know, <laughs> there's these poker broadcasts on TV, and freaking Howard Stern's watching, getting all into it. And he's fascinated by the whole thing. So I, I wonder if he reads much about poker. Like, I wonder if he knows about the whole uh, Mike Postle controversy. I wonder if he knows the whole story. I'd be very interested to know that. Sorry, it's not better quality there. Um, it was recorded by somebody and sent to me, and I played it here. But uh, there it is. Howard Stern is a fan of poker. Seems like he just watches whatever's on TV and then kind of 
tries to draw his conclusions from there and Googles people that catch his interest. That's kind of looks like what he does. But he said he's learned a lot, not just about poker play, but kind of a lot about a lot of things by playing poker. He finds poker pros to be interesting. He finds their thought process thought processes to be interesting. And he says he's learned like different thought processes in life from watching poker, which is very interesting. And this is from a guy who is wildly successful and is, in fact, uh, the radio personality who's made the most money by far of any radio personality ever. The only one who I think might be comparable would be uh, Rush Limbaugh. So, I mean, he's been incredibly successful, Howard Stern. And yet, there he is watching poker. A lot of people really look up to poker as uh, something, like, really interesting and admirable. And to me, it's sometimes something I take for granted because I'm part of the community. Because uh, all the big names in the community I've played with, I've interacted with them, like, to me, it's nothing special. So I I don't even watch much poker. I'll watch an individual thing that interests me, like this upcoming match with Polk and Negreanu, but I don't, uh, I don't look at it the same way like a typical poker fan does. But some, some people do. Some people, uh, when they meet me, like when strangers meet me and hear that I have a World Series bracelet and I'm a pro poker player, they get all excited. And I'm thinking, <laughs> I don't know what the excitement is. I'm just a guy who plays poker. Like to me, I I don't even understand uh, where the excitement comes from, but that's because I'm part of it. So even someone like Howard Stern can watch some of these big name poker pros, and to him, it's like to him, it's it's very impressive and amazing to him, even though he makes a lot more money than all these guys. So and he's a lot more famous than all these guys on a on absolute level. There's no poker player who is more famous than Howard Stern. And he knows that, but he's still impressed by them. He still enjoys watching it, and he kind of feels like he... You can tell he kind of feels like he wishes that he could be a great poker player too, but he knows he isn't and doesn't want to go through the whole process of trying to become that and may even think he can't become that, which is possible too. Some people just don't have it in them to be a good, good or great poker player. So... Always interesting when you see uh, big name celebrities and what they're into, and occasionally <laughs> they're into just normal things like watching uh, David Benjamin play poker. Who would have known? All right, uh, let's move on here to the next topic. Online poker is going to be legalized in Michigan in November. And I don't like talking about these legalization uh, issues for poker because a lot of times you talk about it for a while and it stalls and it stalls and then it never happens and I've wasted my time on the show and I've wasted your time listening to it and the topic itself isn't that interesting. Oh, such and such state may get online poker sometime next year. Like, who cares? If you're not in that state, it's not very exciting. But Michigan, which is a uh, medium-sized state, is going to be getting online poker in the month of November. And that's uh, pretty interesting because there are not many states where online poker is. 
So uh, I think that's something worth uh, <coughs> something worth uh, talking about. So Michigan SB nine nine one passed by a three hundred eighty nine to thirty six vote, and it's a bill that approves interstate online poker compacts but it doesn't establish regulations and uh, there was a 2019 online poker legislation bill but there were no interstate compacts and uh, the reason the interstate compacts are important is because Michigan realizes that if you run a single state online poker site uh, it, it does not have all that much potential to make money if it's poker only, if it's a full casino, that's one thing. But if it's poker only, it's going to be a fail site and not make much money. And uh, that is something that they don't want. So even though the Lawful Internet Gaming Act was passed in uh, December of 2019, they were unable to share players with other states. They couldn't do what Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware are doing, which is they uh, they are able to all sit at the same table, which makes the player pool much larger. So Michigan was not able to do this at the time. So they have uh, this new bill that passed adds to the approval of online poker in December by allowing players in other states to all uh, be at the table. This could even mean that uh, Michigan could join the Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware. Regulated online poker began seven years ago, or actually about seven and a half years ago. In 2013, early 2013, Nevada was the first state to approve it, and Ultimate Poker launched, which was mismanaged in many ways and is now gone. However, as we stand today, only Nevada, New Jersey, Delaware, and Pennsylvania have legalized online poker. Pennsylvania does not share its pool with other states, but they are talking about doing that as well. Pennsylvania is actually doing decently by themselves, but it will, will be better when they uh, share the pool with other states. And uh, right now, the only poker network that is taking advantage of that is WSOP.com where Nevada, New Jersey, and Delaware all play together, but it's still kind of a fail site. It still does not have a big enough player pool to offer a lot of games all day. Even during the coronavirus, it's just not as active as uh, you'd hope it would be. So uh, with Michigan approving this, they could uh, theoretically join WSP.com. And uh, we will uh, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, they're also trying to push online sports betting in Michigan. That's a, a separate matter. But they're, uh, they had a hearing to discuss sports betting regulations. And uh, they're looking to possibly approve sports betting. And if that were to happen, then mobile betting will be permitted. And... Uh, they're going to be granting licenses to at least one regular casino and three Indian casinos. 
or sorry, one one in one, one Indian casino, one uh, regular casino, to offer sports betting. Anyway, the online poker rooms are thought to be launching in late November, and it's believed that uh, sports books will probably be approved in time for that, so that uh, they'll be able to have online poker rooms, casinos, and sports books in late November. They are still trying to figure out the rules as far and the regulations as far as uh, sharing with other states. They haven't quite figured that out yet. They hope to get that figured out by the end of November. It doesn't seem like a lot of time to me, but uh, they are looking to do that. They said, uh, I think the bill is a common sense thing that all agreed to and we should move on. I don't think there's any controversy. How fast, I don't know. I don't think it'll be before the November 3rd election, probably right after. So it is believed to happen in uh, late November, as I said. If Michigan joins that uh, WSOP.com network, uh, that would be a big boost. The population of Michigan is uh, about 10 million. And to compare that to the other states, it's it's similar to New Jersey's population. New Jersey's population is uh, about 9 million, so it's slightly bigger. Nevada's population is a lot smaller. Nevada's population is 3 million. And Delaware, they have a small population because it's a very small state uh, geographically. Their population is about 1 million. So right now... Delaware with 1 million, Nevada with 3 million, and New Jersey with 9 million. It's it's, uh, 13 million. So if you add another 10 million people, that's almost doubling the pool. Now, Pennsylvania is bigger than all of those. Pennsylvania's population is 13 million. So if they were to add uh, Pennsylvania on, uh, had, had Pennsylvania joined before Michigan, it would have actually doubled the size of the pool. Pennsylvania is the same as uh, uh, Nevada, New Jersey, Delaware together. So if Pennsylvania had joined, it would have been a pool of 26 million people. And uh, if Michigan were then to join, it would be about 36 million, which is more than 10% of the U.S. population. Uh, Pennsylvania hasn't gotten going with this yet. So uh, we'll see what Michigan does. It's not clear which site and which software is going to run for Michigan. I'm not sure exactly what kind of online poker is going to be offered, but they claim in late November it'll be started. I have to imagine they were already getting ready since this was something that was approved in December, but now they just got the approval to uh, do uh, interstate online poker, and that's very helpful. The hope is that enough of these states legalize it and join together to where we start to see something that mimics the old situation of the entire country being able to play together. Uh, we'll never get every state on board, but as long as a number of populous states join together, we could have a very big player pool. The big two that uh, could really make an impact would be California and New York. California has almost 40 million people, and New York has uh, almost 20 million people. So you're looking at almost 60 million people if just those two states join in, which is uh, getting close to 20% of the population. It's not quite 20%, but it's getting close to 20% of the U.S. population. 
But uh, let's say you were to add Pennsylvania and uh, and Michigan, you would have uh, 36 million. And then if you were to add New York and California, you would have about 96 million. So that's a very big pool. And then you can get some nice games going. It's not quite as big as uh, like having the whole U.S., but uh, there would be a big pool, especially because New York and California have a lot of people in general who are into poker and gambling. There's some places that are more poker friendly than others and more uh, has there's more poker interest than others. California has a lot of interest in poker because there's a lot of poker rooms around the state. Uh, New York, there's always been a lot of interest in poker, even though there are not many poker rooms, but it's uh, it's not that far from uh, New Jersey, and there's been a lot of underground rooms. And just uh, New York, there there is a, a lot of interest in poker. Uh, some other states, there's less interest. So, And I noticed that playing on uh, PokerStars and other sites where you could see people's locations, and I'd see certain states, you just wouldn't see a lot of people. Of course, the three areas that fed a lot of players were... Las Vegas, Atlantic City, and Los Angeles for obvious reasons. But uh, even other places that were not those three metropolitan areas, you, you would still see certain states would feed a lot more players than others, and the other ones would be uh, more rare to see people from. Even semi-populous states often wouldn't have that many people from them if they just weren't very big on poker. So that that matters, too, of how much interest there is in poker in the particular state. But California and New York both have a lot of poker interest, so that would be really huge to add those two states. Uh, however, I don't know when it's going to happen. California has been dragging forever. There's been the endless war between the Indian casinos and the non-Indian casinos, and that continues. So I'm just speaking theoretically. I don't know when we're going to see this. And I don't know if poker is going to die out and not be nearly as popular by the time this stuff finally gets passed. It can't last forever. Uh, poker is uh, contracting every year. And there's still some interest in it, but it's much less popular than it was 15 years ago, less popular than it was 10 years ago. So, yeah, it's popular enough to maintain Howard Stern's interest, but it, the longer time that passes the fewer people are going to remain interested in it and then once it becomes legal then you're going to be it's going to be harder to establish a second poker boom I, it would be great if we could just wake up one day and almost every state in the nation could have legalized and regulated online poker i would love that i'm sure the games would be great again i'm sure there'd be a lot of great opportunities to make money and uh that would be a whole new group of players that could come in and uh, drop money at the tables to the rest of us who are already very experienced and skillful. So that would be great. Even people who were unable to beat the game today could once again be able to beat the game. Because that's actually what happened in the mid-decade of uh, the 2000s, in uh, 2005, 2006. You had players that were very mediocre that would get crushed today that were winning a lot of money just because there were so many fish out there dumping so much money that uh, they were still a favorite in those games. And as those fish started to disappear, uh, those mediocre players were the first to fall. They were the ones who could not hang. They were the ones who are gone and talk about, oh, you remember, you know, in 2006, I used to win money on this site, you know, if they, they wouldn't be able to win today. And some of them know it. In fact, I, I've spoken to some of them 
I, I still know some of them from those days, and they they do other things now. They have regular jobs, and they tell me that uh, they don't even want to get on Bovada and try to play the games there. They don't want to get on ACR because they think they're going to get crushed. They say, I don't think I'll be able to compete in the games today. And they're probably right. So the uh, some people were able to uh, hang on and adapt, and some people uh, were not once the fish disappeared. And everybody's making less money. Okay, next. Poker Stars is changing the concept of waiting lists. And even though this is something that Americans uh, are not affected by, because this is about regularpokerstars.com that cannot be played by Americans. I'm not talking about PokerStars PA. But PokerStars is changing the whole concept of a waiting list. And I found the story interesting. And it's an alternate way that they have decided to combat uh, what is called bum hunting. And it's different than what is being done uh, by sites like GG Poker, which are just downright hostile to players uh, who uh, they feel are pro players. So Poker Stars has been concerned that there's a lot of players that they call predatory, ones that uh, wait for fish in the game. As soon as those fish are in the game, they jump in. And then as soon as the fish bust, they jump back out. Now, I still think this is fine. I think this is game selection. This is how poker has always worked. This is how it works in live card rooms. Uh, I've come to commerce where I see a gigantic waiting list for the 100-200 limit game, and it turns out that's because there's a big fish there. And uh, and once that fish busts, then they call down the list and nobody wants to go sit there because it's all the regulars and nobody wants to sit in that game. So that, that's common. You know, the, the fish sits down, uh, the waiting list gets big, uh, only a few people get in, and then once the fish busts, nobody on the list wants to take the seat anymore. Okay, it's just a, it's just the reality of poker. You can't change that. It's unrealistic to try to reinvent the wheel as far as how people desire to play in good games, how people want to be a favorite at the table, how people don't want to sit at a table full of pros. A few do, most don't. Most want to feel like they are better than average at the table. That's a natural desire for people, number one, financially, and number two, it's just a good feeling to win. It's a good feeling to feel like you're one of the better players. You don't want to feel like the live one. You don't want to feel like the one everyone's picking on. You don't want to feel like the one that is the sucker. You want to feel like you're one of the better players. So it, it feels good to be one of the better players at the table, even if you're not a pro. So it's kind of bugged me how these sites have been obsessed with this preserving the poker ecology and stopping what they call bum hunting and uh, and trying to make it so everybody's got more of an equal chance. Because what that really means, as I said earlier in the show, when I talked about GG Poker, is that it's just they get to rake more. That's It's not about trying to help players. It's about raking more. And I, it's such a dishonest approach how they claim they're just trying to help the poker community. If they want to help the poker community, just run a pure poker game, stop screwing around, and get out of the way. Now, there are certain things they can do that I approve of. They can ban the use of HUDs and other tools that help people. People should not be using tools that uh, allow them to get statistics 
or that advise their play or anything else like that, that people should not have any kind of electronic assistance. They should be playing with their own minds, and I agree with that. There should not be seat scripting, which allows you to quickly take seats faster than those who are manually clicking the buttons. That's also not fair. Anything that gives you an unfair advantage technologically over other players at the table who are not using these technological tools, these should all be banned because it is unfair. And it's unfair to everybody. It's unfair to the fish. It's unfair to other pros. It's unfair to anybody who's not using these same methods, these same tools. So, yeah, ban these people, make these uh, against the terms of service, and uh, and take away people's money and ban their accounts if they're caught using it. I agree with all that. I also agree you should be looking for bots and banning them and taking their money. You should be looking for colluders. All those things I agree with. However, as far as people who just simply engage in game selection but do nothing else wrong, as is the old, as with the old days where nothing was done about that and that was an accepted part of poker, that should still be an accepted part of poker. Maybe something you don't think is ideal for poker, but that's just the way poker is and attempting to mess with it just ends up causing more problems than it fixes. But I will tell you anyway about PokerStars approach, which I admit is better than GG Poker's approach of finding ways to ban what they call the bum hunters. So here's what's going on. Let's talk about waiting lists. Okay, so let's say a fish sits down in the game, and everybody rushes into the game because the fish is there. And then the game's full. What happens? Well, they join a waiting list. Now, some sites don't have waiting lists. Like Bovada, you can't get on a waiting list. You've just... Uh, um, the closest you can get to being on a waiting list is you could sit in an at, you could sit at a table, probably an empty table, and then hope that another pro doesn't sit down with you and want to play you heads up. Uh, but if they don't, then uh, as soon as a seat opens, it'll transfer you over there, sometimes but not always. But there's no actual waiting list there on Bovada. But a regular waiting list is exactly like it sounds. You get on the waiting list, and if you're the first one on, then you will get the first open seat. If you're the second one on, you'll get the second open seat, etc. Now, when somebody is called from the waiting list, they have a certain amount of time to actually accept the seat. So if they walked away from the computer or they're in the bathroom and whatever, if too much time passes, I think they get like a minute to sit down. If you don't respond, then your seat gets given away to the next person in line. And that's the way waiting lists have worked ever since they were invented in online poker about 20 years ago. And that's also the way waiting lists work in real life, which is why they were designed this way for online poker, is that they were operating the exact same way waiting lists operate in live card rooms. But PokerStars has decided that they are going to change this. Luke Staudenmeyer, who is uh, someone who writes for the PokerStars blog, talked about how they are changing the waiting list to something they call the active waiting list. He wrote, Our latest feature, the active waiting list, is all about making the game fairer and the experience better for most players. See, I hate when they say the crap. It's, it's all about making more rake for you guys. You know, more rake is better. Remember that? That's what this is. We created this new system for those who like to play cash games with us and it is primarily designed to combat predatory behavior and level the playing field. It achieves this goal by making it more difficult for some players to seek out our less experienced and more recreational players. So here's how it works. Instead of that sequential list, what happens? This has already been done on PokerStars. This is the new way it works on PokerStars. If you try to join a waiting list, first of all, you can't just get on a list. You have to be seated at that exact same type of table. So if you're at a, uh, if you want to go sit at a five ten no limit, you can't just say, okay, when this five ten no limit opens, I want a seat here. Nope. You actually have to be sitting at another five ten no limit, even an empty one. But you've got to be sitting at another five ten no limit, 
and uh, you will. Uh, and so, so, so that's the first thing. You cannot join unless you're already sitting somewhere. Second, um, people who have been actually playing at other tables at the same limits of the same type of poker, same limits, like another five ten no limit. The longer you've been playing and not sitting out, but playing an actively running game, you will get weight put on your selection. And I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. So you're going to get some kind of priority put on you being picked out of the list rather than someone who's sitting at an empty table or sitting at another table but sitting out. Because otherwise people can just do the trick of sitting at a table and sitting out. Which you can, but then you're going to have uh, less of a chance of being picked. Then it picks semi-randomly of uh, everybody in the waiting list and just plucks one out, regardless of when they entered. It doesn't matter if you've been on for an hour or for a minute. It'll just pick someone out, and it'll pick this out weighted for people who are actually playing. So let me give you an example. We'll do it by, uh, like, entries in a hat. So if you are sitting by yourself at a table and not playing or sitting at a table but sitting out, then you'll get uh, one entry in the waiting list. If you are sitting at uh, five tables actively playing of that same type, then you will get uh, maybe 20 entries. Maybe you'll get four entries for each one. So you'll have a lot better chance. You'll have a 20 times better chance than the guy who's just sitting alone sitting out. And uh, if you're playing at, let's say, two tables, you'll get eight entries. So the guy sitting alone sitting out has a chance, but a fairly small one to get picked. And so every time it draws a number and um, you know, you'll have entries, so let's say there's a, a thousand total entries and you'll, you'll have a number for each entry, um, when a seat comes up, uh, if, if the entry they pick matches the number you have, you'll, you won't see these numbers like internally, then uh, you'll be the one picked. So that, that's the way it works. It gives you like ex- extra entries for the kind of raffle to get the next seat if you're actively playing at that same limit at the moment. So there's always a way to get in if you just want to sit at another table and sit out, but uh, you have much less of a chance. And it's not first come, first terms at all. It's just whoever's on the list at the time a seat comes up. And honestly, that's uh, not very good. (laughs) What they're trying to do is they're trying to get like what's similar to a live must-move thing. A must-move game in a live card room is where you you join a table, but then uh, they pluck someone off of the newest table and move it to the other tables. Whenever uh, someone leaves, so let's say there's two games running, uh, the main game and the must-move game. When someone leaves from the main game, they immediately grab someone from the must-move game and move them over to the main game, whether they want to or not. And they do it by uh, seniority at the must-move table. And sometimes you're not happy to move. Sometimes the main game sucks and the must-move is great and you're forced to go. That's why it's called a must-move. Sometimes there are two games running live that are not must-move where you can just switch tables and you can put yourself on a, a seat change list, but uh, often it's must-move. So there's kind of making it like this, but this is more because there's the random element, and then there's also the weighted element where you get more entries as far as being picked if you're playing already. 
So they said the system has been designed to encourage engagement and action while deterring players whose only objective is to join games with weaker opponents. Now, instead of passively sitting on a waiting list until the right seat becomes available, that player will need to play in order to remain on the waiting list. Okay. Again, this sucks. Let, let me tell you why this sucks. You may say, oh, this is, this sounds great. This sounds fair. You know, you've got anyone who's actively playing and keeping the games going at the other tables, uh, they'll get selected first. They deserve to be selected first. No. Let me tell you again. Let me tell you again. Like I've said so many times. When a good player leaves the table, who benefits? Does the fish benefit? No. Who benefits when a good player leaves the table? When the very best player leaves the table, who benefits the most? The second best player. The third best player also benefits. So does the fourth best player. You know who doesn't benefit very much? The fish. The benefit from the best player leaving the table goes down from the second best player gaining the most and the biggest fish at the table gaining the least. That's how it works. But the sites treat it as if the best player leaving or not being at the table at all is benefiting the fish the most. And it is not. So all this is doing is shifting who's going to win the money from the fish. And that's what they're missing here. So this is annoying because if all you want to do is sit in a decent game, forget the bum hunting. Let's say you just say, I'm not, I'm not going to be a bum hunter. I just like to sit in a game that's like not all pros. I, I don't want to play like some... A game that's just me and, and five pros. I, I don't want to do it. I want to play in a game where I feel that I'm a favorite. It doesn't have to be against a specific mega fish. I would just like to sit in a game where I think I'm better than average at the table, or at least uh, the bad players are, are bad enough to where I'm still a favorite to make money here. And that's your goal, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. This has been encouraged as the responsible way to be a poker pro for many years, and all of a sudden it's being treated like it, it's a bad thing to be doing. It's it's all of a sudden being treated like uh, you're a horrible, a horrible person for trying to exhibit for trying to uh, game select. I mean, go watch Rounders. I know it's an old movie, but go watch Rounders, and that's basically the lesson there. Is that the responsible player, the responsible poker pro is the one who makes sure that he's always sitting at a table where he has an edge. And that the degenerate is the one who will just take on any competition and eventually go bust. That, that's basically one of the messages of rounders. But somehow that's a terrible thing now. So Poker Stars is now saying that you're not likely to get a seat in a game where a lot of people want to get a seat unless you're sitting at other games which suck and play them for a while, and then you still may not get a seat. That's really lousy. I really hate the idea of forcing people to play in order to get a seat at uh, the table they want to sit at. Now, I would be more okay with just one waiting list feeding all tables and that... Uh, it drops you at the first available table, maybe not the one you want to be at, and that uh, that's where you are, and if you don't like it, then you can get off and get in the back of the line again. That, that could work. That could bring down this bum hunting they're so concerned about. Yeah, people can leave as soon as they end up in a bad game, but they'll end up in the, in the back of the line again. Something like that. But 
or you can also, you know, once you open up a table, then maybe you can uh, get on the line for the second table again, or something like that. The second table opens, you can get on the line to open the second table, and the third table, and the fourth table. But, uh, and that you can only get in if you're if you're actively playing on one. Otherwise, you have to quit entirely and, and get back to the line. I, I don't know. I'd have to think about it more to come up with a good system. But how about just the regular system? How about the system you get on a waiting list, first come, first serve, like has worked for live card rooms since the beginning of poker? Why Why all this? This is just frustrating. I mean, imagine how irritating it would be if you go sit down, play in a crappy game, get your ass beat, and it just doesn't invite you to the other game. You just never get there. You just run bad in the waiting list. You actually have to gamble with a waiting list now? That's what it is. You're gambling with a waiting list. Stupid. That is really, really stupid. It's kind of like what I've said to hotels. I've had arguments with hotels when I've called up and uh, I say, I'm going to be checking in at midnight tonight, but I don't want the last selection of rooms. So can you please block off a room for me? And they say, no. And I say, why not? It's our policy. We're only blocking off the room for you once you're physically on property. And I go, look, I paid for the room. I'd like, I'm definitely going to be there. It's not fair to me that the person who happens to get on property at 3 p.m., gets a way better choice of rooms than me at 12 a.m. when we paid the same thing. It's one thing if the guy paid more than me, then he deserves better than me. But if he paid the same as me and his schedule just allows him to get there sooner, maybe because he lives closer, maybe because his flight is scheduled differently, whatever it is, it's not fair to me that just because he arrives at the property sooner, he gets the better room than me if we're paying the same thing. So I would like you to hold a room for me or at least allow me to call up at 3 p.m. and get a room held for me then. And at first I get the pushback, I can usually talk them into it. By the way, that's a good tip for hotels, even when we return to normal life and it's not COVID time anymore. That's a good tip. You can usually talk them into that. Otherwise, if you show up at midnight, you get the crap rooms. So when I uh, talk to casino hotels that also have a casino attached, a line I like to use when they talk about, well, you can see what's available when you come in at midnight. That's all we can do. The line I always give them is, I'm here to gamble at the tables, not to gamble with my hotel room. It's actually kind of effective because, uh, you know, it's true. I'm not there to – I don't want to gamble that when I get there at midnight that there's a good room left for me. I I want to – I want the room to be consistent. I want it to be something I expect. I don't want the worst room in the place. So I can usually talk them into it. But back to this, you're gambling on the waiting list. That's what you really are. You're you're basically – having to sit at crappy games in the hopes that you get invited to a good game, but you're not even sure. If they're going to do this, at least let people kind of earn points for playing in crappy games that you can then use to get on the waiting list for sure for the good game, something like that. I mean, here here it's just like a gamble. Here you could just never get there. It's a bunch of crap. And what's wrong with game selection? But I think it's just a, a big misunderstand, uh, not misunderstand, big lack of understanding of what restricting good players away from the games means. Like it, uh, it isn't what they think. They're not saving fish by doing this. The fish are going to lose no matter what. The only way the fish won't lose is if you really put them with all other fish. If you drop the fish in with nothing but other fish, then yes, they'll survive longer. If you drop them in with just a few pros, they're going to all get crushed. I mean, I know I do it. I When I'm on Bovada, 
if it's just me and a few fish, it's it's very common that when the whole thing's over, it's me with all the money and the fish are broke. Seriously. And when another player joins who's good, I say, ah, oh, crap, that guy's going to split the money with me. And that's often what happens. So instead of me busting the fish, then uh, me and him bust the fish. And depending on which of us runs better, uh, you know, it, it gets some more money. And sometimes I'll even lose because he beats me and beats the fish. And, and then I don't run as well to the fish. And he, you know, and he gets all the money that I lost to them. And, like, you know, I don't have the ability to win it back for the fish because he's taking for the fish. Like, it, it really throws a big wrench into the whole thing even once a single pro joins the game. Instead of it just me and a few fish, if it's just me and a few fish, if they all stay long enough, it's very likely the money's all going to end up with me. So having fewer pros there doesn't keep the fish alive any longer. It just helps me, one of the other pros, take more of the money. But they're missing that. I, I don't know what they think they're doing there. Now, they may be smarter than I think, and they may say, hey, with this trick we're doing here, we're going to collect more rake because we're going to force the pros to play each other more often. I bet that's the goal here. The goal isn't to make the fish survive. The goal is really to force the pros to sit with each other and keep playing, 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 raking, raking, raking. I bet that they know. I bet that they realize they're not helping the fish and they just say, hey, let's force the pros to play each other more. It's really crappy. So it's it's not about uh, addressing poker ecology. Now, is this better than banning people for what's called bum hunting? Yes. But it's still crappy. So screw this new waiting list. And things like this make me not very sorry that I can't play Poker Stars right now. All right. We're going to do it, folks. We're going to do it. We're going to do the topic I've put off week after week after week. We're finally going to do what would draft do? Yes, it's going to happen. I'm not too tired. I can do it. This is a segment called... What would Druff do? It's going to be something I try to do occasionally. It's not going to be every week, but it's going to be a story about people who I don't know, probably don't know. And they get themselves in some predicament, and I think about what I would do if I were them. And I will discuss what they did, what I would have done, and how it would have ended up differently if they did it my way. So this edition, the first edition of What Would Druff Do, is about a lunch date. A lunch first date with a woman that a guy met online. Now, I have a lot of experience in that realm. Not recent experience. I've been in a relationship for the last 11 years. But I have some experience, a lot of experience, with dating from online. Even not formal online dating, but at least meeting for the first time for a first date with someone I have not ever met before in my life that I first got to know online. I did this going all the way back to the 1980s when I was a teenager. So I have a ton of experience in this, and that's why I wanted to present the story to you, which was posted on a poker Facebook group, even though this has nothing to do with poker, and the guy who posted it is not a known poker player in any way, shape, or form. It's just some dude, some recreational player, who is, uh, I think, 50 years old, and he posted this story, and I gave my two cents. A lot of other people gave their two cents. He wanted to know how people felt about the actions he took and whether he was right or wrong. So we're going to talk about it on this show. Here's what he wrote. And by the way, I guarantee this is no one that I know other than through Facebook, 
He's not even one of my Facebook friends. He's just in a group with me. I have no idea anything about this guy other than he's 50 years old and I saw him in that group. And it definitely is not a story that has to do with anything I ever did at any point in my life. So there's no tricks here. This is really what it appears to be. Okay. This is what he wrote. I met a woman in a Facebook group. We hit it off and chatted in posts and with PMs for a month. She lived in the same city, but about an hour away. She told me that she was going to be near me on a weekday and wanted to see if I wanted to see her. I said yes. She asked where we should go, and I suggested a local pastry and sandwich shop near where she was going to be after her meeting. She said that she looked forward to meeting me. I arrived about 10 minutes late. Uh, about 10 minutes later, she showed up. So he was there first. She came there 10 minutes later. We began talking. I ordered a sweet tea and muffin. She ordered wine and a sandwich, then another wine, then another wine, then a dessert, and a fourth wine. We had a nice conversation, and the place was closing in about 20 minutes. Now, keep in mind, this is during the day. This is a, uh, a lunch date. The waiter brought the bill, and since she had the bulk of the bill, he offered it to her. She did not take it and pointed at me. I was surprised, but took it and opened the bill. Each wine was $12, the sandwich was $11, the cheesecake was $8, tea 350 muffin $3. My portion was $6.50, hers $67 before tax and tip. I politely indicated that I would take care of mine, plus tax and tip, uh, about $25 of the $75 bill. I don't see how this is $25 if this is only $650, but whatever. Uh, I did not ask her out. She set up the date. She has a job, and I was willing to pay three times my amount to be nice. Oh, I see. So he was willing to pay his portion plus uh, some extra. She then lectured me for three minutes on how men need to step up and be men. They need to treat women better and respect them more. I sat and listened and nodded my head. I excused myself to use the restroom to pay the bill. I got up and walked to the front. I handed the young man the bill and ten bucks, told him this was her date and the rest would be taken care of by her. He said, okay, then I walked out. I got about a half block away in my car when my phone blows up. She calls me and I do not answer because I'm driving. Safety first. I don't think that's why he didn't answer, by the way. I think he just wouldn't want to be yelled at. Uh, when I got home, I had over a dozen text messages and two voicemails telling me what a loser I am. I must have a small dick or can't get it up. I'm a terrible father, all because I did not let her take advantage of me. Question, was I wrong to leave and being taken advantage of, or should I have just paid the bill just because I have a dick? So, we did not see a picture of the woman, in case you're wondering what she looks like. He did not say how old she was. Remember, he's 50. But he didn't say she was much younger than him. So I'm guessing she was probably somewhere near his age. So, what do you guys think? Who was in the right here? Was he right? Was she right? Or were they both terrible? Now, you may wonder how people were reacting to this in the Facebook group, which, again, is a poker Facebook group. And while the story had nothing to do about, with poker, everybody had their own opinion. There were a lot of women and men in this Facebook group, so it wasn't just all dudes commenting. The comments in this thread were split. Uh, actually... Overall, more of the comments there were criticizing him than defending him. There were some who said he was right and that uh, she deserved this, but uh, more comments than not were bashing him in one way or another. So this was not an easy one. This was not an easy one to answer. I had to think about a few things. Now, before I get going here, I want to make a few comments about the beginning of this story. This guy made a tremendous, tremendous mistake with blind dates from online. A tremendous mistake, okay? And I realized this mistake decades ago. Decades ago when I was in my teens. When I was in my teens, I was going on dates with girls I was meeting online. 
And I started to notice a pattern. The pattern was, if we were to meet for a nighttime date, there was a high chance it worked out. Most of those worked out, at least in the short term. To where the first date was good, and me and the girl would mess around, whatever. You know, like, I'd go home thinking, okay, this went well. The daytime dates were almost, all of, almost all of them were a disaster. Almost all of them did not work. They, they ranged between, we're kind of just there, there's no chemistry, uh, nothing happens, it lasts a short time, the girl says, okay, well, nice meeting you, and, and leaves, I never hear from her again. That, that was the best I got, pretty much. And, and the worst I got was like, just like, outright we didn't get along, and, and the whole thing was really lousy. It's like, I never had a good daytime date. And I'm thinking, so after some time passed, I thought, what is going on here? I've got to look at, like, why is it that the daytime's doing so much worse? Because I, I started to notice. I started to, like, almost dread meeting any girls during the day because it always went so poorly. Then it came to me. And keep in mind, I wasn't that old. I didn't have much experience with women yet. And you know, I didn't have the wisdom I have today of being this age. But even then, even at that young, tender age of 19 or whatever I was when I figured it out, I realized that the daytime was the problem. That when you go meet during the day, the atmosphere of when you're meeting is totally different than at night. I realized that when you meet during the day, you're meeting so you can be judged. At the best, you're going to get a nighttime date out of the daytime date. But nothing's going to happen on the daytime date. At worst, and in fact, what usually happens is that some flaw is found with you and the girl doesn't have any interest anymore and either it politely ends or sometimes it even impolitely ends and you end up very frustrated. The romance that is in the air at night is not there during the day. The atmosphere is not there. The feeling that uh, you want to spend a lot of time together isn't there. People, at lunch dates, it kind of has the expectation you're going to go, you're going to eat lunch, and you're going to leave. Or even like a coffee date, even more. Like you just, kind of the expectation is we're going to meet quickly and then leave. The nighttime, you're kind of going in with the expectation we're going to spend the evening together. Maybe it's going to be a very long evening, maybe we'll even go to each other's house afterwards, but uh, it's going to be at least some decent amount of time, not not half an hour, not 20 minutes, not 45 minutes. So, and even the uh, the end of it, when you walk out at night, it's just uh, a lot more of a romantic environment than when you walk out and you're in some uh, mini mall and there's uh, the sun beating down on you and it's not the same thing. And I realized that. And I realized also that that affects women a lot more than it does men. In that uh, men kind of just, want something to happen. Men are very physically driven. If they meet a woman and they're attracted to her and they like her personality, they, they're all ready to go. Women, it's a lot more complicated and uh, like the, the whole atmosphere of the moment matters a lot more. So if you're meeting with a, an unromantic atmosphere where really the objective is to just meet you and judge you for later, uh, it's not going to work out very well. You're at a huge disadvantage going in. And I realized that when I was like 19. So I would be talking to girls I met online and they'd say, oh, you know, how about meeting me for lunch tomorrow? And I go, nope. Let's meet for dinner tomorrow. Or if you can't do it tomorrow, let's meet for dinner on Saturday. Like I, I would always push it to the evening. Sometimes I'd tell them why. Sometimes I wouldn't tell them why. Depends on how close we were by that point on the phone. 
Uh, sometimes I'd say, honestly, that I've noticed that during the day, it's just not a very romantic atmosphere. I don't want to meet for the first time that way. Uh, other times I'll just make excuses of why I, you know, I can't do it. Let's do it at night. And as I got older, I realized I was 100% correct with that assessment. And I've given other people that advice. I've given other dudes the advice, meet at night. Always meet at night. Do not meet any time if it's not dark outside for the first date. After you've been with them a while, of course you can meet during the day. But for the first date and even the second date, 100% do it at night. That's where this guy screwed up, first of all. You don't you don't meet during the day. Second, um, this uh, the second part was kind of tough because um, – she was clearly taking advantage of the situation, ordering four glasses of wine, which already is a red flag that someone's ordering four glasses of wine uh, during lunch. This is probably someone who is an alcoholic. But even putting that aside, uh, she's ordering four expensive glasses of wine, or semi-expensive, and uh, order some other things that add up. And uh, so she has like 90% of the bill. And then it comes and she obnoxiously points at him. Now, even if if I was in this situation, and even if she hadn't pointed at me, I would be kind of annoyed. I really would be. Um, I would probably pay, unless I really felt like this was just... Uh, if I felt like I was a mark, like she was just meeting me to, uh, to try to get uh, a free meal out of me, or if she just had been unpleasant the whole time, um, then I would ask for her to pay her share, because I wouldn't care at that point. I'm not going to see her again anyway. If we were getting along well and I just kind of like think she didn't realize or she just kind of believed that guys pay and didn't really think about how this looks, I probably would have paid but already thought less of her and then decided after it was over what I was going to do from there. Uh, especially because it's a matter of uh, $67. You know, it's not like hundreds of dollars got run up. It's not like a huge amount of money. Uh, it, it still is kind of expected that the man pays even with all the uh, equality between the sexes nowadays it still is expected by the man paying especially people around my age remember the guy's 50 these are not uh, kids going out so that's the way a lot of people got used to who are my age you know if you dated back in the 80s and 90s uh, the girl wasn't paying for the most part so if that's what you got used to, and that's what she got used to, then yeah, it makes sense. But on the other hand, I can see why the guy's frustrated. That, you know, to not only drink four glasses of wine and expect him to pay, but to actually point the bill at him. So, there's a lot more polite ways to do it, even if she expected it. If, if, if the guy dropped it in front of her, she could have waited to see what this dude was going to do, to see if he would grab it and then just pay, and if he didn't... um then go from there. But, uh, and she could even pay her part and then just not see him again. There's also that option on her, on the table for her too. So, uh, to actually point the bill at him is pretty obnoxious when she racked up 90% of it. Uh, I've never had a girl point the bill at me. <laughs> now, usually it's dropped either by me or in the middle of the table. But there have been cases where it's been dropped in front of the girl for whatever reason, maybe they just drop it on the table and it happens to be close to her and they don't really think. And uh, no one's ever slid it to me or pointed it at me. And I, then I would just grab it. Like I actually 
when I've gone on first dates, you may wonder, you know, did I try to get the girl to pay half? No, no, I didn't. I, I always would pay unless the girl insisted she pay her half. And even if she would, I, I would try to pay anyway, but, but then if she kept pressing it, I'd say, okay, fine. In fact, for some girls, it's very important they pay their half. They don't want to feel like uh, they owe you anything or that uh, um, you know, it's just important to them to feel like they contributed. Whatever it is, I, I, don't, I wouldn't want to force it on them that I'm paying. So if I've noticed that they're pretty insistent, I, I immediately back off and let them pay their half. Uh, but I offer always offer to pay at the beginning, and I've never had someone who just outright uh, pulled something like this on me. But if this happened to me, I'm not sure what I would do if it's actually pointed at me. I may get pissed off enough to to say, you know what, I don't like this girl. F it. I'm gonna I'm gonna say something. What I would not have done, I would not have run off. That's a coward's way out. You you don't sneak out, which is what he did. He. Uh, he paid his part and snuck out, but he still snuck out. So he should have faced up to this like a man. He should have, if he really believed that she was taking advantage of him and he decided he was done with her, then he should have just sat back down and said, this was not a date I invited you on. This was a meetup that you suggested. You have 90% of the bill. I thought I was generous offering a third, and for some reason uh, uh, you don't like that. So you know what? Uh, I'm only paying my part. Uh, that's that's all I'm paying, and uh, you pay for your part. I'm paying for mine, and uh, I assume we're not going to see each other again. But that's that's what I've determined is the fair thing to do, and I I've, um, I'm not going to pay any more than that. I mean, you, you can say it. Of course, she's going to hate you. She's going to say some nasty things to you. But if you're done with her anyway, that's fine. If you don't want to get into confrontation like that, then your choices are either to pay and just not get in the confrontation. Or uh, or get in the confrontation. I mean, there's there's not much else. I mean, she wouldn't even take a third of it. She wanted uh, <laughs> she wanted him to pay. Remember, he offered that he pay a third of it when he didn't take up a third of the bill, and she said no. She lectured him for three minutes on how he needs to step up and be a man. And by the way, once you get the lecture of you need to step up and be a man from any girl you're trying to date, it's over. You're not going to get any action. She's not going to be your girlfriend. It's done. She, she's not going to ever have any romantic involvement with you the second you get the step up and be a man speech. So that's another thing to consider is that uh, it's pretty much done at that point. <laughs> so so maybe you should say, nope, this isn't about being a man. I feel like you took advantage of this and this, is, uh, this isn't right. Just because uh, you're the woman here, that doesn't mean that uh, – you invite me to meet you to meet you with for lunch and then uh, rack up a big bill drinking four glasses of wine and stick it on me. That's not right to do. I feel like I'm being taken advantage of. I'm sorry, I'm not going to pay, and that'd be totally fine. You're you're not you haven't taken on the obligation to pay because you're fem- you're male, but it is crappy to sneak out like that. It's it's crappy because it's cowardly. It's not crappy to her. It's just cowardly. So that that's my take on the matter. Uh, truthfully, they're both. Kind of, uh, <laughs> they're both kind of bad in this story. She's worse, but they're both kind of bad. For him to sneak off like this and say, "Oh, I didn't take the call. Go safety first. No, it's not safety first. I bet this guy takes tons of calls while he drives. This is the one he wouldn't take because he didn't want to get yelled at. This guy was so afraid of confrontation. Like she lectured him for three minutes on how to be a man and step up, and he said nothing. He just kind of sat there, and then he went to the bathroom." And decided to run away. That's what happened. (laughs) 
So she dresses him down. He's like, oh, I gotta go to the bathroom. And then goes to the bathroom and says, oh, my God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? What do I, do? I know. I know. I'll, I'll pay the restaurant my part and, and then I'll leave. I, I, I've satisfied my legal obligation. I'm not screwing the restaurant and, and then now I can leave with no confrontation. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's, that's very cowardly. And the guy's 50 years old. He does need to stand up. He does need to step up and be a man, but not the way she wanted. He needs to step up to her. Here's some other mistakes he made. Um, if he really liked her online and she lives only an hour away, why is he taking a month to meet her? You take a month when the person's very far away. If she lives uh, 2,000 miles away, taking a month is completely reasonable. An hour away, no. An hour away, you get the interest in someone. What you do is you get them on the phone. You talk to them on the phone. You make sure they're the person you expect on the phone. If they, uh, if their personality on the phone sucks, then you don't meet them. But uh, if you're enjoying talking to them on the phone, and by the way, someone of that age will be used to that. The, this is not uh, kids who only text. You know, if you're 50 and the woman's near 50, she will remember when she talked on the phone to guys back in the 80s and 90s. So, you know, she will talk on the phone to you. Uh, so talk on the phone and uh, get to know her a bit on the phone. And if you still like her, then say, hey, let's meet up at night, not during the day. And take her out somewhere. You can pay. See if it works. If it fails, then... Okay, it happens sometimes, it fails sometimes, and then you move on. You don't get too attached. You understand that some percentage of these works and some don't. And you move. You don't you don't put a month into it. That's another problem. You don't you don't put a month into chatting online. Now, if you don't give much of a shit, if it's someone you can kind of take or leave and you just kind of bullshit online every so often for a month and then uh, you happen to be closer than than an hour away one day and you you meet up, then that's fine, but but someone you, 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 that he says we hit it off. Okay, if you hit it off, don't chat for a month. That's another problem. Don't waste too much time. That's a big mistake you could make. Because uh, the truth is, until you meet in person, it means nothing. That's also something I learned as a youngster. Is I had some that seemed so promising online and on the phone, and then we'd meet in person and it would be crappy. And I had others that were kind of marginal that I almost didn't even want to meet, and then I'd meet and it would go great. So sometimes you can't tell. Now, as I got older, I got better and better at it to where I was almost batting a 1,000 with the first date being good because I, I got such a good feel, and this is just from experience over the years, I got such a good feel if if the woman would be one that we'd get along with in person and uh, that that I had a very good feel of who to meet and who not to meet. So there were very few bad dates towards uh, the end of my dating years. But uh, even when I was younger and I had a mixture of good ones and bad ones, I learned very fast you don't waste a lot of time on the phone or you don't waste a lot of time online. If you like someone, you, you push it to a meeting fairly quickly because it's, it's so frustrating to talk to someone for a long time and then you meet in person and it sucks. You just feel like you've tossed away all that time you're never going to get back. It's, it's fine to invest a lot of time talking to a woman if it's going to work, at least in the medium term. If it's going to flop after the first date, boy, it was a waste of freaking time. So uh, that was another mistake he made. I don't know why, if it's an hour away, why they couldn't meet for a month. That's also kind of dumb. I also don't know if they talked on the phone in the middle. That's another mistake he may have made. Talking on the phone is important because you get a better idea of their personality than you do online. A lot of times online, people can sound very pleasant and very normal, 
And then in, in person, they're nothing like that. And it's something that you could have figured out on the phone where uh, the phone's kind of a hybrid of online and in person. It's not as uh, – you're not seeing as much of the real them as you are in person where everything's like just right in front of your face. But you're also seeing more than you do online. It's uh, And it's also less awkward than in person. It's It's kind of a perfect middle ground between online and in person. So if you get along online, you get along on the phone, there's a good chance it's going to work in person. That's what I would suggest to this individual. And are you going to waste some money on first dates sometimes? If you meet at night and go out to dinner and you know you suggest it and you're the one who's going to pay? Yeah, you are. But that's the way it goes. If you're a real cheapskate, what you can do is uh, is meet really late at night to where there's nowhere open that costs very much money. Then you go to something like Denny's, and uh, there's only so much you can spend. I mean, I've done that before. I have met women at 2 a.m., and either I would just go over to their apartment or house, and we wouldn't go anywhere, or uh, we'd go to Denny's or something, and it'd be very cheap. And I, but you know what? It wasn't even for that reason. It's just like it would be something spontaneous that we just want to meet right away, and I just go do it, you know. And if it doesn't have to be a nice dinner, in fact, sometimes it's better it's not. But I have had first dates which were nice or semi-nice dinners, and uh, you know, sometimes I've been on them where they didn't work. And that's it. You know, it's a little frustrating, but it's not the end of the world. But I've just noticed a lot of people do the online meetup and dating thing completely wrong. And I admit that I've been out of the game for 11 years, and there's probably some things that have changed. And maybe if I were to be in that world again, there would be some adjustments I'd have to make. Stuff that worked well in the 2000s doesn't work in the 2020s. But... I have a feeling uh, much of what I learned back then would still apply very much to today. I just see people making a lot of stupid mistakes. I see a lot of people doing the meet-by-volume strategy, where you do, they just go on a million coffee dates and just hope one of them takes, and that's that's a horrible strategy for the reasons I said before. You You don't go into it and meet for 20 minutes and hope you hit it off. It rarely happens that way. Like, if you're a really, really, really good-looking guy where they just meet you and they they can't believe, like, you're way hotter than any dude they've dated before, yeah, you'll do well. But that's not most of us. I, I don't know how many listeners of the show could be described that way. Probably not many. So if you're not one of these uh, super, super good-looking guys that's going to wow them based upon that, uh, you don't want to just meet cold, barely knowing each other for 20 minutes. You can do like 50 of those, you'll go over 50. So that's a path to frustration. You just have to put a little effort, a little time into it, and the success rate goes way up. And it also eliminates a lot of frustration. You know, if you talk to someone on the phone and they seem crazy or they, you just don't get along with them, they go, okay, good. 
I'm just not going to call him again, and we won't meet, and it saves a lot of trouble. It's a lot easier to walk away from that than uh, go on a first date and deal with, deal with the frustration. So what would I have done in that situation? Yeah, I would have, I would have spoken up. If uh, the, the way this all happened, I, I would have told her that, that I don't think this is fair. Because once, once I got the – see, okay, there's two decisions he made. Forget, forget the bad decisions of the lunch date and all that. But uh, once he was there with her and then she ate $67 worth of food and drink and, and uh, he had $6.50 worth and then she uh, pointed the bill at him, uh, right then he had to make the decision, is he going to ask for part of the you know, more money from her that he's going to pay? Is he going to ask for any money? So once he made the decision to offer to do a third of it, uh, that was the first decision. And... You do have to decide, am I just going to take this or uh, am I going to wait till she says something when I open it? Or uh, if she doesn't say anything, am I going to say anything? Once she pointed it at me, I probably would say something. It's rude. She wouldn't deserve it at that point. I'm willing to take on the traditional male role of paying, but not, not, not for somebody that's rude or trying to take advantage. And yeah, ordering four glasses of wine and then pointing it at somebody else really does scream like I'm taking advantage. And and there are women who do that. There are women, I, I believe she met him at first because she liked him. I don't think this was like a month long con to get sixty seven bucks of food out of him. I doubt that. But uh, it's very possible she didn't like him. And I saw a picture of the guy, and he wasn't ugly, but he could, you know, he just kind of looked like a typical fifty something year old guy. So if she was like looking for a really good-looking guy or even a fairly good-looking guy, this this guy wasn't it. She she wasn't going to meet this guy and say, uh, "Oh wow, he's really handsome." Like this is just kind of the, the average guy in his fifties. And uh, maybe she was expecting better. Now I assume she saw pictures of him. But who knows? Maybe his pictures were old. But I guess they weren't old. I saw his pictures on Facebook, so I, I don't know what she was expecting. But whatever it was, maybe she met him, she wasn't feeling it, and then just kind of feel like, felt like she's going to use him for food. And I've, I've heard of that happening before. I've heard of this where uh, women will – some women will do this. I shouldn't say women because uh, that I, – I don't want to say that all or most women do that because I imagine most won't. But there are some unscrupulous women out there that once they're in a situation where they're not really into the guy, they figure, figure okay, well, might as well uh, get him to pay for my meal or my drinks, uh, get something out of it. And that's lousy, and that sucks. So, had he spoken up at any point, that would have been fine. And I think I would have spoken up. I don't think I would have paid this after the pointing. If she hadn't pointed, I think I'd just reluctantly pay and probably think less of her. Once she told me I have to man up and all this other crap, then I would just say, okay, this is dead. <laughs> then it says she pay her part, I pay my part, and we leave. Never run out, though. Never run out like a coward. Never sneak out. There's no reason to sneak out. What's going to happen to you? Is she going to beat you up? I mean, what are you, what, what are you afraid of? If you're, if you're a woman who's sneaking out because you're with a man you think is dangerous and you're afraid what he's going to do to you, that's one thing. But uh, if you're a dude out with a girl who's just obnoxious and rude or using you and you want out of it, just say so. If you're at lunch or dinner and she's taking advantage of uh, you by drinking and then pointing the bill at you, say something. Say, I'm not paying. You drank it, you pay for it. 
You're not going to get a second date, but if you've already decided you don't want a second date, then go ahead. All right. You know, if there's anything that you'd like me to do in this format, if there's any other what would Druff do, and it doesn't have to be a dating thing. It can be a customer service thing. It can be just a general life thing. It can be an old story from your past. It doesn't have to be something recent. It doesn't have to be something that occurred in, uh, in 2020. In fact, one time on the forum, I posted a you make the call about uh, – I'll do that sometimes like uh, about a situation that occurred with – usually with me, sometimes with other people, but usually with me. And then I'll post like what happened and then I'll say you – know, but then I won't post the end of it. And I say you make the call. What would you do here? And they'll vote on it. And one of the stories after people voted, I said, by the way – this happened 15 years ago, or this happened 20 years ago, and they're like, what? And I go, well, look, it, it's it's still a good story. It's just, it doesn't matter. It didn't just happen. It could easily have happened today. So it doesn't have to be a recent story. Anything you'd like me to do a what would Druff do, uh, you can send to me. It may not even have to do with you. It could be a story somebody else posted on Facebook. I'm just looking for interesting stories like these to where I can comment on just uh, general life stuff and tell you what I would do, which maybe you don't agree with. Maybe you would do it differently. You can text that to me, 775-372-8355. Let me take a look at, at the text that I received on that phone number uh, during the show. From the 773, have you seen the posts where it was obviously cut and spliced when he coughed? That's referring to Trump. No, actually, I haven't. Let's see. I... I didn't get any other text tonight. I got like one text. What's going on tonight? I usually get a ton of texts. Like nobody texted me. I looked. We're getting listeners. We're getting the same listeners as we always do. Just nobody texted me tonight. Nobody called. Nobody texted. Just nobody felt interactive tonight. Not only that, we we have lower ratings right now than we usually do. Well, that's sad. Well, you know what? I'm going to do that. I'm just going to quit. What do you think of that? I'm just going to quit the show. I'm not kidding. It's done. You're not going to call or text me. I mean, bad guy never called back. What the hell's going on here? You know what? You guys are not even good enough to get the original All in the Family ending. You're going to get this. You're not going to call or text me. I'm going to give you this instead. This is the Archie Bunker's Place ending. It's not even All in the Family. This is the jazzy version. I don't know. I like this for a change sometimes. This is like uh, All in the Family in New Orleans. Okay. Since this was a Saturday show, uh, I'm going to try to return it to Friday next week. And I'm not convinced of that yet, but uh, I think it'll be on uh, Friday. There's also a chance it'll be on Sunday. I don't think it'll be on Saturday. I think it's either going to be Friday or Sunday. Check twitter.com slash pokerfraudalert to get information on that. Regarding the possible matter, it's going to be very slow regarding how this plays out and regarding how much I can reveal. So you have to be patient with this one. Like, there's not going to be groundbreaking information I drop on you next week. There's not. But... It will come. Just the legal system is slow. I wish I wasn't dealing with this. I'm not enjoying this, but whatever, it happened. So I will deal with it. Things happen in life that you must deal with. 
And whatever comes my way, I deal with. Thank you for listening to Poker Fraud Alert Radio. We're on every week. We're going to continue being on every week. I don't care who sues me. I will continue doing this show each week until I don't feel like doing it anymore. We've been on for eight and a half years. We'll pass ten. We'll pass maybe twenty and thirty. We don't know. That is all for tonight. Good night and shalom. Shalom.